going to open uh, with a prayer uh, from offered by Camillus. Okay. Um, I just thankful for the rain. I mean, um, there's no word in autumn for thank you, uh, but um, it's the response, you know, how you feel is a personal thing. But uh, also um, in this time, I remember Jorge uh, used to be with us and um, and he's now um, on his journey. And I pray for his, his children. But um, so during this time, I want to just note that that uh, he's on, I think, my mind and I think some of the other people still for a while. So go ahead and start. Not to come to much beyond care, but to my poem with more. I'm why I came home to more touchy, but don't come home in a tomb and not shrug it, but to be asked. Hi, Chukamo, who be high school. I'm Jedam. I heard Yakabai to march to Hachu. What the more book go break to the upper that come away. I'm a hymn. Uh, for the things that are most on our minds and for the friends and families, for the things that are making us happy today, for the things that um, we plan to, to do that, that hopefully this will come to fruition in a good way, and for the things that will challenge us today, and in our future, for the people that challenge us and the people that um, help us in those challenges, for all the learning, the teaching, for the things that we will share, uh, that we will take those to heart and keep them in close um, in our minds so that we can be able to use whatever is given to us today and in the next few days to, to help us to be better students for all these and uh, your personal own um, prayer that they may be holy for all these things we pray amen Asapa. 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 okay All right, I think it's my turn, correct? <laughs> Good morning, everybody. And I wanna welcome you to, to uh, the, this three-day training. And I just want to thank everybody for participating. You know, when, when I thought about uh, what I was gonna say to kind of get everyone going this morning, uh, I was thinking about higher education and what we hire people for, you know? We, we hire people based on their content expertise. And uh, when we go through our education, uh, I think some of us dream about being instructors. I know I did. I, I always sat in class and went, man, I want to be just like that person up there. Um, but we're not often taught about teaching and about um, the ideas centered around education. And we're hired based upon we have this certain amount of knowledge that then we need to relay. And uh, these type of trainings help us develop those skills. 
But then I also think about some of the things that we've been talking about over this last summer, especially going online, about what it means to be a tribal college and um, making sure that we're serving the community that we were hired to serve. Uh, whether we're a native instructor or whether we're non-native, we're here to uh, serve the population that we're here to serve to and we're here to bring it um, to, to the communities that we have come to, at least I have come to enjoy and love. And that's the importance of this three-day training and I hope everybody takes the advantage of continuing to use this training through the uh, faculty learning community throughout the semester. And I appreciate the uh, NSF STEM grant for being able to continue this with, with all the faculty here at TOCC. Um, and let's just remember those things that who we're here to serve and these skills are for us because we were hired because we are content experts. And this is a way for us to gain skills to become better educators. Um, and so with those things in mind, I'm gonna turn the time over to Teresa and she's gonna tell us a little bit more about uh, what we're going to be experiencing. Teresa. Thank you, Curtis. Uh, yes, so welcome everyone. I'm so thrilled to see us all gathered. This is really uh, a very exciting day in my mind. I think it's a very important day and I think the work that we'll be doing uh, will be very important uh, for uh, our upcoming school year as well as in the future. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the grant that funds uh, this project. Uh, it's uh, the National Science Foundation grant. Uh, it's uh, actually it's from the TCUP program tribal colleges and university programs, so NSF TCUP. And it's a capacity building grant uh, in order to transform our institution. So really that's what we're here to do. We're here to really transform our teaching and our institution. And the name of the project is Pathways to Indigenous STEM. So the grant actually funds uh, the strengthening and transformation of the science program. Really, we're all connected. We're a small institution. I have all of, you know, as a science instructor, I have liberal arts students in my classes. You guys have my students. And so really we're all in this together. So uh, we really opened it up to be uh, very inclusive. And this is to fulfill the goal of indigenizing our curriculum. So like Curtis, I had some thoughts, like what does that mean? Uh, well, really what that means for our college is that we're fulfilling our mission. And just to kind of paraphrase from our mission, our mission is to enhance the Tonawatam Himdog, actually to enhance the unique Tonawatam Himdog and provide holistic high quality education. So ultimately that's what it's about. And really, it's about creating um, not just curriculum, but a whole educational experience that's in alignment with the core values uh, with the hymn dog um, that's embedded in the, the hymn dog. So uh, Ron Geronimo taught me early on that you don't say that you, uh, that you integrate the um, curriculum 
the hymn dog into the curriculum, it's the other way. You integrate the curriculum into the hymn dog, showing that that's the base, that's the foundation. So really, um, in a nutshell, that's why we're here today. Uh, Octaviana Trujillo will be introducing uh, a broader overview of the workshop in, in just a few minutes. But I just want to say welcome. All right, so we are going to start with introductions of everybody who's here this morning. And so I'm just going to go uh, down the list in the, uh, the participant list and just call on individuals. So, um, um, and what we'd like to know is, <laughs> I'm trying to remember, who you are, your name, uh, you, the area you're teaching in, and in one sentence, why you're working uh, for Ta-Nehisi Community College, why you're working for a tribal college, and so it, it looks like Don, you already have your uh, mic unmuted. So let's start with you. Okay, thank you very much. I'm Don Faree. Um, I work uh, as the physics instructor. I'm also going to teach math and an engineering course if we get students in those two particular courses. Uh, one sentence about why I am here. Um, I wanted to stretch my mind and start a new adventure. And I must say, both have been fulfilled in the eight months that I have been here, thanks to all of you. All right. Thank you, Don. Uh, Edison, you're unmuted. <laughs> oh, good morning, everyone. Um, glad to be here. I really enjoy these sessions that we have. I'm really thankful that... Um, Dr. Newberry has really arranged these sessions and Jimenez Lopez, you also are, and Greg, Dr. Kete, you are also, all three of you are just wonderful. And I just wanted to say um, thank you for making time for all of us because um, it really benefits all of us in, in terms of what Dr. Peterson was saying, our, our instruction. Um, so I teach literature, literature and film, um, uh, basic composition courses, um, and also chair of liberal arts and humanities um, here at the college. So um, why am I here? I always go back to the story when my advisor, when I was working on my PhD, you know, wanted me to get to California or Colorado to institutions there. And, and I fell in love with this tribal college. <laughs> Um, because it, it really is going back to the core of how my parents taught me to always dedicate yourself to service to, to the people. And so that's why I feel in solidarity with the Tana'atam Nation. I also have uh, relatives there. Uh, I have uh, relations to the Maldonado family. So uh, I am connected to the Tana'atam Nation. So I feel like in that sense, I'm building the nation. And that's part of what the tribal college movement is all about, is to sustain sovereignty and self-determination. I go way back to Vine Deloria and Vine Deloria and just sitting in on one of his classes very briefly. I mean, it was just amazing how he ran the classroom. It was very Socratic, you know, ironically. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's why I, I'm here, is to help build this nation. That's why uh, I, um, I, 
and again, it's in service. It's really being in service to the people. It's service leadership is what it is. So, and I think all of us share that as well in what we do. So anyway, I'm probably taking more than I, <laughs> more time than I have to, but um, I'm glad to be here. Enjoy these sessions a lot. So, and I'm always learning. This is lifelong learning. So it never ends, right? So it'll keep going until we're 80, 85, 90, whatever age we, <laughs> we reach. We'll always be learn we'll always learning. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Edison. And uh, Camillus, you gave a wonderful blessing. Will you please uh, uh, introduce yourself again for us? My name is Camillus Lopez. I come out of Santa Rosa community in the Gachi district. I'm living in Angam now. Um, why am I here? Well, Teresa, I think it's the, one of the big reasons. Paul and Teresa, because uh, Paul was the one that invited me to come teach some classes. And so I started there and then Teresa, because she uh, created the position that I'm in now as cultural, senior culture mentor. And I'm loving it. Um, always wanted to do this. Uh, back to um, what um, was mentioned before, um, my, my grandfather used to sit and people would come to him and ask him questions about this and that, about the land and stuff. And, and when I was young, I, I would used to sit with them. He didn't mind me sitting there listening. And so um, I used to think, I want to be like that. I want to do that. What he's doing is to, to know stuff and to share it with people. And so that's, I think that's why I'm here. So that's it. Thank you, Camillus. We always appreciate you very much. Uh, the next person uh, we have is Carol. And for those who don't know Carol, she is the NSF STEM. Uh, she evaluates our program. So if you can imagine her tough job, she's evaluating a bunch of cats. So I'm going to turn the time over to her and let her introduce herself. Uh, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? OK, great. Um, as uh, Curtis said, I'm the project evaluator. I actually came on uh, aware of this project through my uh, prior relationship with Teresa and another NSF grant. Uh, that was uh, Tahona Atom at Community College and also Northern Arizona University and Coconino Community College. It was a um, three college partnership. And I am not faculty, but however, I have a great interest in learning about people, meeting people, learning about other cultures. Um, I've worked on another a number of other um, native uh, grant projects, and I love listening to Camillus and Dr. Kehete and Octaviana and any opportunity where I can participate in learning. And I just love it. I seek it out all the time. I have a, a short story to share. I was on a uh, flight from, I think, I believe it was Louisville to Kentucky to Houston. And it was a small airplane and I was sitting in the back with a, a gentleman and he looked down and he goes, what are you reading? And it was the scientific, scientific American. And, uh, and I, he said, really? I said, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and it was uh, articles about 
um, well, it was cosmology and things like that. So anyway, welcome to all of you. You are all evaluators. We are here to support one another and provide feedback and uh, anything that we can do to improve this process for you going forward for future professional development opportunities. We uh, welcome your participation. So happy learning, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. And the next person I'm excited to introduce to everybody, he's one of our uh, new faculty. His name is Dave. Um, he teaches uh, history and political science. And Dave, would you want to introduce yourself, please? Sure, thanks. Uh, as, uh, as mentioned, uh, my name is Dave Beeksma. Uh, I will be teaching political science and history. Uh, I am a, uh, an enrolled rival member of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. My, uh, my family has lived in that area for about 600 years. Uh, my father is native, my mother is Scandinavian, so I'm, I'm what you get when you mix an Indian and a Viking. Um, I, uh, I, I spent, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna you know, eat up a lot of time, but I, I spent about 35 years working with the government and working with the military, chiefly overseas, doing development work, doing security work, doing governance work, uh, and doing some work in diplomacy, uh, and returned back to the States early this year with uh, the chief objective of being to, to try to apply some of the things that I've learned over the last couple of decades to, to helping out communities in Indian country. And I do a lot of that back home in the, the Red Cliff community where I'm from, but I'm, I'm trying to also be of service as much as I can to the community that I live in here in Arizona. So that's, uh, that's me. Thanks, Dave. And again, welcome aboard and I look forward to having you on board, so. And the next uh, individual I don't think needs much introduction. He's been a, an adjunct for us for quite a while now. And, and uh, uh, I know his students love his class and uh, I enjoy talking to his students about his class because he always has interesting reports that he's having them do. Uh, but our next uh, person is Dwayne Pierce. Dwayne, uh, do you want to introduce yourself, sir? Wow, I didn't know you were talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, my name is Dwayne Pierce. I'm from the village of Wak over here, just south of uh, Santa Vera. I mean, south of Tucson. I live now here in Santa, or Tucson. And um, I'm teaching Tohono'otham history and culture. And why am I at TOCC? Uh, I always say that when I was at the mission school over here at Wak, uh, the bookmobile will come and all the kids will go and get, you know, depending on how tall you are, you get the books. The little kids get the a Curious George and on up. And uh, once I got tall enough to reach the higher shelves, I was looking for things on Indians. And all I could find were Iroquois, Apache, Navajo, all the famous ones. <clears throat> so I wondered, I asked my grandpa, how come there's nothing on the autumn here? And it goes, because we're trying to be secret, he would say. We're trying to be quiet, not seen. And I said, oh, okay. But that didn't help me didn't find out anything. So I, it's been my life's, you know, I haven't been in education until I went back to college in 2012. After many years working construction and in copper mines. And my goal was to eventually get a 
degree in history. And then before TOCC, I thought, well, at least teach in one of the high schools along in the area where all some students go, just so they can have someone that kind of looks like them and talking about our history. Because uh, I know that's a lot that's been going on just listening to my grandfather talk about things in this area. And I just wanted to share that with other autumn people so they will get a sense of who they are and where they come from and who their people are, even though we're not as famous as other people. And that's why I'm here. And I got lucked out. I lucked out because Ron Geronimo found out that I graduated from uh, U of A with my master's in history and he called me and threatened me, threatened my life if I didn't come over here. <laughs> Not really, but uh, that's why I'm here. Thank you, Dwayne. And I'm really here. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see you. All right, the next person I, I'd like to introduce, she's actually a returning faculty. She was uh, teaching our early childhood education classes and then we uh, hired the full-time faculty, but now she's returning to teach our elementary education courses in the EDU. Um, her name is Erin Aguilar. So Erin, do you wanna introduce yourself to everybody? Sure, good morning everyone. Um, like Curtis said, I'm returning um, for elementary education and I'm super excited to be back at the college. Um, I love teaching at TOCC. I love the small class sizes. I love being able to influence and nurture um, young teachers and, and teachers who will eventually be in the classroom. Um, and so I'm really grateful to be back here again today. Thank you, Aaron, and we're excited to have you back. And uh, we have a, a member from our HIMDOG committee, and she's also uh, in, in charge of uh, managing all of our grants. So I, I don't think I'd ever want her job, uh, but she does a good job with it. We have Ingrid Segundo with us today. Ingrid, would you like to introduce yourself and say a few words? Sure. Good morning, everyone. Shopi Masma. Um, my name is Ingrid Segundo. I work in the finance building at Central Campus. As Curtis said, I am the sponsored projects coordinator and I do oversee and manage all the, the grant funding from, that's given to um, TOCC. Um, I, just wanna, I just want everyone to have a great day. Uh, you all have a lot to say as you are introducing yourself, and I'm glad to meet some of the faculty that I've never seen because I rarely go to main campus. I'm also a part-time student in the social service area. So I'm here because I myself like to learn when I can in whatever area I can, you know, gain from it. I always try to take that with me, whether it's a piece, a small piece, uh, a larger portion of it, you know. I like to learn that, uh, whatever I learn and whatever uh, tendons I tend to, but I also like to share it with my people. And the people are, are of great inspiration. Sharing is one of our core, core values that we have within our community. And so sharing and, and then eventually, you know, giving back to to help the communities so that they may thrive in whatever area they, they would like to. So welcome everyone, have a good day. I'll be in and out as much as I can. 
but um, I'm very interested in to learn. I've, I've heard of the Pathways workshops. So this is my push to, to listen in and um, see what's going on. So thank you. Thanks Ingrid and welcome. Uh, the next person uh, that we have is our uh, one of our full-time faculty. She's been with us for a year and she's going on our second year. She's our full-time uh, natural resources uh, faculty, Kimberly Danny. So Kim, do you want to say a few words? Hi, my name is Kimberly Danny. Um, I'm Navajo. I'm from Foxlock, Arizona, but now live in Tucson. So the reason I'm at the college was I first started as a tutor in the library with Liz Cepeda and I kind of just fell in love with the college and I continue to stay there because whenever I go out there it just kind of feels like home or kind of feels like my grandma's home. It's that kind of comfort feeling that I really like about the college. So. Nice to meet you all. Thanks, Kim. And our next person is our fine arts instructor, Linda. And someday I hope that I can actually go and have her teach me some art instead of always having to do business with the college um, because I'm always seeing these things in our background with wonderful art. So Linda, I'm, I'm just taking that up as a challenge um, in front of a bunch of people. But Linda, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm, I'm Linda, and uh, I've been out of the college for about three, almost going on four years now, and uh, I was invited to come out as an adjunct initially uh, by the former uh, full-time instructor, and she had worked with me, but I was in a full-time management position at another institution, so she kept telling me, Linda, I think you really like it out there. I just feel like it's a good place for you to be, and um so when my former institution closed and uh, she had some medical difficulties, I, I came out and she was right on. I've uh, really immensely enjoyed um, working with the students out there and the environment. And uh, she was right in the fact that it was a, a really good fit for me. Um, so uh, that's, that's how I ended up out there basically. It's just uh, somebody, somebody inviting me to come out who, who knew me and, uh, and uh, knew that I would enjoy it. So, um, uh, wonderful artists out there, and and uh, yeah, that's that's where I'm at. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Linda. And and uh, along with Kim, we have another second year faculty. Although she has been teaching in the area of social work for many years, and she's uh, been doing an amazing job. Uh, we're we're giving her lots of students this coming fall. I think she's sent me an email, she now has something like 89 students. Uh, but Marsha, our new uh, social work instructor, not so new, but um, uh, I definitely enjoy her and welcome her. And so Marsha, do you wanna say a few words? Hi, good morning, everybody. This is so exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, I applied a position and um, Curtis and I talked, he told me, exciting challenge and of course I, I into it um, when I think about why I'm at TOCC um, I, I started the reason why I started at TOCC I think is just because of the great opportunity um, I would have to learn 
from everyone um, in the college community and um, also uh, the, the whole surrounding community, even from my students. Um, but then also uh, being able to provide quality education and um, giving an opportunity for students to have access to quality education and to really pursue their dreams. Um, to uh, support students, to let them know that, yeah, you were thinking about this? Well, I believe you can do it. And so it's just uh, been an incredible year. Um, why did I renew my contract is because this last year has just been unbelievable and I, I really feel like I'm meant to be here. Um, and I have never felt so welcomed um, and just supported uh, by the faculty, the staff, the administration colleagues, and the students. So it's just wonderful. And, and I'm excited to be part of this training. Now, this is the first real formal training that I've been able to participate in with TOCC. Um, I come from northern Minnesota. I'm, I'm on a retirement teach-out plan right now. One more year, I'm with the College of St. Scholastica. Uh, up in Duluth, Minnesota, and I bet Dave knows where that is. Um, and so I have had the opportunity to also work uh, with Fond du Lac Tribal Community College and to develop a distance site social work program there to help give students um, access to education. So that's, that's why I'm here and uh, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you, Marcia. And we have our Dean of Student Services with us today, Dean uh, Naomi Tom. Do you want to say a few words and introduce yourself? Sure. Hello, everybody. Um, thank you for inviting me to, uh, to attend this training. Um, I am the Dean of Student Services. Um, I sometimes teach periodically American Indian Studies and uh, casino gaming classes. Um, it's been a while since I've done that, though. Uh, and I know you're asking everybody, you know, why are you here at the college? And uh, I guess uh, the short answer is this is my home. Um, I am um, from, I am part of the Chukukuk district and my family is originally from the San Miguel area. Um, and my grandma always instilled to me the importance of education. And um, she always told me, you know, as, as soon as you're done with school, you come home and there'll be a place for you. I never knew what that place was. Um, although when I was in grad school, my, I had a professor, Dr. Leo Killsback. He um, was uh, an instructor at TOCC some time ago, and he was really encouraging me to, to come to TOCC, you know, and I, at the time, it sounded like a ridiculous idea because uh, I didn't know if that was the right place for me. Um, you know, when I, and I did come here almost right after I finished grad school. Um, so I've been with the college going on five years now. Um, and, you know, and one of the things that really sticks out to me, and I would say this was day two of me being at the college, um, I, I was a recruiter at the time and we did a presentation for a visiting school. Um, so day two, I'm presenting on, on, you know, recruiting students into our college <laughs> somewhat. And we had a, the presenters for, from the Himlock Committee. And um, one of those presenters was uh, the late Sean Williams. And, you know, and I had the opportunity to meet him. And one of the first things he said after his uh, presentation to the students um, is directly to me, you know, he said, welcome home, which was 
uh, hugely impactful to me. And um, I have loved every moment of being at TOCC and I, I, I plan on staying. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you and welcome, Naomi. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next person, I don't think he needs much introduction because uh, all the faculty and the staff that interacts with him becomes his instant friend. Um, but he's our business instructor. He's been with us for a few, quite a few years now. Uh, Neil Wade, do you, uh, do you want to say a few words and introduce yourself? Just a few. Come on. Uh, my name is Neil Wade. I'm the uh, business instructor. Uh, I also teach a little bit of economics and uh, occasionally I'll teach history and uh, political science and government as well. But it looks like Dave's going to take that over from me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, like uh, Curtis said, I've been out here now oh, six or so years. I really don't remember. Uh, trying not to count because it just reminds me of how old I am. Uh, and the reason why I'm out here uh, is I spent, well, I'll age myself a little bit. Uh, I've been working since I was 12 years old and I won't tell you how old I am. Uh, but uh, throughout that time that I was working, I realized that most of the people that were managers and leaders and running businesses had no idea what they were doing. Uh, and it was really scary. Uh, so I, I had decided that the best way for me to uh, correct this was to become a teacher and give people the tools uh, on how to be successful businessmen, how to be good managers and good leaders and how not to be you know, basically jerks and how everything revolves around people, not profits. Um, so I, I take that viewpoint and I approach it from, from that standpoint and uh, been very successful and I want to thank uh, TOCC for putting up with me for all these years and uh, uh, I, I love being out here I really do I just uh, I just fell into this job so to speak uh, but all the best jobs I've had have been that way I've just had no intention or idea that I'd be working at that place and I've, everyone that's happened I've loved and I, I just love it out here now so uh, thanks for having me and it's good to see everybody here uh, good luck this coming semester and we'll talk to you all in a bit. Thank you, Neil. And we also have one of our uh, NSF STEM grant uh, trainers, consultants, partners, Octavia. Tra I, I, I'm going to torture your last name, so I'll let you say it. But Octavia, Anna, would you please introduce yourself? Liosem Chanea. Uh, muy buenos dias. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for all the introductions. I, I'm very happy to be with all of you this morning. Um, I have over four decades of public education, K-12, as well as higher education. Uh, many years ago, I was a, we had a uh, Tri-University National Science Foundation on Indigenous Education and uh, I led the team from Northern Arizona University. Currently, I'm a professor um, at Northern Arizona University uh, in the Department of Applied Indigenous Studies. Um, I'm also a former chairwoman of the Pasquayaki Tribe of Arizona. Um, the late Josiah Moore was my mentor early in my, uh, actually schooling, we met uh, back at, uh, back in the Phoenix area many, many decades ago. And certainly he was uh, uh, a dear friend and mentor. Um, what else can I say? I, I guess my introduction to Tohono Autumn Community College 
uh, was years ago when we had uh, a um, collaboration with the American Indian Higher Education Institution. Um, and that was to really look at climate change. And so I started uh, to, uh, I reached out to Teresa Newberry and we decided that we could work together and develop uh, uh, units around indigenous climate change and particularly looking at uh, Tohono O'odham um, community. Uh, we've also worked on the indigenous uh, evaluation framework also provided by AHEC, American Indian Higher Education. So I feel very welcome and, 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 and really have learned tremendously uh, from all of you uh, being part of uh, these partnerships and collaboration. Um, I wanted just to, to go over a little bit of, of what we've done. This is, of course, our second year with the, this particular uh, NSF project. And our team has um, been meeting all summer long, uh, the project team. And uh, we've consulted, of course, with um, Dr. Greg Cajete um, in like, what, how do we provide uh, three days of, of, of uh, professional development uh, based on uh, what we have experienced uh, last year? This is our second year. And um, we want to focus on uh, society and culture, place-based learning. And we want to really look at how this really incorporates uh, Tohono O'odham health and environment, um, how we are able to, to really look at uh, the broader issues of the uh, health and environment and, and, and those challenges and issues um, especially our, the well-being of uh, the communities of the Tohono O'odham Nation. Uh, we're going to revisit the SACE model um, to continue creating um, uh, units uh, to create this curriculum for Tohono O'odham Community College. Um, and what we hope to do um, with this uh, uh, workshop is, is we want the faculty to, to really um, identify critical educational needs of the community as it relates to your teaching area. We want the faculty to apply the knowledge gained about the societal and cultural factors of the Tohono O'odham Nation and what are the impacts of this, uh, uh, the, what are the impacts that the students in the community um, may have uh, in, as we proceed in the development of these uh, curriculum materials for um, place-based uh, curriculum. We know that with the, the ZACE model, uh, it really incorporates this holistic native indigenous uh, perspectives and values. And so we have used the ZACE model in the work uh, that um, uh, contributed to our learning communities uh, uh, last year. We want to continue that and it is transdisciplinary. Uh, it's really incorporating the content, cultural content, curriculum, course content across disciplines. And so it, it includes all the courses um, and uh, academic areas in uh, arts, so social science, math, literature, and philosophy. 
Um, and one of the things that we feel is very, very important is how, uh, how can we learn about the societal and cultural factors uh, that impact and affect Indigenous education. And so uh, we are very happy to have uh, Greg Cajete, uh, panelists that many of you know, uh, as well as everyone that is going to partake in this uh, learning experience for the next three days. So thank you for joining us. And I will try to facilitate this uh, 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 this professional development workshop as best I can. I'll be mindful to, um, to have and designate uh, breaks along the way. Um, as you can see on your schedule, we are um, have a whole morning uh, until 1230. And, uh, but we will designate a short break uh, uh, between now and uh, uh, before we uh, break for the afternoon. So with this, I'd like to uh, now um, have Greg Cajete introduce uh, the ZACE model. And um, let me say a little bit about Greg. Greg and I have been colleagues, friends for, uh, for many years. He recently retired from the University of New Mexico American Indian Studies. He was a former uh, chair of that department. But many of you already know Greg had this work. And so he um, is uh, world renowned uh, for his advocacy, for his um, uh, indigenous scholar contributions to the field. And so uh, welcome, Greg. And I give you the, the Zoom floor. Okay, I, I think you can all hear me. Uh, thank you, Octaviana, for that very gracious um, introduction. Uh, I'm just learning how to be retired. And uh, uh, so uh, as, as was said before, we're, we're continual learners, you know, so I'm in this particular phase of my, my learning process. Uh, as Octaviana and Teresa have said, um, this is the second year of this workshop uh, here at uh, TOCC. Um, last year we dealt with and looked at uh, the whole nature of coming to know, which is which is called epistemology in the Zayas model, and uh, that really encompasses how you uh, situate, you know, how you privilege in in. in uh, the context of particularly of indigenous education, indigenous knowledge, indigenous histories, and indigenous cultures. And so we were specifically focusing on the way that epistemology uh, forms one of the first foundations uh, in the Zayas model. Uh, for those of you that were not at the uh, first um, workshop last year, uh, I'll go over the Zayas model, uh, you know, briefly. Uh, but I just want to say, just uh, in terms of opening remarks and comments, uh, uh, first of all, that it's a pleasure to be uh, with you once again, in this case, not in person, but by by virtual uh, technology, you know, I'm seeing all of your faces and 
uh, hearing your parts of your stories and why you uh, have come to uh, TOCC uh, in, in the context of this particular workshop. Uh, again, I've been a follower of, uh, and certainly, you know, an advocate of tribal colleges. I've worked with tribal colleges actually my entire uh, career. Um, I started uh, at a national tribal college uh, called the Institute of American Indian Arts. That's where I started my teaching uh, way back in 1974. Uh, so um, uh, particularly, uh, my focus was uh, being trained as a as a biologist um, in my first degree, uh, I was uh, really um, taken by how um, science was not including, not including indigenous thought, indigenous perspective, and certainly the indigenous experience uh, in the teaching of biology. Uh, uh, I was asked at uh, the Institute of American Indian Arts by the president at that time, was, was uh, Lloyd uh, Kiva New, uh, to uh, actually create a curriculum that integrated science with art, with the cultural perspectives of students that were attending the Institute at that time. And uh, of course, these were students who were, that were coming from all of Indian country. Uh, they were students uh, that were coming from uh, you know, just coming off uh, out of their communities for the first time uh, to school. Others uh, were second and third generation uh, urban Indians coming from Minneapolis, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, and, and uh, Denver, various places. But their intent and their and their commonality was that, first of all, they were coming from indigenous uh, traditions, indigenous families, and uh, indigenous histories, and they also were interested in the arts. Um, I am also a self-taught artist, so uh, I have quite a bit of background in that area as well. So uh, Lloyd New asked me, you know, can you create this curriculum, uh, giving me the support that was necessary, uh, even sent me to get my master's at the University of New Mexico uh, in education uh, to, to actually from the ground up, from scratch, create a curriculum that actually really did engage uh, Native students at IIA in the area of science. Science, of course, um, has always been problematic, I guess you might say, as, as, uh, as, a, as, a, um, as an area or a discipline for many Native students. Um, and uh, Certainly at IIA, because most of the students were uh, there to, to take art, they were, they were complaining that, you know, why were they having to take a science um, credit, you know, in an art school? Uh, that's also a story unto itself. But, you know, the students at IIA, uh, even today, are, are still very much activists, you know, and, and uh, they'll speak their mind, you know, when they need to. And uh, at that time, they needed to. So uh, I started... Uh, working and developing uh, culturally responsive curriculum in science, uh, beginning in my first teaching position at IIA in 1974. And as it turns out, I've been working on it ever since, you know, and, and uh, here you find me today with you, uh, still, you know, um, preaching the same mantra, as you would say, you know, uh, culturally responsive science. So that's a brief introduction. Again, I, I won't go into a personal introduction. I've done a lot of work in a lot of places. Uh, I was the director of Native American Studies at the University of New Mexico. 
and also uh, a professor in the College of Education, Language Literacy and Social Cultural Studies with an emphasis in uh, Native Education. Uh, I have done a number of these workshops, uh, you know, not only in Arizona, but actually around the, the country and uh, throughout the United States, Canada, uh, even Latin America, uh, Mexico, and also in, in uh, most recently in Taiwan uh, in December before all of this COVID business began to happen. So that's uh, the introduction, real brief. Uh, uh, what I wanted... Um, excuse me, Greg. Yes. I, we have five more individuals that we need to introduce before you okay. go into the deep uh, presentation of the um, introduction to the ZACE model or reintroduction. So I'm going to turn it back to Curtis. And because I, I did not have the full screen of everyone, um, and I can't read chats while I talk, I was telling him. So let's, I'm going to give it back to Curtis and then That's he fine. will give it back to you. Thank you. That's Thank fine. You. Yeah, so we do. We, we have just five more people to introduce. And, and uh, so the next person, he was our full time chemistry instructor last year, and he's our he, he returned this year as our adjunct chemistry instructor. Uh, his name is Rajneesh. Rajneesh, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, hey, uh, good morning to you all. Uh, I'm Rajneesh. Uh, I've been teaching uh, chemistry at Tohano since last year. I'm a uh, returning instructor in adjunct capacity right now. Uh, I, I love teaching at Tohano uh, Odom Community College because of the small uh, class size and the students. I mean, they're really sweet. And that about it for me. Thank you, Rajneesh. And uh, we have another one of our science adjunct instructors, Teresa DeCoker, and she, she has a very busy class. She has a full class this semester. Um, she teaches uh, uh, our anatomy and our health class, uh, science classes. So she's very popular. Uh, Teresa, do you want to introduce yourself? I didn't know it was popular, thank you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I did notice I had 25 students in my nutrition class, which uh, I was I was surprised, um, but I'm excited. Um, this is my first time teaching uh, asynchronous class, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's been fun building it this summer, but I've been uh, it's been so great to teach at T Tono Atom Community College, and I've been uh, really lucky to teach a real a wide array of science classes, and um, have enjoyed everyone and um, learn a lot as I go from the students, and um, yeah, so I've just had a you know, really good. Um, uh, positive experience at TOCC, and I'm really honored to be part of this training. So thank you so much. Thank you, Teresa. And we have one of our, uh, our speakers here joining us this morning, and he's one of our uh, honored members of the nation. Uh, Verlin Jose, would you like to introduce yourself and say a few words? Yes. Um, Good morning. Can you hear me and see me? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, my name is Verlin Jose. I'm a member of Don Autumn Nation. And um, why am I here? It's because I happened to run into somebody at the store. And we had this awesome discussion. And uh, I've been given the opportunity to share um, a few thoughts with you this afternoon. Um, a perspective, and I had to Google. I had to look up 
perspective to make sure I'm, I'm giving the right deliverance of message and so forth. <laughs> so anyways, um, I'm going to share with you a little bit this afternoon. Uh, always been um, very proud of the college. Uh, uh, everyone that's there, um, uh, thank you for, for what you do. Um, it's been a long time coming in this educational role for the college, and there's a lot more ways to go uh, to build upon a what is already a great uh, Don Autumn Tribal College, and by the com contributions of you all and a lot that have um, walked through the, the college doors, uh, both uh, faculty and staff and students. So uh, good morning and good day to everyone. Thank you, Verlin, and welcome, and we look forward to that presentation this afternoon. And then our uh, last but not least, we have our uh, library director here with us this morning, Liz Zapeda. Liz, would you like to say a few words? Good morning. Um, it's nice to be here. Hopefully, I will be able to stay on all day and listen and learn. <laughs> but welcome. Thank you, Liz. And did I miss anybody? I'm looking through the list. I think right. Tim. I think Tim. Oh, Tim. Oh, oh, I didn't scroll far. Oh, Tim. You're always present. I apologize. Your name's right here, and I checked it off for no reason. Tim. <laughs> Uh, Tim is our um, CIS uh, instructor, and he is the faculty's IT everything. Uh, he's the guy we go to um, uh, for everything we need IT-wise, and we really appreciate him and his leadership in that direction. Tim, please introduce yourself. I apologize. Oh, um, that's all right, Curtis. What more needs to be said? Everybody said everything I was going to say, so I'm off the hook here. <laughs> You're off the hook? Nothing? Yeah, no, no. Well, um, my my big claim to fame is uh, I came into the college and basically as a former chief technology officer, and so uh, coming in um, at a little bit different um seeing things a little differently, I suppose you could say. And the reason I'm really out there is because I'm an explorer. I just love to explore. And this is, uh, this is a big adventure for me. So thank you for the opportunity. All right. All right. And welcome, Tim. And we do have a, a, another individual joining us. His uh, name is Dr. Hamute Kiete. He will be, uh, uh, our 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 full time chemistry instructor. I'm hoping soon. Um, we're trying to get him here. Uh, but Dr. Kiete, would you like to say a few words? Yeah. Um, nice to see all of you. My name is Hamid Keta, and I'll be the chemistry instructor. I'm currently um stuck in Stockholm, and I'm just trying to find my way to. To Arizona as soon as possible to to join the um, awesome community out there. So hopefully you'll see me in in few days or weeks time. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and we look forward to having you. 
All right, I think we have everybody. Um, so I'll turn the time back over to Dr. Kehete and uh, Octaviana. Hi, Curtis. Can I chime in for a second? Yes, Josh, go for it. Hi. Um, so I'll be in the background today. I'm uh, the STEM program coordinator. Um, if you have not signed in yet, uh, I wanted to chime in now before we get started. Um, by putting your name in the chat box, um, that'll be our sign-in page, and that's very important for our bookkeeping. So if you could uh, put your name in the chat box if you haven't done so already, that would be extremely helpful. Thank you so much. All right. Josh, did you not introduce yourself? I probably didn't. Um, I, I don't think you did. So first of all, Josh, something you should know about Josh, he is the NSF STEM coordinator. And uh, so he does uh, all of the background work to make all of this stuff happen. He does the event uh, organizing and all of this stuff, but he's also one of our adjunct faculty for the, the, the science department. So um, and I believe on top of that, remind me if I'm correct on this, Josh, you're, you're, you're entering a PhD program. So a lot of energy behind that. So Josh, say a few words, please. Wow, that's a great memory. Thank you so much, Curtis. Um, so, so yes, I am the STEM program coordinator here uh, and also adjunct uh, faculty. My area is um, biology and environmental science. Um, and so actually to, I'm finishing up a summer class that I'm teaching today. So, um, so there's that. Um, and Curtis is also right. I am starting a PhD program in uh, teaching, learning, and sociocultural studies. Uh, it's a, basically a fancy term for education here at the University of Arizona um, in two weeks. Um, so starting this fall. Um, so that'll be an exciting adventure. But um, it's been quite an experience here at TOCC as the coordinator and faculty. Um, and, and one reason why I'm here in particular is um, there was a, a teacher of mine that told me something um, that I, I hold near and dear to, to my heart is that I believe it was one of my high school instructors and, and they said, you know, I always loved learning, talking about themselves, of course, you know, they always loved learning um, and they wanted to figure out a way um, to become a professional student. It's like, how can I be, get paid to learn all the time? Um, and teaching is that profession. Um, and so that, that's why they became a teacher. And I really identified with that. I, um, really love learning in, in any uh, opportunity that I can get. Um, and so this is just another opportunity to learn to learn more. So I'm excited to uh, join y'all today. And I'll be in the background and uh, hopefully aiding the professional de uh, development workshop and keeping it going. So if you have any questions, feel free to ask, ask me or anyone else. So thank you. Okay. All right, now I, I think I am definitely for sure we got through everybody. Is there anyone I miss? No, I'm Brazil here, I just got here. Oh, welcome. Do you wanna introduce yourself and say a few words? 
Okay, uh, Don Brazil. I'm the new director of the Land Grant Office of Sustainability. Working at West Campus. I've been to Tucson twice, but I'm actually remote today from Reno. Uh, we're, we're moving down in September. It's been a hit and miss with the pandemic and everything, but uh, uh, I've been working with Mario and uh, Clifford out there. And we've been out and seen some farmers already. We're trying to do the annual reports for the NEFA grants. I've uh, got lots of ideas of what we might be able to do. Um, I'm, I guess I'm essentially retired, but I don't quit working. I, I keep working. Uh, did a lot of international work plus extension here in the U.S. and teaching. Uh, but anyway, I'm glad to, uh, glad to see everybody and I look forward to getting down there and to where maybe we can interact other than virtually, but uh, until then, so be it. Very good. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. All right. All right, I'll turn the floor back over to uh, Dr. Kehete. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I've introduced myself and I think all of us have introduced ourselves. Um, uh, I should say, Octaviana, uh, if you'll keep track of uh, how long I have before, because <laughs> uh, I also have a tendency to, to go beyond time. I will, I will, and especially because we do want to have uh, Camilla's, uh, his time is from 11.30 to 12.30, but we'll get a break before that. Okay. Oh, okay. So, so uh, maybe, me... maybe we can break about 11.15. Does that sound good to you? Uh, that sounds fine. Uh, I think it's uh, Arizona time is... Um, right uh, now, Arizona time is 10.03. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So uh, just keep... Keep me, uh, keep me informed in terms of time, you know, give me the high sign. Um, what we just did is uh, very important, uh, and that is uh, really introducing ourselves and getting a sense, you know, collectively for the, uh, the richness of our experiences. And uh, what I want to do is I was keeping track as everyone was introducing themselves of the different kinds of uh, words, thoughts, and perspectives that were being Presented, and I'm just going to go over them really quickly because uh, the Zayas model is, um, uh, is uh, well, actually, I have to say that I adapted the Zayas model to culturally responsive uh, curriculum design and development. And what I added to the, um, to the uh, Zayas model because it didn't have it uh, was the whole notion of context. And uh, context is one of the most important elements of considerations, you know, for developing any kind of curriculum, uh, but more particularly for culturally responsive curriculum, uh, culturally adapted curriculum. And uh, uh, one of the reasons why is it, it represents, you know, um, the context of the social, the context of uh, the community, the context of the place, where the people are coming from, uh, what what they do and how they do it. So all of those come into play, you know, when you consider context. And it's an essential consideration in the context, in the context of, of uh, this kind of curriculum design and development that we're about to uh, get into. But just very quickly, I'm gonna read uh, some of the things that came forward. Uh, building a nation, sovereignty, service leadership, 
lifelong learning, sharing, giving back, learning our histories, understanding the nature of our natural resources, our environment, the role of technology, creativity, autumn culture, social issues, health issues, education issues, personal issues, access to quality education, student success, people, not profits, coming home, climate change, indigenous evaluation, nutrition, health, diet, uh, environment, place-based well-being. And so those are just some of the, the words, you know, that I took from all of your uh, introductions. Um, and I, I use it, you know, as the beginning of this, um, this talk on uh, what is the Zayas model, uh, because uh, I think it's important, particularly for this, uh, this second session, which focuses on society and culture and how society and culture actually does uh, form an essential foundation for uh, not only the content, you know, that uh, we use to create curriculum from, but also the context in which that curriculum unfolds. And so um, what I want to do is just very briefly go over uh, for those of you that were not at last year's workshop, um, uh, the Zayas model. Now, what I did have Teresa do was uh, share with all of you a whole suite of um, uh, education, indigenous education, native education uh, articles. Uh, again, I, I work in the College of Education as well as Native Studies. So in the College of Education, uh, we do focus on, uh, you know, culturally uh, based research, culturally based uh, efforts, uh, particularly in, in terms of literacy, in terms of uh, uh, the whole communication process in education. So uh, these uh, articles, a suite of articles um, that uh, Teresa uh, would have provided you, uh, and if not, you know, please ask her and, and she'll send you some copies of that suite are, are meant to form another kind of context. Uh, and that context is, uh, I think, a very important context of uh, some of the research uh, related to some of the issues that Native students, uh, Native communities face, some of the histories of Native education as a whole, that I think are very important in sort of filling the spaces. Uh, I know that some of you uh, are coming into uh, this realm, which is what we call the, the social cultural studies of education, uh, probably for the first time. Some of you, you know, already have some background in it. Um, but uh, I, I'm assuming that uh, it's always important to have at least uh, a context uh, that you're that you're beginning to reflect from, you know, besides your own personal experience and context. Uh, but that you're going and doing uh, some reading, you know, with regard to the research that is available. So what I've done is uh, uh, put together a suite of, of uh, articles, you know, that I've used in my classes uh, at the University of New Mexico uh, to provide that kind of context uh, that I think is all important 
uh, particularly for this aspect of the Zayas model. So um, uh, I know that uh, there's quite a bit of reading, you know, uh, there. Uh, it's important reading. Uh, I want to emphasize that I, 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 I know that uh, many of you may, may not have looked at some of it. Uh, some of you may have, I don't know. Uh, but uh, this uh, reading or, or suite of re uh, readings um, uh, are very important for you to read up on when you have time uh, to gain that in more in-depth understanding uh, of the kinds of issues that uh, particularly Native students face in, in education particularly. And, um, and I think they're very important because they do deal with uh, racism, uh, systemic racism, uh, racism within the classroom, uh, some of the uh, situations that students, uh, uh, the challenges that they have, particularly students of color and more particularly uh, Native students, you know, with regard to education as a whole. It has a little bit about the, the histories of Native education. Uh, again, you know, uh, being uh, lifelong learners, uh, it, it's important for you as you begin to create a curriculum uh, in this way using the Zayas model that uh, you also become researchers of your curriculum. Yeah, and that's an important piece of this whole uh, exercise is, is to get you to begin to uh, become your own curriculum designers in the sense that uh, you're not only designing curriculum for um, for your discipline, but you're designing curriculum for the students and for the for the community uh, or communities that you're serving, and uh, that requires you know a, a, an understanding of uh, some of these kinds of social cultural issues that uh, are presented in. In, in the articles. Again, it's just the surface. I mean, there are literally thousands of articles related to this. So, um, uh, so that's the reason for, for giving you those articles. Uh, I've also provided with, uh, I've also provided um, uh, Teresa with uh, copies of Ignite the Sparkle, which was my case study, also my dissertation at the Institute of American Indian Arts uh, showing how I applied uh, the Zayas model in uh, my context at that time in those years uh, and how uh, I researched uh, the Zayas curriculum and adapted it you know, to the needs of indigenous students uh, that were attending the Institute at that time. Again, a continuation of you know, my, my uh, original introduction. Uh, so that's also available to you. you know, uh, some of those uh, uh, faculty that did take the uh, course last year did get some copies of that, but I'm sure your librarian uh, will also have some copies of it available uh, if you need to use that. And I really recommend that you read that book because uh, that gives uh, my story more completely than I can or that we have time to, but it's a very important story about uh, the curriculum process, the design process, the creation of curriculum within the context of uh, Epistemo indigenous epistemologies, indigenous um, uh, issues in social uh, social issues that uh, indigenous peoples face. Uh, it goes on to talk about uh, the learner, uh, the indigenous learner, and then some of the evolving theories that are coming forward, you know, from my colleagues in, indig in indigenous education related to uh, the evolving nature of indigenous education in the 21st century, which is our 
uh, indigenous methodologies research, indigenous theory research. So all of those are very important pieces, you know, that I bring forward uh, to some extent in Ignite the Sparkle, which is the book. Uh, I'll show you a copy of the, the cover a little bit later on. Uh, okay, so uh, that being said, uh, what I want to do, and I may need uh, some help you know, doing this, I need to uh, bring up my uh, Zayas model because I want to review the Zayas model as a whole and show you where society and culture fits within that rubric and talk a little bit more specifically about the Zayas model as a whole. So um, let's say, uh, Teresa or uh, Curtis, how do I bring up my uh, share screen? Do I have share screen available, I think? Let's see. Hi, Greg. You should have it um, at the bottom of your screen. There should be a green tab that says share screen. Okay, so uh, I'm, 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 I'm putting that up. Yes, and, and then from there you should be able to select which screen you would like to share. Okay, so let me go ahead and do that. And uh, let me see. So I'm, I'm, uh, I don't see my, uh, my board up as, uh, I don't see my screen. Generally, I, I always select that very first selection. I think it says white space or something. Is it whiteboard? Whiteboard, that might, that might work for you. All right. I, that's what works for me. There you go. It's, up, oh, okay. it's yeah, I think. All right, and then yeah. I can bring over So on my... this board, you'll be able to draw. All right, so I don't want to draw. I want to bring a whole, <laughs> oh, a whole okay. uh, PowerPoint. So, how so do, I... do you have your PowerPoint open on your uh, computer? Let, let me go ahead and do that real quick. Okay. So it's not white screen, huh, Josh? It's the other choice. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's a lot of choices. <laughs> I usually screen on the far left side. It's in blue on my computer. I'm back. <laughs> Yay, way. Teresa. For now. <laughs> For now. Okay, I'm bringing it up, so. Um... Yeah, so, so when your PowerPoint is uh, open on your computer. Yes. You can hit share screen again on okay. Zoom. And right. then that PowerPoint should now be an option on one of the screens that you could share. Okay, so let me try to do that. Um, so then it's a two-step process on there. You select the uh, PowerPoint, and then you're going to go ahead and hit the share, the blue share button at the lower right hand corner. And that'll share you that screen. Okay, so I don't want to lose everyone. So I'm uh, Okay, so it says share. Alright, so I'll do the share. Well, I press share, but it's not, um, it's not coming up. 
Oh, I have another idea. Uh, Josh, you could do uh, share screen on your computer. I think the, the model went. Is that the PowerPoint that you sent to everyone? Or you can uh, send Josh some. Uh, it's, it's another one more elaborate, but if you have that one, oh, okay. uh, just to save time, we can go ahead and do that. Yeah, or we could give it another minute, but that's the plan B. Um. So did you already send that particular PowerPoint to me on email? May, may I suggest something? Uh, why don't we take uh, our break now? Let's be back at 1030. That'll give us uh, enough time. It, that's, that a, that, that's a good idea, Octavia. Yeah. That's what okay. I was asking right. about. Okay. Okay. Yeah, let's take a presentation. And uh, the floor is yours, Greg. Uh, thank you, Octaviana. Um, well, as I was saying uh, before the break, uh, the ZS model uh, essentially is a model that uh, actually has a lot of flexibility and adaptability. Uh, it was developed by, by Robert Zayas uh, back in the mid-70s. And so um, uh, it uh, provided uh, a, a rubric for researching, designing, and really uh, reflecting on uh, how the whole designing process uh, of a curriculum unfolds with um, foundations and components that comprise it. And as I uh, said earlier, I, I added to this uh, a circle around the Zayas model that I call context, which actually comes from my work with uh, Edward T. Hall, who was uh, uh, kind of the father, considered the father of cross-cultural communication, and he really emphasized context, uh, low context, high context, cultural communication uh, as being a uh, integral consideration in the creation of any kind of teaching, learning uh, event. And so um, uh, all of you should have a copy of the Zayas model uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in the group of uh, PowerPoints and, and, and articles that uh, Teresa has sent you. But I'm just going to go over it just very briefly uh, and then move into another PowerPoint that I have that uh, looks at uh, Native Americans in science. Uh, as uh, as an important kind of contextual, again, focusing on context, contexting why uh, it's important to consider consider to consider curriculum in this way, curriculum design. So, as I say, there, a Zayas model for curriculum design. The Zayas model is an excellent tool for the development of culturally responsive science and math. Uh, now, as I said, I adapted this to it because um, Robert Zayas was actually a, uh, an Ed Foundations uh, researcher uh, with his specialty in theoretical curriculum design. And so uh, when you read his book, which has this big red apple on, on a white cover, I still remember it, uh, it it's very technical. It's like reading an engineering manual uh, with a lot of philosophical thought, uh, you know, underpinning it. Uh, so obviously I, uh, I have really uh, taken what I've needed from it and also just made it, I think, more user-friendly, so to speak, you know, because it is a pretty technical uh, 
book that he wrote on curriculum design. Uh, it's composed of four pairs of components and four foundations which are interrelated. And I, I think I have a diagram, um, or you, you may have a diagram of it somewhere there. Uh, it's really uh, four boxes on top of four boxes. That's basically how it looks. It's a rubric. Uh, the first uh, series of boxes are called the uh, components, or the top boxes are components, and the bottom boxes are foundations. And so a component sits on top of a foundation in such a way that uh, it uh, creates a, a kind of visual relationship between those two elements of the curriculum. Uh, it allows for a comprehensive and application of curriculum design in the school. So, uh, you know, most of the time when you see a curriculum in, uh, in a school, a formal curriculum, a written curriculum, uh, what you're going to see are aims, goals, and objectives. Uh, you'll see content, and uh, you'll see something about kinds of learning activities that are going to be used in the curriculum. And then you'll see something on evaluation. And generally, uh, that's what uh, comprises uh, many curriculums that you may have seen or may have uh, been introduced to. Uh, what the Zayas model does is that it introduces the deeper level of curriculum. Uh, so on top of aims, goals, and objectives, you have epistemology, which is how do you come to knowledge? You know, the cultural views, worldviews, understandings, assumptions, you know, that uh, underpin the whole curriculum. Uh, and then you have uh, society and culture, which we will focus on uh, throughout this workshop, which are some of the contextual social uh, issues that, uh, that uh, have some kind of influence or some kind of impact on the curriculum that you're designing. And then, of course, you have the nature of the learner, which is uh, uh, a third foundation. And on top of that sits learning activities. And then finally, you have uh, as a foundation theory on top of which sits um, a, uh, a, a view of evaluation. Uh, but uh, we'll go over that, you know, as, as time goes by. Um, why I use Zayas uh, is uh, I feel it, it's, it's a very important foundation, uh, very much what, we, what we're experiencing or going to experience through the workshop. Uh, it's a foundation for deep dialogue about what curriculum is, how, what the nature of design of curriculum is about. And some of the foundations and assumptions that we make that many times are missing from uh, the way that we actually look at curriculum or uh, that we don't really uh, notice that uh, all curriculums are based on assumptions that are being made uh, in the realm of epistemology, society, and culture about the nature of the learner. And uh, there's always a theory, there's always a theoretical base behind any kind, any kind of curriculum. So that's what the Zayas models provides. I think uh, it, it gives you that deeper, that deeper sense, that deeper understanding of a curriculum that you're designing or considering or looking at. So uh, the model presents the opportunity for entering into research and deep dialogue about the nature of curriculum. And for me, uh, I have to say that in, in, in creating curriculum at IIA, that's what made me as a teacher. I mean, I really do give credit. Um, I have to say, you know, as a college professor, I don't necessarily give 
that much credit to what I learned in college. I, I give credit to what I learned as a, as a classroom teacher doing and designing curriculum. And uh, I'll say that to this day, that, that, that it was because of the kinds of dialogues, discussions, and reflections that, that I, I, I went through in creating my own curriculums that uh, I think really deepened my understanding of what it is to be a teacher. Uh, so curriculum is the canvas of the teacher. It is the musical score. Uh, it's the screenplay. It's the script. Uh, it's the choreography. The content are the colors and the medium. And in this, we are all creators. We are all artists. So ultimately, you know, one can say that there's, um, there's a technical uh, representation or technical way of doing curriculum, and, and there is. Uh, but actually, underlying that is a, a, a creative process. And that's what you go through when you begin to address uh, curriculum in this way. Uh, because it has, uh, because you're designing, you're actually being a creator of curriculum. And so that's why I use these metaphors uh, that come from art, you know, that uh, essentially uh, what you're engaging in as a teacher is a creative process, first and foremost. The technicalities of the curriculum you know, come certainly in its presentation, you know, and, uh, and that's why you see many curriculums, you know, are, are very complex in their presentation and then also in their implementation in terms of what you have to do uh, in order to make the uh, curriculum real for students. And so that's why I say it's a, it's a very deep and important foundation for curriculum. So that first foundation that we covered uh, last, um, last year in, in our first, uh, uh, first workshop uh, focused on what is called epistemology, uh, which is really the guiding philosophy of a curriculum. Um, we make a lot of assumptions about epistemology. We say, well, you know, this, if you just focus on aims, goals, and objectives, content, uh, learning activities, and evaluation, you never get to the question, well, what is all of this based on? What are the assumptions that you're making? Cultural assumptions, assumptions about worldview. Uh, usually people just say, well, that's just the way it is. Well, that's actually not just the way it is. It actually comes from somewhere. And it's and every curriculum is based on assumptions. And so uh, that's what epistemology forces you to look at. It forces you to look at what you're basing, you know, and these include your own personal philosophical uh, notions, uh, your cultural notions, and also your professional uh, culture as well, you know. So all of those have epistemological foundations that generally don't get examined unless you're actually uh, looking to examine them. And so uh, this includes the kinds of embedded knowledge and symbol symbols and metaphors and orientations that are cultural in nature. Uh, how you come to know what you know is what I, I usually call uh, epistemology. So why is epistemology important in culturally relevant uh, uh, curriculum, culturally responsive curriculum in their design? Well, in the case uh, uh, of indigenous peoples, you have to have a sense of what are the guiding paradigms? What is the worldview? What are the kinds of understandings uh, generally for indigenous peoples 
you know, with regard to how we come to know what we know, how we come to our knowledge. And then it, it narrows down to the specific tribe. So each specific tribe, well, it, it, it addresses those, those general principles of indigenous education actually has its own unique tribal way of uh, addressing those kinds of understandings, those kinds of assumptions. And even, you could even reduce it to clans uh, within tribes and how each clan addresses those same kinds of notions, assumptions, you know, among the people. So that's why it's important if you're developing a culturally responsive curriculum to, uh, to, under, to have some general understanding of the epistemologies, the general assumptions, the worldview of uh, the indigenous group that you're working with. Because again, it says, as I say there, embedded knowledge. It's embedded knowledge, symbols, metaphors, orientations that are cultural in nature that are important in uh, symbolizing and understanding the epistemology uh, of an indigenous people. And so um, uh, epistemology is, is a field onto its own. It's, it's a, some would call it an esoteric you know, discipline but nonetheless, it's a very important uh, understanding and, and study, you know, to do within the context of, uh, of uh, curriculum design. Uh, for TOCC, you know, it, it's really uh, getting to know as much as you can about uh, autumn culture, autumn uh, ways of knowing. Um, which is embedded in the language, which is embedded in art, which is embedded in the ceremonies and prayers, uh, like we heard Camilla say this morning. Uh, it's embedded in all of the kinds of things that Indigenous people do that make them who they are, uh, that, that uh, those understandings. So we went through that last year. Uh, again, I think Teresa has a lot of material from last year's workshop that she can share, you know, and some of the discussions. And uh, I think that it was also videoed. So those of you that didn't get a chance to um, engage in last year's workshop, you know, have the opportunity to uh, maybe look at some of the, the uh, perspectives that, you know, came forward, you know, during that first time, that workshop. Um, on top of uh, the, um, that box of epistemology, uh, sits, uh, which epistemology is a foundation. On top of that foundation sits the component of aims, goals, and objectives. Uh, every curriculum has its aims, its goals, its objectives. Uh, and I generally just focus on aims. But of course, when you, when you flesh it out and you, you bring it into a specific uh, unit, you know, you have to also have uh, goals and objectives. But uh, uh, you know, for me, what I was attempting to do uh, at IIA and, and also at the University of New Mexico uh, as director of Native Studies was to integrate the cultural perspectives of the students within the curriculum in ways that I found uh, appropriate and, and available. Uh, it was to reinforce and support and strengthen students' skills in science and math. Uh, this was at IIA. When I was at the University of New Mexico, this included also research skills, uh, skills in uh, leadership, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
another aim was to validate, uh, to affirm, and to build upon the funds of knowledge that students bring with them. Everyone, you know, just as yourselves, everyone brings to what they do uh, a whole field of experience, a few, and, and knowledge and, and understandings and insights. And so uh, part of it was that I wanted to honor that in terms of what the students brought, you know, to uh, the course or to, to the curriculum as a whole. And then finally, you know, part of it, uh, as I said, that contextual piece is to develop ties to uh, the student's family and community. So for me, you know, the, the big picture uh, aims, you know, of my curriculum uh, was, was to create those kinds of opportunities, you know, and build from them. Um, I wanted to facilitate the sense of affective situatedness of what is learned in the lives and culture of the students, to empower the students to take ownership for their education, uh, to help, uh, in one of my books, Look to the Mountain, I talk about the metaphor of finding face, finding heart, and finding foundation through what they are learning. And, uh, and at the same time, you know, address uh, the state standards for science, the, the national standards for science and math, or uh, other standards, you know, if it's the social engineering or if it's uh, health-related fields, uh, you know, there are certain standards that uh, are, are things that uh, form frames of reference, you know, for curriculums. And so this is... Uh, uh, this was also included in my thinking about uh, AIMS goals and objectives. Uh, so here we come to the second foundation. Uh, I should say, if you if you just uh, if you're taking notes of this, you know, but but again, you should you should also uh, have a copy of this somewhere. But uh, uh, you know, just draw four boxes on top of four boxes. <laughs> And uh, in each box, you know, just label them accordingly. So in, in uh, the second box uh, of foundations, you have society and culture. And that's what we're going to, to really uh, concentrate uh, during this workshop, uh, concentrate on. So uh, it's basically addressing the question, who is the audience of the curriculum? You know, uh, so immediately the, the, uh, the, the student-centeredness, the the, the, the special context uh, within TOCC, uh, the context of the autumn communities, all of these become relevant, you know, in terms of addressing this question of audience. Who is the audience of the curriculum? Uh, the, 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 the social context, as I said, is very important because um, these are the social and cultural factors that affect the students, the teacher, the community, and the school in which the curriculum will be administered. So this really requires some research, you know, on the part of uh, the teachers uh, and all involved in this curriculum design process to uh, take a look at where they are, you know, because um, you're, uh, you, you as teachers, you as administrators, you as staff uh, are all audiences, you know, part of the audiences of this curriculum that unfolds, you know, at TOCC. And so, um, so that, that's an important consideration, and that's why this is a part of the ZS model. Uh, for me, I look at uh, Native society and communal needs, community needs and expectations, and also the nature of contemporary Native culture. 
uh, of course, we're going to get into the native societal and community needs in general, you know, but, uh, you know, issues of poverty, uh, issues of uh, health disparities, issues of access to education, uh, issues of language or language loss, uh, issues of uh, systemic uh, institutional racism uh, that is experienced by uh, Western education, particularly. One of the reasons why tribal colleges were formed in the first place was uh, because of those issues, uh, that particular issue. And so uh, when you take a look at, uh, at society, Native society, you see that there's a special uh, there are special kinds of needs. There are issues, there are challenges that need to be reflected on and need to be understood, need to be taken into consideration as you're creating uh, units, you know, within your curriculum. As, um, and, and again, that's, that's one of the means and, 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 and uh, means for understanding not only the students, but also the community in which they're situated and some of the access issues and and uh, issues that I've just talked about. Um, there's a contemporary Native culture, you know, uh, the, the tendency is to stereotype Native peoples of living in the past and living, uh, you know, these, uh, uh, as we've seen the many of the Hollywood movies or saw, you know, it, it's not really a, it's a, it's kind of a, a fictitious, stereotypical, um, historical memory of how uh, Native people have lived, uh, and usually not from the Native perspective uh, anyway. Uh, so uh, many artists and many Native storytellers, many Indigenous scholars are beginning to correct that historical record and, and, and look at it, you know, with, a, with a, a much clearer lens, you know, so that's one of the purposes of Native studies in the first place is to create that that uh, space, you know, where this kind of research can be done. Uh, but there is a contemporary Native culture uh, that needs to be considered. So you have a traditional culture, but that traditional culture is, um, is impacted in a variety of different kinds of ways. Uh, television, technology, education itself, uh, you know, economics, all of these things come into play in, in the context of um, uh, contemporary Native culture. So these three bullets, these three elements are generally what we're going to think about, you know, as we look at what is the nature of society and culture in the Zayas model. Uh, on top of the Zayas model sets content, okay, the foundation of content, and that's component two. Uh, when I was doing this work at IAIA, I was looking at Native perspectives of science and math. Uh, and uh, we'll look at that again um, in, in a few minutes when I, when I get into the society and science and Native Americans uh, piece of this. Uh, you know, teaching science, there's Western science and math principles that you're aware of. Uh, there are themes and topics based on science and math scope and sequence, you know, and the old days we called this scope and sequence. There's certain things that are introduced to students at certain times as they uh, are considered uh, uh, ready for it. And then of course there's interdisciplinary perspectives that can be achieved to teach that content through art, through social science, through literature, and through philosophy. 
So content is, is also, you know, in terms of specific units, in terms of, of uh, kinds of things you can teach about, kinds of things that form themes for uh, units, uh, can uh, come from these kinds of areas, but they can also come from society and culture, so from some of the challenges and issues that are faced by uh, students and also their communities. And so I'm hoping to uh, really emphasize that as well in, as you begin to think about what kinds of units can be generated from this kind of conversation, this kind of dialogue. Uh, themes can also come from the, the realm of epistemology, you know, which has in it the, the, the stories, which has in it the traditions, which has in it the, the language, you know, of, of a culture, of a tradition, of a group of people. So I'm saying that content can be drawn from a number of different kinds of sources in a Zayas model. And so I want you to really especially remember that, you know, as you think about later in the workshop, these kinds of ideas. So content. Um, and then uh, the next foundation is the learner. And I, that probably will be the next uh, workshop, if we do have the next workshop, uh, the learner. You know, who are your students? You know, how do they learn? And uh, of course, there's a whole body of research around that. Uh, but for me, what I found uh, when I worked and ha have worked at uh, uh, IIA and also um, Native Studies at uh, UNM is uh, they have they come with various uh, Native cultural personality configurations. Uh, I know Native people, you know. We can tell when someone is coming from somewhere else, you know, not only in terms of how they say, uh, how they use language, but, but just their gestures and uh, how they look and all those kinds of things. So there are actually native personality configurations. So, so there's certain configurations for being Pueblo or, you know, being Autumn or being Navajo or being Apache or, um, and so native people actually do notice this at a, at a, subliminal level, but you can actually break it down to personality configurations that are based on, you know, growing up in those cultures and in those traditions. Uh, feel sensitive learner is the old word for uh, being a learner that uh, is, is a group learner, uh, is sensitive to others within the group. Uh, Native people learn as, as, uh, as groups as much as they learned as individuals. As a matter of fact, learning individually uh, you know, as kind of a new emphasis in Native education that, that wasn't there necessarily in tribal education, although it was there. Uh, learning was always, you know, with reference to the community, with reference to the tribe and the group as a whole. Um, participatory, collaborative, experiential learning orientations uh, simply mean that, you know, that participation, uh, in learning by doing, learning by talking about what you're doing, learning by experiencing what you're, you're going to learn. All of these are, are um, uh, learner-centered uh, kinds of approaches that work well with Native students. Uh, affective learning methodologies mean uh, that there has to be meaning, there has to be some sort of personal connection, you know, uh, of, of what is being taught with the learners' lives, the lived lives of the learners. 
uh, for it to be meaningful and, 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 and also for it to stay. Uh, and then also, you know, influences of uh, the students around the students, you know, and that's the student pure psychology, which changes from generation to generation. So that's very obvious, you know, and uh, if you have a multi-generational class, you know that some things that work for one generation of students may not work so well for the older generations like myself. You know, so yeah, those are considerations about learner uh, that, uh, you know, become very important in this context. Um, that, that uh, the next foundation is learning theory. Uh, as I created my curriculums, uh, of course, these are jargons within education, jargon terms. Uh, you know, we use uh, Gardner's multiple intelligences. Uh, there are multiple suites of creative learning theories that evolved out of uh, teaching in the arts and uh, particularly uh, high low, low context communication comes from the work of Edward T. Hall. Uh, who did a lot of work around the anthropology of cross-cultural communications, which is what he is very well known for. Uh, visual philosophy comes from media, essentially, and how uh, the use of media, uh, you know, reflects certain aspects of visual philosophy. Uh, critical pedagogy, um, learning to read your world, you know, the work of Paulo Freire in uh, his work, uh, particularly among uh, um, uh, urban uh, Brazilian populations that are coming off, uh, off, uh, you know, from uh, rural areas, uh, many of who were indigenous people, uh, but nonetheless, critical pedagogy has uh, has lots of traction within the context of uh, indigenous education, and then indigenous education itself is an evolving theory. Um, uh, as Octaviana, uh, you know, may have mentioned, she, you know, she's working in indigenous education like many of us are. And, uh, you know, from our own perspective, we add a little bit to that theory, that evolving theory of how do you work with and how do you extend the learning of indigenous peoples in this time, in the contemporary time, um, in ways that allow us to prosper and to sustain. And uh, uh, science and math learning theories, uh, there are many of them. Uh, and so if you take a science or math uh, methodology course, uh, you'll be introduced to uh, numerous kinds of theories for teaching uh, math and, and science. Uh, inquiry method, for instance, is, is very big uh, in science today. Uh, we have the new generation science standards that have been um, introduced uh, over the last decade uh, that uh, many uh, states uh, are now following uh, in terms of their uh, education in science and math. Uh, also realize that in lots of schools, science, particularly science courses, uh, like art courses, have not been um, uh, have not been generally emphasized. You know, uh, uh, these days you're lucky to find a science uh, teacher that is a science teacher in a science classroom in a lot of our public schools. Uh, there is a shortage of science teachers. There's a shortage of math teachers. And so um, generally speaking in lots of schools, um, 
science is usually uh, one of the areas that students are tracked into. They don't necessarily just get it. Um, as, as they used to in my day as, as part of the, the whole course of study. Uh, so, uh, so you're also dealing with uh, some of the, the politics and culture that the students uh, are dealing with out of their secondary education uh, experiences um, uh, when you take a look at this. So that is uh, the learning theory and that sits on top of um, the component, which is uh, learning activities, you know, so based on those ideas and perspectives, you begin to develop different kinds of learning activities that address, uh, you know, the needs of the students. Uh, these include things like brain pattern methodologies, which is the newest and they're based on how the brain actually processes information. Um, and, and we're beginning to, to, and there are a number of different kinds of very innovative, very creative methodologies that have been developed by educators in this realm, in this field. Unfortunately, very few of them actually make it to the classroom because, um, because of the politics of uh, education in America today. Uh, experiential service learning has always been a, a foundation, very well received by indigenous populations. Community-based research is a research entity unto itself. Uh, but it is a kind of research that that um, that really engages native students, you know, especially as they're dealing with native uh, or dealing with community issues, community challenges. Uh, we have activities that deal with multi-sensory learning, where you're not just learning by reading or learning just by Zoom, that you're actually going out and experiencing, experimenting you know, uh, discussing, reflecting, and then uh, what I call high context learning, learning within the context of where events and where the challenges actually are happening. So um, a high context learning situation is, um, is a, a kind, kind of traditional form of learning that uh, Native people have a history with. Um, I'll give you an example of high context learning in the sense that um, if you go to a, a native um, <clears throat> ceremony of any type, I should say that today is the Santa Clara feast day. And unfortunately, um, we had to cancel our feast day because of the COVID uh, crisis. But, uh, you know, normally I would be uh, out there singing, uh, you know, with my family, dancing. Uh, you know, in my clan group, you know, uh, and enjoying and this day and of course all the preparation that goes into, you know, creating a, a ceremony and then uh, having a feast day and, and all of the people meeting, uh, the, the feasting, uh, the, the preparations for the ceremony, the actual ceremony, the actual things you do after the ceremony, all of that in a native context is a high context learning situation. So. So uh, uh, that's an example of how kids in earlier times learned uh, culture, language, what the people did, why it was important, uh, numerous kinds of things. And I think Camillus will probably talk about that as well you know, later on. But um, that's an example of high context learning. Um, Western science and particularly the way that Western science is taught in the classroom is a low context. Uh, way of learning, which means 
teacher in front of classroom, teacher is authority, students are receptors. Um, they do some things with the knowledge that they're, they're listening to, but it's primarily a knowledge transfer system that is uh, what we call very low context. Uh, it's uh, focusing on one thing at a time, so to speak. Um, whereas high context learning is are multiple kinds of learning inputs coming into the student simultaneously, and they're experiencing this whole gamut of learning uh, simultaneously sometimes. So that's an example of high context learning. And, um, and that is uh, very much uh, a traditional form of uh, native learning, you know, common to all tribes. So um, the next uh, uh, group, uh, I, I, I talked about uh, foundations of learning the, the uh, visual philosophy, critical uh, pedagogy. And the next one after that should be evaluation. And there we are, evaluation. So, um, uh, so there's a whole gamut of things that we've done, you know, in terms of indigenous evaluation uh, that Octaviano also participated in. And so, uh, but generally in, in, a, in a classroom college setting, uh, you have, of course, the specific science and math assessment, the teacher assessment, student assessment, administrative assessment, community assessment. Um, culturally-based assessment and indigenous evaluation modeling. Uh, probably those last three are what I'll probably concentrate on in terms of, uh, you know, my saying anything about evaluation. Um, but yet uh, the evaluation piece is a very important of the ZS, very important component of the ZS model, um, but can also be problematic. You know, and so uh, how you think and how you design your curriculum into being um, should also consider simultaneously how you're going to evaluate student learning, how you're going to evaluate uh, how students are actually processing, uh, you know, the content that you're delivering, you know, in your curriculum. Um, our criteria in culturally responsive uh, curriculum design is, 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 is it whatever you're teaching making sense in the lived lives of the students, in the lived lives of the students. So remember that, you know, as you think about this, this part of it. Okay, so that's the Zayas model. And I should say that um, if you can envision uh, around both the foundations and components of Zayas, if you can envision a, another circle, and that circle is the circle of context, and the context is very specific to what happens and how, and how it happens within TOCC. Uh, and those are just simply considerations that you think about, you know, as, as you're delivering, uh, as you're designing uh, the curriculum as a whole. So that's what I have so far on uh, this um, on this this particular piece. Uh, questions before we go on, uh, and I'll start the 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 other. I'll probably just have a chance to start the other PowerPoint. Not really take it too far, but uh, before lunch, but we can always finish it. Any other questions? Any comments? Perspectives about the ZS model as a whole? Just one or two questions. Any, anyone? 
I, I have a question. Yes. <laughs> um, with all of the new students that we are getting uh, this coming semester, and because we're teaching online, um, I have, like Curtis said, I have almost 90 new social work students uh, declaring yes. that they want to pursue social work. Um, probably 75 to 80% of my students are not from a Tohono O'odham tribe. Okay. They are, I mean, the furthest, furthest one is from Anchorage. Oh, yes. So I'm like, oh, I just, um, I, I'm really thinking about my approach and the importance of, of dialogue and difference as we're, as I'm trying to teach some of these helping concepts and social work. Any, yeah. Anything that you can add to this presentation in regards to the fact that now as we're really expanding with online learning, we have students from many different tribes. Uh, uh, very similar to what I had at IIA, uh, you know, as I said earlier in my introduction, you know, that's where I began all this work. And, you know, there I had students coming from almost every tribe in the United States, some from Canada, um, some from Mexico, and also some from, uh, you know, different uh, socioeconomic uh, situations, different places, rural as well as urban. And so uh, there, I couldn't develop a, um, a tribal-specific kind of, of ZS model, okay? I, I had to really consider the diversity of the students I had. And so I went back and I uh, looked at what are the, the principles uh, of indigenous education and what are the principles of native science that I can uh, uh, really bet that most tribes practice, but in their own way. And so I went back to a principles-based approach and uh, one of the um, assigned readings uh, is American, Indi American, Indi American Indian Epistemology, okay, uh, that uh, I, I did send Teresa uh, and it's part of your reading uh, dossier. So if you read that, you'll, you'll get a sense of these general principles, because that's what I, I, I write about in, in that, that particular article. And so if you read that, uh, Marcy, you'll be able to get a sense of the general principles uh -huh. you know, that, that I was working from. And, and uh, because, because you don't have uh, uh, autumn-specific students, you're, you're probably going to have to do that, you know, in terms of um, it's a more generalized approach, okay, but what happens is that each of the students, especially those that are indigenous students coming from different places, you know, they'll bring in their own cultural examples because uh, you're dealing with students that do have experience, you know, in their own traditions, many, and maybe many don't, you know, and so they're sitting there learning from other students as they present their stories, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Another question. Okay. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and start my uh, next uh, PowerPoint and see if I can bring that one up. Um, let's see.
And let's see, share screen. I'm gonna to have to make that transition again that I don't know how to do, so please, please bear with me. Uh, that's the old one. Let's see. Well, Greg is um, uh, getting ready to, to uh, share screen with the next uh, document. Um, if you have other, other questions that uh, we may be able to answer at a later time, you can um, type them in under the chat box. Uh, Joshua and uh, Teresa are mindful of what you're submitting uh, to all of us on the chat box. So uh, we will uh, try to uh, keep those uh, queries um, as we move along today so that we will try to answer your, um, uh, any concerns or questions you may have to any of us uh, during today, because we know we are on a, on this schedule and a, um, technology is technology. <laughs> And uh, you're certainly you're certainly correct in saying that. So <laughs> the other uh, thing, if you look at your chat box, Teresa has sent uh, all of us uh, some documents that you may want to open now and kind of review some of these uh, Zeiss model um, uh, Zeiss models uh, uh, PDFs, so that they might be helpful to to keep in your file for. Uh, for our faculty learning uh, community. Um, so Greg, do you need some help with the next, uh, maybe Josh uh, can, can, can go through the steps with you again. I, uh, yeah, I am trying to get it, uh, get it back up as we did last time, but I'm trying to remember what I did last here. Joshua, can you review those please with, uh, with Greg? Sure. So, uh, Greg, uh, make sure that your PowerPoint is open on your computer. Yes, it is. Uh, and then go, once you're back in Zoom, go back down to share screen. It's a green button. Yes. Now I just did that. Oh, okay. Now okay. I did it. All right. So now all of those windows should be up. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Let's see. So um, I made a spur of the moment decision because the uh, other presentation I was going to show you was longer, uh, but I'll show that when I, I have a, a little bit more time. It, it's a decision in that uh, just ba is based on time that we have. So I think I can get this done quicker than the other one. Uh, the other one is really looking at uh, some of the the issues that Native students have uh, in engaging science-related fields and why it's so important for Native peoples as a whole to, to really begin to engage science uh, and have access to science in ways that are important. So um, I'll bring that up uh, after the break and after we get into this, but I think this will go directly to um, some of, uh, probably some of the questions that you are having 
you know, with regard to, well, how do we make a bridge between Western knowledge and uh, native knowledge? And so this presentation is building bridges between native knowledge and Western science. And this comes uh, not only from my work, but also from the work of uh, two colleagues of mine in Canada, uh, Glenn, Glenn Aikenhead and Herman Mitchell. I'm, I'm co-writing a book with Herman, um, probably starting uh, in December, uh, you know, around these, these kinds of concerns and perspectives. But I want to present it to you, you know, because I think it's relevant and appropriate, and I can do it in about 10 minutes. So. Um, so one of the first things is uh, in terms of this this idea of building bridges between indigenous knowledge is is uh, that there are two different kinds of forms of indigenous knowledge that um, uh, there's the traditional and then there's there's the kinds of knowledge that is is both traditional is both cultural is social and also uh, disciplinary oriented and so uh, if you're uh, if you're in science um, and you're a native person you, you know that you you sort of ha live in several worlds at the same time and uh, I'm sure that your students are also experiencing the same phenomena you know where uh, when they're doing science they're doing science and they're doing it and trying to understand how to do it from a Western viewpoint when they're home and let's say participating in a ceremony, you know, they're focused on what needs to be done in that context. And so um, what, uh, what, what becomes important is the ability of native students to be able to carry an understanding and perspective that they have within them into the world of science and then to have science really begin to 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 understand and to have a sense for and a sensitivity for you know the, what the students are bringing with them so uh it, it, this involves developing practical methods for interpreting i left the word native uh, knowledge so i left the word knowledge out of this but interpreting native knowledge you know so there are practical uh, ways, you know, bringing in, I guess, speakers, bringing in people that that have an understanding of uh, a principle or story to tell. Uh, Camillus, you know, is doing all of this already at TOCC. Um, and, and also understanding um, the student having some sort of clear understanding of what kind of knowledge is important in the Western science classroom. And, and how to begin to uh, dissect or engage that knowledge. And then re recognizing that, um, you know, in the bigger picture, why science, I think, has to begin to do this is that uh, there is an international resurgence of indigenous culture, sovereignty, and human rights. So this, this, this bridging, cultural bridging, that happens in the classroom and happens in, in education as a whole. Yeah, it, it has uh, international, uh, an international scope. So what uh, some teacher questions about native knowledge includes, uh, what is this new content? Uh, how does it have, uh, what, what does it have in common with science? Uh, what are the important differences? Uh, how can the teacher prepare? Uh, what kind of professional development and, and support is needed? So these are some of the 
questions that come up when you pose this issue of bridging uh, in the context of um, native um, education. Uh, this is new content. Uh, it's evolving both on the indigenous side and it's also evolving, evolving uh, in the Western science side of it. Um, Western science is more open to indigenous knowledge than it has been in the past. It's not, it's not uh, anywhere near what it should be, but it's, it's opening up uh, because of the environment, the challenges of environmental uh, crisis of climate change and uh, all the social uh, economic implications of that. Um, what does it have in common with Western science, uh, native, native knowledge? Well, native knowledge is human knowledge. It's knowledge of places, it's knowledge of plants, of animals, of weather systems uh, that have sustained a people in a place for a period of time through generations. And so it's important, you know, as, as uh, a baseline, baseline knowledge uh, to understand, you know, the history of places. Uh, the important difference is, is that it's coming from a different worldview. Indigenous knowledge really emphasizes uh, relationality. How am I, ask the question, how am I related to this? How am I related to each, to, 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 to my clan members? How am I related to my community? How am I related to uh, the plants and to the animals and to the places in which we live? How am I related to the waters? Uh, all of these are relational questions. And it's the relational questions that guided native science in the past. And I have to say that these are the kinds of questions that have to guide uh, Western science now and into the future. And I won't get into that whole business, but uh, it's, a major, it's a major point. Uh, and then how can we prepare teachers, you know, to begin to, um, to address this? Well, one way, you know, we've, we've done uh, some work in is how to uh, engage uh, teachers in native studies, native studies and particularly native science studies. And then what kind of professional development and support is needed? Well, you're, you're engaged in one of those <laughs> attempts right now, you know, in terms of how to begin to approach this kind of uh, knowledge transfer. Um, reasons for including indigenous knowledge. Uh, first of all, there's the equity and social justice, which you now know has come front and center, you know, with regard to national issues, uh, the issues of, of inclusion of women and uh, minority groups, uh, people of color. So Native people are underrepresented in science and technology fields, and this has been an ongoing phenomenon. This is actually what my other talk will be about uh, after, you know, after we have a chance to do that. So uh, helping teachers understand how they may contribute to marginalization of Native students in the classroom is important. This is the reason why I, I, I uh, you know, provided Teresa with a dossier of uh, articles that uh, actually address, you know, uh, exactly this question. Uh, and it's only by understanding how the problem manifests uh, that you may change that scenario by indigenous knowledge to increase native student interest and participation. So that's why that reading, those readings I emphasized in, in my introduction uh, are very important. Uh, another reason is helping teachers. Uh, th so this is not an either or native versus Western science. 
historically all things native have been marginalized. Uh, but it is a matter now of how both ways of knowing can enrich our understanding, how they can be complementary, how they can coexist. For science teachers, um, this is not, uh, you're not being asked to embrace indigenous over Western, but to acknowledge and respect uh, indigenous ways of knowing nature. And particularly if you're working in a tribal college to incorporate that, that understanding, that sensitivity into how you teach as well as what you teach and how you design curriculum. So uh, what we're really looking at, you know, uh, in, this, uh, in this process of developing, designing a curriculum for TOCC is uh, what we call enhanced science curriculum. Uh, it's curriculum, uh, creating curriculum that support both native and non, and, uh, or native and Western science literacy uh, and, and move science education uh, econo economically in economically positive ways for students in society. Uh, we, we, there's a lot of research that shows that when students uh, understand why science learning is important to what they want to do in, the, in terms of careers and how they can serve their community, that they're uh, intrinsically motivated, you know, to, to begin to uh, address some of their, their issues, you know, and the challenges that they have for learning that's that, that area of science. And so we, we know that uh, this does work. Um, knowing nature literacy. Uh, this is a kind of literacy that indigenous peoples, you know, traditionally had. It's, it's embedded in traditional environmental knowledge, ecological knowledge. Um, it's a kind of literacy of knowing your place, knowing where you live, knowing the people, knowing the place, knowing the plants, knowing the animals, knowing the soils, knowing the weather, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this is something that we feel is important for everyone, uh, a broadening of science to engage a broader audience and an enhanced understanding of both forms of knowledge by the public. Uh, we come to the issues of sustainability. Uh, if you really study native science, you find that it, uh, it is a cultural sustainability science, you know, that you're studying. It's very culturally specific, it's specific to places. And so um, this is why some scientists want to expand the content of Euroscience to encompass indigenous knowledge, to enhance the potential of science to our sustainable collective future. This is because sustainability is inherent to indigenous knowledge, but not necessarily inherent to uh, Eurocentric science. This is a big one because um, uh, this forms the argument for why indigenous ways of knowing become important, uh, not only for indigenous peoples themselves to know, uh, but also for other, other non-indigenous peoples to be, uh, to be cognizant of. So the whole notion of sustainability uh, becomes real apparent, you know, when you study indigenous uh, knowledge. For indigenous people, it's also a question of sovereignty and survival, uh, healing and rebuilding indigenous communities, nations, producing more indigenous science and technology professionals, producing what we call two-way science and techno professionals, creating what, it, what we call indigenous cultural capital. So from the indigenous part of the equation, this is why this is important for us as indigenous peoples, as, as nations and communities. 
is because, you know, uh, projecting into the future, which is going to be more extremely challenging than any of us can imagine, that, uh, that we need to engage science in ways that is productive for us and addresses these kinds of very important challenges that we face uh, today and into the future. So uh, again, that's a part of that. Um, part of it is beginning to really understand the, the history of uh, your science itself. And this is coming from you know, studies in Canada that in 1867, the British Association of Advancement for Science, BAAS, created the first science curriculum, actually predicated on an upper uh, elite class of students, pre-professional screening for university science programs, an emphasis on mental tra training and abstract knowledge over practical know-how. And this has been the norm ever since. So, uh, you know, before, uh, before this time, science was called natural philosophy. And uh, that allowed for lots of flexibility in the ways in which you could think about and uh, look at and practice science. But then it became uh, institutionally legitimized basically as a education for the elite not the education for the masses. Uh, if you really study how science education has evolved over these many years since 1867, you see that indeed very, very little has changed. Um, I'll get to that, into that more in, in the other presentation I was talking about. And in terms of your scientists, who are they? Again, study out of Canada, out of from my colleagues, uh, Glenn Aikenhead primarily. Uh, they are a community of people who contribute collectively to the evolution of Western science and its knowledge system. They keep in touch with each other's work in a cooperative but more often competitive dance, being cautious of revealing too much of their own work while mining the work of others for advantage. It is an invisible college. Um, uh, those of you that are scientists, I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but that's what um, my colleague in Canada says. What do scientists do? They are trained by academic science departments at universities, employed by corporations, government agencies, health centers, universities, and private foundations. They work on R&D projects, research and design projects, for their institutions and carry out investigations to develop and apply knowledge that benefit those institutions. Uh, one of the articles, and I'll, I'll finish up with this one, one of the articles that, um, well, actually the last articles that I sent to Teresa was by my uh, student, uh, her name is Linda Tello. She was at the University of, uh, or rather uh, Arizona State University. And she did uh, a comprehensive literature review of um, uh, primarily why there were so few native uh, or indigenous students and students of color and also women in science related fields. You know, even after we've, we've created so many different kinds of opportunities and huge amounts of money, billions of dollars have been pumped into um, 
you know, uh, recruitment and retainment of Native students or students of color in science. Um, and so she found that, uh, you know, most, uh, many Native students, when it came to this, what scientists actually do, didn't want to do this. Uh, they wanted to come back to their communities and work with their community and work on issues and challenges within their community. And so immediately there's conflict, you see, between the indigenous student and what the whole enterprise of a university, um, a university system of science is about. And so uh, those are the kinds of questions that you begin to address as you think about the, the social and cultural viewpoints and perspectives uh, that are part of the Zayas model. John Zinn in his book, Real Science, contends that post-academic science has replaced pure science in the production of new knowledge. Increasing globalization together with an awareness of the need for sustainability accelerated the merging of industrial and academic science into post-academic science, largely driven by industrial and government needs. And so we're, these are studies that reflect some of these kinds of considerations. So, um, I leave you that, you know, before uh, the next presentation uh, for, for to mull on, you know, chew on it. Uh, because um, there are lots of reasons external to the needs that you have at TOCC for, for why this is an important initiative within all tribal colleges, because I'm also working with AHAC uh, along, these, uh, along these lines of increasing um, indigenous uh, participation in science-related fields. So I'm, I'm ready to turn it over, Octaviana, you know, uh, to, to, your, to your moderation. Thank you, Greg. Well, I hope uh, all of you have been looking at the chat box because Teresa has sent out um, uh, material that might be, of, uh, might be very helpful to, to part of the uh, um, professional development experience uh, for today and, and going forward. Are there any quick questions for Greg before uh, we have Camillus uh, come to, to our sharing um, Zoom? Okay, well, Camillus, um, could you join, uh, join us uh, in presenting um, the traditional perspectives of autumn education? Sure. Um, we've talked a lot about already some of the stuff that, um, that I'm mentioning and it's just, it's just kind of uh, easy to see when, uh, and I think that because we're talking about the community college, we have to include some of the stuff from, because we're a tribal college and we are talking about the community college. Um, Verlin Jose um, once said that we are a, um, what did he call it? A, um, what did you say? Uh, we are elite. Uh, because we have something to offer that nobody else does. 
So we, we're that kind of college. And what do we offer is our autumn culture, which nobody else in the world offers that in any institution except for ours. So we have to bring in that, that part. But you have to wonder about what is, um, what is autumn? What, what, what do we mean when we say that? And so again, you kind of look back and um, think about what, what is here, what was here, you know, 700 years ago before when there was just autumn here. Um, in the old autumn way of describing it is the old um, idea of the dome sky where there's this dome sitting over us and we go outside and you know there's if you keep walking that way you're going to end you're going to hit the ed, edge of the world you know then then this is a whole other world sitting up here and so that's how autumn used to believe and they say wherever the cacti grows and the shurge grows that's all autumn uh, area uh, traditional autumn area so that's how, how people understood it a long time ago but I think that one of the things that we do, that people do, is you sometimes you take all of autumn knowledge and all autumn philosophy and you combine it to one and you say, this is what autumn is, where really it's a whole different thing when you go inside under the dome sky because you see there's many different dialects and many different communities and each one of those communities has their own way of interpreting things. Uh, we used to have the rain feast, um, the white feast in different places and they sing all the songs the same, but once in a while you get to a song and there's a different kind of a line or a different word or a different verse, uh, but it's the same song. And so we used to do that and my grandfather, you know, going to big field and he would say, that's how they do it over there. They don't say it like we do. So, but it's the same culture. Um, and so in, in that in that way, we just knew that there was different understandings of autumn and from the different communities. So that's something that I think that teachers need to remember when they come in. Uh, I was asked some questions uh, from the some, some of the teachers and it, and after a while, I was asking uh, why why they need to know this stuff, and and the the response was because we don't want to offend anybody. And then I asked the students, and the students said the same thing. Uh, back then, it was the basketball players. They all came. We don't want to offend anybody. We, wanna, we don't want to do anything to disrupt the spirits. You know, we don't want to hurt. You know, we don't want to get any curses thrown at us or whatever. So that was their reason. But that was the way they understood autumn or Native America. So when they come here and then you find out that there is a way that that we interpret it and the way that we use it and the things that we say um, uh, according to, you know, how we learned it, then of course, you know, it's going to be based on where we're from. So uh, I think that was one of the reasons that people asked each other, you know, when, where are you from? And as soon as somebody says San Miguel, oh, okay, I know now they don't do that like we do it. They do it this way. And so, because it, everybody just kind of knew what Guwa does different to what Hikiwan does. And so inside this dome sky, under this dome sky, is all these different ways of, of being autumn. But there are a lot of general things, um, that even like I said, there's specifics. So that's something that people need to know. Um, but what makes an autumn, 
what what makes us autumn is just here living under this dome sky with this this foliage this these kind of trees this these uh plants that grow here the animals that live here the the type of ground the type of dirt that that we have uh it makes us who we are it makes our skin color this color um it, because we've lived here for all those generations and so eating that food you know makes makes our bodies react to nature and having no water or very little water out here in the desert uh makes our bodies respond to that you know um when we were kids we used to go play in the in the bushes and we never took water out there i don't remember ever taking water we'd leave like eight o'clock in the morning and come back at five in the afternoon and I don't remember taking water out there. We played out there. We played war games, whatever else, you know. And uh, But that was just, I think, because we didn't think about it or we were just built like that. But nowadays, you know, we go, we leave. First thing to think about is water. And, you know, the kids don't do it like, like we did a long time ago. So, again, based on that, that uh, hundreds of years of, you know, living this way, kind of makes us attuned to what what happens out there um, and then just within like 50 years the culture changes and um, the the new stuff comes in and all of a sudden we're eating different foods and we're not doing what we used to do a long time ago so our body's going to respond to you know like eating walmart food or you know eating that kind of stuff because after a few years of eating that over and over, the body changes. Um, they, I saw a movie that, uh, a documentary that talked about people, how the, the seat of the human was in Africa and how everybody had dark skin long, long time ago. And the, the question was, well, how did these people get light skin, you know? So the study there had said, well, they moved, they started following the herd or whatever and moved north. And when they started eating that vegetation, that changed their skin tone and living in a different environment, it changed their skin tone. So that's why we have those people. And then, you know, all these other different people around the world. And so when you look at that, and the, then again, the, the stuff that we eat, um, because we're responding to the desert, we're responding to that kind of food. That's what makes autumn. Now you you do things according to your language, what you talk about. You're doing things because you're responding to the environment, and and you keep you know doing that. And for years, years a, a culture grows out of that. When we were young, we were told not to talk to the girls. Don't talk to the girls and boys don't talk to the girls and girls don't talk to the boys. So we just did that, you know. Then we grew into uh, junior high when we were told that we had to and we had classes in school, but that all changed. And so now, you know, it, people don't even remember that. You know, sometimes they say that a long time ago, we used to used to not talk to the girls. And, um, but that was just for a little part of our lives and then the things changed. So how did that happen or why did that happen? Is because in the myth that is, is pronounced in the myth and the cultural myth that um, that girls are different from boys and it's all regarding the menstruation cycle, which again is science and again is natural 
because it follows the moon the moon pattern. So there's the moon, the, the males and the females. Um, the, op, uh, the how do you say that they're walking together, but they're walking side by side. But there's kind of like a line in between where they they can't really talk a long time ago. And you take that away, and then you know everything starts to change. So again, um, it's built on on what is natural out here, and then you come in and bring this whole new way of living, this whole new society, this whole new uh, how do you say interpretation of what life is. Take away the dome sky theory, and then now it's a globe, you know, flying through outer space and it's spinning. And you have to think that way, then you lose a lot of those traditions because you don't you don't uh, think that way. A long time ago, um, when a person built a house and they lived in there, and if a, if somebody died in the house, they just burned the house down. Because it was easy. You go out there, the whole community comes, and you go out there and you chop your um, mesquite and your you know your sugar, and you bring it all together and you just build a whole new house. That was easy back then. You can't do that nowadays with a hut home or you know a brick home. It, it costs money now. But a long time ago, it was just people getting together and and doing that. So that whole idea of the death, um, uh, the way that we responded to death, because we the belief was that the spirit was going to return to where it knows the best, where where it has lived all these you know years. So it's going to return to your home, and they didn't want the spirit coming to bother you, so they burned the house down. And so the spirit comes from, from the dead world to the house and they see the ashes and they know that they've passed away and they move back, they move on to the dead world. Nowadays, we can't do that. So how did the medicine man respond to that now? Is that if a dead person or the spirit is bothering you, you go get ashes from the fire or you smoke a cigarette and you get those ashes and you spill it around so when the spirit comes and they see the ashes, then to them that's a sign, oh, okay, I'm not here anymore, and they go back. So again, it adapts to what was a long time ago because you don't just you don't do that stuff anymore. So all those, again, are responses to what, what's happening in the world. The weather, um, the stars that are out there, before we had these kind of houses and these buildings, People used to sleep outside and watch the stars, so they knew what what constellations were happening. And when it was time to plant, when a certain set of stars was in the east and the sun was coming up, that told you when to plant, or when it was going to get cold, or you know when you're going to do your harvest, or you know all that stuff. That the, the stars told you that, and um, and the, that whole myth is also in the Hawk Yaga, the culture myth. Um, back then, autumn didn't didn't um, like watching the um, the meteors. That's a bad bad luck to autumn way back then because that the meteors were a sign of uh, bad things to come. But nowadays, kids go out and they watch the meteor showers, and the teachers are you know, oh that was so beautiful, all that stuff. You wish on the star when it goes by, but a long time ago that was a no no. So it, things changed like that. But again, uh, when you look at it, it, we're not sleeping the same way we used to a long time ago. And now we have calendars and we have time clocks. Whereas before, that, that was our calendar, our time clock. Um, so we, we, we didn't do that. Now we teach science and you know, so now we have to do that. 
So again, it's responding to to how we um, we see, saw nature back then because we lived in it, and then now we, we don't do that as much. But what is it that we can keep that um, will help us? Again, it's, it's the underlying part. There are many traditional families that still believe and still say things, you know, um, according to what all of them uh, people do. Um, it's those families that speak the language that fluent in the language that are, um, I think are probably more closer to what used to be long before because it comes through the, 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 the speech, how you say stuff in a language, how you uh, explain things. In autumn, there's many things that you can't say, so we just don't say them. Uh, it's just known that it's, you know, that it's out there and that's something that we, we don't really need to talk about. But yet, nowadays, we're being forced to, so we have to figure out a way how to say those things in autumn um, and try to, you know, make it, um, again, to understand what's going on in the world. Uh, coronavirus, many people have explained it in different ways, and I think people are catching on uh, that even even though that somebody understands it one way, there's many other ways to explain it. And so now it's just, you know, people understand it or no, but when it first came out and people were trying to explain it, it was like they were taking the English words and trying to change the English words to all of them explaining it. But as time went on and people started to see the behavior of the virus and started talking about it, then the word started to form and then it came out and now it's a little bit easier to understand. So words are important. Um, somebody asked me about math. Uh, how do you in, in put in the autumn uh, culture? How do you put in the autumn uh, um, way of uh, looking at that things uh, like with, with the subjects of math, but it's just a counting system. But if you're traditional enough to know that there's a system, an autumn system that counts by force, um, everything one, two, three, four, and then you stop a lot of ceremonies. They do one, two, three, four, and then stop. And four is like the complete number. And when you study the, what they're called, kik is the number for four, that's the sacred number. And so Humoko Aikik, Hutas Gikik. Gikik is four two times. Gikik. Um, so again, when you when you think about things like that, you think, okay, there's a reason that that that's why Gikik uh, becomes Gikik, because uh, when you do autumn plurals, you do uh, you you um, repeat the first uh, sound. So gigik becomes gigik when it's eight, because there's two eights, and then after that is twelve, and you know all that, and then in our games that we play, they call it kins now, but a long time ago it was kamihutas. That was the name of the game. Fifteen, kins is actually a Spanish word that came from quince in Spanish. So it's just the same game, but it's just that the name changed because that became popular. Um, but to, to also to, if you want to irk your students and talk about math, and, then ask them, um, what, how do you say a hundred in autumn? How do you say a thousand in autumn? How do you say a million in autumn? 
and they will tell you how to say it if they know. Siat is in autumn is a hundred. Mir is a thousand, but and millón is a million. But those are Spanish words because ciento is a hundred in Spanish. Uh, mil is a, a thousand in Spanish and millón is a million in Spanish, which tells me that a long time ago, we didn't have a word for a hundred. So it's like the numbering system only went to 99. We didn't count farther than 99 or else there would have been a word. But we didn't have a word until they came and taught us one. So stuff like that, that I think that when you think, why, why did not we, we did not have a word for, for a hundred or a thousand. We didn't need to count that, that high. There's actually some tribes in, in South, South America, I think, that only have the number one and two. They only count to that, that those two numbers. They don't have any other numbers. They're just, it's a binary system, you know. The whole thing is just, and then the question was, why don't you have three, four, five, I mean, you have 10 fingers. Why can't you do that? So we don't need it. So I'm just thinking that's probably why. I really don't know. But I know that I've been looking for a word that is a real autumn original Aboriginal word that for that would say a hundred and, and there's no word. We just use the Spanish word. So like that, um, when you introduce stuff like that in mathematics and with, with young people, especially in class, it teaches them that, that they're separate or that there is something to who they are at an identity, even though compared to something that that is being brought in. So you start to separate the two and the identity shows up a little bit more, you know, like this is who who I am, you know, my 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 culture. So and like I said, all the 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 um, plants that we have here, they all have names because they're Aboriginal to here. But there is some some things that um, that are forgotten and changed that we don't use anymore. The word for pig, the people say coach, you know, coach, that's the word for pig, but that's a Spanish word. What did we call a pig way, way long before? It's because they were here before the Spanish were here, Avelinas were here, and, and studying and studying and finding out that there is a word that they, people don't use anymore. And that's, that's ikor. That's ikor. That's how we used to say pig a long time ago. People, for whatever reason, I think when the Spanish influence came in, that word kind of took over, and we you know we kind of forgot tasicor, and now we call it ecology, which is really you know. So when you start that, and, and students start to re, re, uh, to hear that and start to use that word, I've had a lot of students that I've taught that to um, long before, and now I hear them talking like that in the community and teaching other people well, that's what it means you know that and so again it is identity it's just just in the language uh, so we all have all these words for all these plants but there are plants that are here that we didn't have a long time ago it were brought in from from the other side of the water and 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 are planted here and they've grown they've flourished here and but uh, students uh, or people need to know that those who are not here originally a long time ago that uh, like the saltbrush we have a legend it, it's a legend that talks about the saltbrush 
Mashuke, we have a legend that talks about the creosote, but there are some plants that are here that is not in the legends. Then you know, so how, how did we get those? Then you move towards you know what what is again what is art and what is Aboriginal to this place. I'm not saying don't teach about those things. Uh, what I'm saying is that you need to identify those things that are Aboriginal to the land and because they are a part of who we are. Um, and uh, some of the food that we eat is not Aboriginal to here. And some, a lot of people know that, but there may be ingredients of those that are Aboriginal to here. The salt pilgrimage, when they used to do the salt pilgrimage a long time ago, there was a reason for that. And there's a myth about that. But now you can just go to Walmart or fries or bashes and pick up salt and bring it, bring it home and use it. Whereas the understanding, because you had to go all the way, or the men had to go all the way to the ocean to get the salt and bring it back. There, there's a whole different uh, way of looking at that because it was precious. It was where you could overuse it. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't make fun of it, whatever. But now the whole attitude has changed. Now you can just get salt and, you know, and even, you know, waste it if you, if you need it to. But um, a long time ago, it was a whole different understanding about that, you know, the ingredient, uh, the flour, all that stuff that comes in. Uh, you just need to identify again in science, you know, what is Aboriginal here. And, and as you're doing that, you're actually incorporating what is autumn knowledge, you know, again, because there's myth. Um, a lot of people don't like to hear the myth in the, the wintertime, I mean, the summertime. Um, I, I don't mind telling them, uh, which I do, and I have a website that has those those stories in there. You can go get them, but during this other time, when winter time, when it starts getting cold, we start telling those stories, and that's where they come in. The, the, and, and when you listen to that, it's more about the land and, and what happened on the land, the behavior of the land, the behavior of the animals. That's what makes our um, autumn behave and respond and um, live life according to to uh, what was given to us a long time ago. So um, in that way, autumn is, is um, uh, to explain uh, what autumn is, it's just you need to just study the environment and study the stories and the language and, and everything will come from there. So but there are a lot of autumn nowadays that live like far away, like Texas and you know, Los Angeles, away away from the under the dome sky. They live far away because of uh, job opportunities, schooling, whatever the reason might be to go go far away. But even that little piece right there, just talking um, in the olden days, a long time ago, when we were young, we were taught that. Um, you never leave your grandparents' graves behind. You always, somebody always has to stay and watch the graves and take care of the graves and honor the graves when it's time. So that's something that's kind of specific to autumn. So when we were young, and somebody would say that they went and lived in Texas, there was a guy who came from, uh, who came, was an autumn guy, but he, um, he kind of looked Mexican. And he said that for like, 10 years he lived in Texas. And it was weird, it was like, why did you leave, you know? 
because we understood that you don't ever leave your grandparents' graves behind. And uh, why did you leave them here and go do your thing? And then so his thing was, oh, my brothers are here and my sisters. Oh, okay, yeah, I understand that now. Uh, so somebody was watching them. But uh, a lot of times, because I have connection to the land, uh, it's because of those burials that we have the connection to that land. So a lot, a lot of autumn go and, and you know, uh, they live someplace else and come back because this is always going to be home. This is always going to be uh, the place where, where you, um, you, you, you uh, grew up or you know best. Um, but again, nothing wrong with uh, going away and doing other stuff someplace. But if you're autumn, then you're, there's a connection to the land and uh, you don't have to be here to be here to be autumn. But uh, the, it's uh, autumn is not just a matter of your skin color or hair color, or whatever. It's a way of life that is based on a re response to what the desert environment is gifting to us. So we, whatever we get from there is how, how we respond to it is, is our gift back to life, you know. And so again, somebody goes and lives in uh, Washington State, whatever autumn, they're gonna go and do that, then that's that's okay. Uh, but they're responding to that environment, not to this environment. So it's kind of like that in the, how do you say, the um, the spiritual way. Uh, people that, that go far away a lot of times ask for uh, children that, you know, when they need to receive the clay, for somebody to give them the clay, because it's a ceremony that all of them are supposed to go through. But there are others who go away who do not do that. And there's nothing wrong with that, I guess. But in the olden days, that was something because it connected you to the land. It was something that you had to do or else your family was going to suffer. So little things like that, again, as a response to this land, this land base, um, what we know as as, uh, as autumn. Uh, so it's not just, you know, being autumn it's it's by uh working this land and and knowing and i and verlin's going to do his presentation again a lot uh, when you listen to the presentations and uh, this afternoon the other people it's going to be based on this land you know we get our, our you know we see what's happening out there in uh, san carlos or you know wyoming or whatever and we learn that but then we have to apply it here on this land and a lot of it's not going to work because it's in a whole different environment but the, what does work here teaches us to, to, you know, to go better. I define technology as how fast you can get a piece of information from here to like 100 miles away. A long time ago, people had to run or walk. That took a long time, days, you know, even months or weeks. And then you had the horses come around and the, the train, the wagon trains, and then it was a little bit faster. And then you had the vehicles, then you a little bit faster, and then you had the highways changed and all that, and you get it faster. And then all of a sudden, here comes the telephone, telegraph, the information goes faster. And then now we're doing Zoom. People sitting way over, um, where is, um, uh, Hamadou, Hamadou, he's way over there, almost the other side of the world, but he's, um, he's listening to us. So technology moving that fast, again, uh, so 
as technology comes into an environment, it affects it and how it affects it, it changes a lot of what used to be the culture and makes a whole new culture. So it's good to go back because again, the stuff that, that the way we think is ingrained in who we are, the way we respond, but yet it's being talked in a kind of a different language. And I think what that's one of the reasons students are having a hard time with the technology is because we're using a language that they're not used to. Um, I don't know if you've heard the kids talk, uh, just listen, it's a whole different language, kind of like we had when we were teenagers. Our parents couldn't understand us, our grandparents, and now we can't understand them. But again, it's just it's just the communication thing, you know. So autumn continues to grow. Um, and like I said, in your, in your uh, teaching your classes, it's just taking a little piece of information about something um, like autumn uh, philosophy or autumn and throwing it in once in a while. And I think the students will connect to that and will re respond uh, better towards what, what you're trying to teach them rather than just teaching them this way over here and not ever mentioning anything about this, uh, this culture. You know? You know, because they're supposed to know, but a lot of them don't know. And then when you ask them about something, they're going to tell you what they know from their area. But somebody else will respond to how they do stuff. Um, big example is the, the uh, Fiesta de los Muertos that Autumn have now uh, learned to do. When you ask students, how do you celebrate that? All different communities celebrate it all different. They're not all the same. But when you read about it in a newspaper article or when you read about it in a book, you assume that everybody does the same thing. But when they start talking about it, it you start to see that it, it's different. So in the same way, throwing out something, uh, whatever it is, uh, um, how do you use uh, creosote, that kind of stuff, or how do you, you know, uh, celebrate this, people are going to chime in. And just by mentioning that, um, you're not talking about what you're teaching, but you're talking about something that they can relate to and that they have a response to. And then when you go back to talking about what you're wanting to talk about, it's easier for them because now they've, they, they have made a connection. And I think that's what Greg is talking about. Um, it's just that, that knowledge, that, that understanding that, you know, I have a place in this conversation, even though I'm from way over there. Um, or maybe you don't understand so well, but have a place because now, you know, I, they can hear my voice. So I think like like that, um, just from taking what um, everybody's saying, and and I like to ask people where they're from, you know, I ask and some people will say, oh, I'm just American, you know, I don't know, but yeah, but you came from someplace. You have roots, you know, is it in France or is it in Germany? Or I want to know that. How come? Because I, I kind of like study those. So I, I understand a little bit about what some of the cultures are so I can relate to them. It's the same thing as Autumn asking, where are you from? And somebody says, Kuwa'a. And say, oh, you act like that because, you know, so I'm not going to say this to you because I know that you're probably going to be offended, you know, if I say this because I know you're part of the Autumn uh, world is, you know, they don't talk about it like that. Uh, I like to do, and uh, I know Kimberly is, um, Kim Danny is here. I learned a lot about Navajo. Uh, Edison is here. 
I learned a lot about Navajo from the students. And uh, one of the things that I found out, uh, you know, we have our Fiesta de los Muertos and because we acknowledge death as even after a person is dead, you know, they're still around for a while, some time. But I learned from them, Carolyn uh, Clark has been a great teacher of mine. She's one of the, she's the, one of the janitors over there. But I talked to her about this stuff and she tells me, oh, for Navajos, when somebody dies, that's it. We don't mention them, you know, that they're gone, you know, they're not in this world anymore. So it was like, wow. So that's why when I ask Navajos about the um, Fiesta de los Muertos, they're just like, I don't know, you know, we don't do that. And and so, you know, so I understand now that why, why I shouldn't be asking them or if I do, they'll probably give me something that they read, whatever. So stuff like that, that I, I like to ask. Um, there's a lot of things that are similar, but a lot of things also that are different. So um, to know who you are, where you stand, but at the same time, be able to, to uh, see others and who they are and recognize the differences and celebrate the differences. Um, and like, um, I think Greg mentioned about uh, the racism that does come in. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you're identifying your differences. Then uh, it's just when you when you put somebody down because of the way they are, uh, then that's when I think it's wrong. But yet in autumn, that's something that we do all the time. You know, our clanships, uh, some from the Coyote clanship, well, you know, uh, put us down in the buzzard clanship and we go back and forth and it's a game between us. And sometimes it turns into fights and stuff like in the olden days, but still it's, it's a recognition of who you are, you're different. But when the fight happens, we're gonna be standing together. And that's the main, main point. So I wanted to mention uh, that and just that, you know, you, you, if you wanna understand about autumn, look at the plants, the animals, the communities, the, um, uh, different ways that we do things here and how we've adapted to what was a long time ago. All of them are not going to all know what, you know, everything that that you read in the newspapers or read in articles or in books, uh, but you need to ask them. Uh, there was a woman that came to one of my classes and she was asking who can she go with to go to the buy the harvest out there and you know to get by that she assumed that all autumn went out to get by that and come to find out there was seven autumn in the class and none of them were going out you know and so she was she was kind of set aback you know i thought i would go with one of you also you could show me how to do this and that oh no there's a by that camp to the college will host it you can go to that you know and i did know that two of them did were going to go out in two weeks but they just didn't want anybody along, it was a family thing. So again, it's different. So um, I wanted to mention those. Um, is there any response, any talk from anybody?
Joshua or Teresa have, um, has anyone submitted anything on chat? I, I didn't see anything for um, any uh, comments or questions for Camillus. He can keep going if we don't have yeah. any. Yeah. I have not seen anything. Okay. No, there are no questions in the chat. Okay. okay. Go ahead, Camillus. You have another 15 more minutes or so. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this, like I mentioned, regarding the um, the cultural myth and how people respond and, and say things are not just myth that is um, like today, um, going back to the past, there is a part of the cultural myth that is um, that can be shared, but there are also stories about today, um, how things happen in this time. So those stories are also, like I said, have a lot to do with what autumn um, response to how you you uh, respond to the land. It um, there there's um, what they call a prophecies that um, people do that uh, are kind of like people look at it as as um, how do you say. Um, that they're mystic and that um, people don't see that except from the spirit world and all that stuff. But there are some stuff that generally is um, is um, can be shared. Um, things that res that their life is um, when 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 it happens and you, you look at it and you look back. So a lot of the scientific the knowledge that people share um, are are things that autumn uh, do. Which in science you have that um, that process, how to do uh, scientific uh, research, how to do um, uh, what's the process of learning something. They have the scientific method, where all of them have had that, or natives have had that for a long time. It's just that we don't use that process or that the words. Uh, it's more formulated as far as like the English language, and the way science happens. But in, in the native world, it's kind of the same thing, which is to look at the past and um, um, and look at the, um, um, the future or the, the present and then to make a, a, a forecast or a prophecy about the past. So um, when we talk about that, I remember stories uh, Vine Deloria had shared with me uh, we went to um, um, Wyoming on a plane trip and uh, sat next to him and he was talking to me about stuff and he's something that he had put in a book was that uh, a long time ago um, there was a prophecy that came out of Native America and it was um, said that when when the eagle lands on the moon that um, that things were going to start to change, that bad things were going to happen. And so he said that people were looking for the eagle to land on the moon, you know, we're going to see it by binoculars or what are we going to, you know, how are we going to see it? And so, um, so when, when, um, when it, it didn't happen for a long time, uh, and then the 1969, the, the, the astronauts landed on the moon. And um, they didn't understand that either. But when the lunar module, you know, it came down and landed on the moon, 
um, they they realized that um, that lunar module had a name, and that was the eagle. The eagle has landed, and so they said that's what that that medicine person was talking about, and that things were going to happen, bad things were going to happen from then. And the native response, especially the autumn response, is that a long time ago when the world was made, the dome sky was made, that the creator, Itoi, took a blanket and he put it over the sky, the dome sky, to protect it from the stuff that happens out, out in outer space, stuff coming down. So what, um, what they were saying at that time was that the, the white man was going up to the to outer space and they're making holes in that blanket that Ito uh, had put up there. And so they keep going up there, they make another hole, they make another hole. And so in the, at that time, that Native American uh, uh, medicine person said that thing, bad things were gonna start happening. The autumn response was, oh, because there's all these holes in the sky, which I think, um, was kind of talked about when the ozone layer was talked about, like there was holes in the ozone layer. And they were saying that bad things were gonna happen. The weather was gonna change and everything was gonna, you know, be different. And so uh, now we notice that, you know, that the thing with global warming and all that, but autumn have already known that because it was talked about that, that there was holes in the blanket and that the world was gonna change. So the elders started mentioning that that things were going to change that it's not going to be the same and but we didn't have any um we didn't have any uh, explanation as far as what was going to happen because that was not our doing it was something that was going to come but when you think about that when the that medicine person said about the eagle landing on the moon you know you think an eagle is going to land on the moon which i i don't know if that's possible unless you put it in, in a space capsule and send it up there. But actually that's what happened when that, when that lunar module, when it landed on the moon and the, and the announcement was the eagle has landed and I guess somebody picked that up. And then after that at the, um, what they call the um, Keepers of the Treasures Conference, it was mentioned that the eagle has landed on the moon. And he said that, um, that at that time, um, that people remembered that prophecy, that things were going to change. Now the changes came slow, so I think that now looking back, you can see that that prophecy came true. Uh, how did he know? I don't know. There, there's many things like that that I think in the native world, you you um you see, but it's just in watching the patterns and the stars, how things happen. So it's scientific. It's scientific knowledge. It's thinking about what could be coming next and what could be coming next. Way back in 1972, uh, my grandfather got a phone call, and he went inside, and one of his uh, one of his cousins was out there, my grandpa, and we were talking about stuff, and he he was sitting there, and then he he's talking about the phone call. Somebody from Santa Rosa Ranch was calling him to ask about cattle or whatever, and then he kind of stood up and walked around, and he said, "One of these days." You know, the elders already told us that one of these days we're going to be talking. We're going to be talking into the air and there's nobody going to be standing there. We're just going to be walking around and we're just going to be talking and they'll hear us far away. You know, they'll hear us and we don't have to 
go to the phone and talk to people. We can just, you know, talk into the air and people in San, and San Rosa Ranch would hear us. And, and I was kind of like laughing at it. And then slowly as the years started to come, you know, start to realize what he was talking about. And I went to Walmart um, and there was a black guy walking around talking to himself. And I thought, this guy's crazy, you know, walking around talking and, and he's looking and he's talking about something. And I realized that he was on the phone. I saw the little thing in his, in his ear. And I said, he's talking into the air and, I, and it clicked, you know. That's what that old man was talking about. How did he know? I don't know. He thought about it, and I think, you know, in time, it you know just came to him, and he said what was on his mind, and, but how did he know? I, I don't know. You just kind of, again, put the two stuff together, and then, because it's always evolving. It's always going. When I first started counseling at, um, top, oh, we used to call it TOPS, not the Psychological Services, when I first started uh, counseling over there, um, they gave us the DSM book, DSM number one. And they told us to look through that. And I looked through that, but by then they were on DSM three. And I looked at those and they said, I compare the two. What are the differences? And I compared the two. And way back the DSM, the first one was written, homosexuality was a disease. There was a cure for it. And, and I looked at that and I saw that and I said, this isn't true. And I looked at DSM-3 and they had a whole different definition. This is, now I think we're at DSM-6 or 7 or something. And it's continually being revised over and over again because there's stuff that they're learning and they keep revising that and, and keep going, you know. So if you read one of those old, old books, you're going to see a lot of stuff that doesn't apply anymore. But that's the way people thought that was the standard that they used back then. That was how they they uh, interpreted it, and that's how they diagnosed people. Whereas now it's very different. They don't use that anymore. They use something totally different. But again, it's continually evolving through science, through the scientific method, where uh, I think in the same thing in autumn is that as time goes on, we start to see what the patterns are and we start to um, diagnose. This uh, coronavirus was um, um, prophesied some time ago, maybe like um, four years ago, I think it was, the medicine person that looked out and um, said there's a, there's a uh, something coming. It's kind of like the jugos, you know, the sands, the, the dust storm coming. It, it's far away, it's still coming. And it's something we can't avoid, but it's going to hit us here. And I don't know, I said, I sent my power over there. I put, you know, this and that to try to block it and maybe it won't reach us. But there's something that can be done, but it's going to hit us and it's going to hit us pretty bad. And um, so, you know, just know that something's coming. So some people, I think, took that to heart and started to, you know, know that something was coming, didn't know what it was. And then it arrives here and nobody says anything because people didn't remember it. And then now, you know, in this last two months, probably, the people, the, the spiritual people started talking about it. You know, wasn't this, you know, something that was, yeah, yeah, it was something that was coming. And it was mentioned before, 
but it was just that, what are we going to do about it? There's nothing we can do about it. We just have to let it pass. Again, the chukos, the, the uh, dust storm that comes, it comes, it gets real bad, and then it goes in real bad, and then it gets to a certain point where it starts to slow down and slow down, and then it'll slowly dissipate. So I think that comes with the cure. But how long is that going to be, you know? Again, using something from the desert to explain um, something that is happening that is um, um, that people can relate to rather than just talking about, you know, the disease and coming from this part of the world and then now it's going to reach us and all this stuff to explain it. And that's how I started uh, to explain, you know, as, as the chicos because people could relate to it. And now it's here and it's in full force and it's um, still coming, but there's an end to it. It's just that I don't know how many people will be affected by it when it's all over. So again, that's science, science telling us to watch the patterns, science telling us to know when things are happening, which is something that we used to do very easily because we lived right in the nature. Our houses were built of you know, materials that were right readily available that um, we could just use. And, but now we're living in these kind of houses and for somebody to build a house, the first thing they have to do is go look at the land and they estimate the cost. What kind of house do you want? You know, this is what it's gonna cost you. Where a long time ago we didn't. And for somebody to live like that, people look at that as, oh, you know, you can't live like this. But we lived like that for thousands of years. And yet uh, people say, oh, you're not supposed to live like that. But it's just with the conveniences, you know, with the refrigerator and the TV that if people didn't have to, they would do without. There's a guy that used to live out there. I think they did something. Uh, Verlin can tell you better, but he used to live out there, Chukukuk, and he was living in this little like a cardboard house, you know, just kind of like stuff put together. But he was living there and he was, he was alive. That was important to him. You know, he didn't have running water and all the stuff that we have, but he lived there for years and it was okay. But we look at that from, again, today's standards and we say, oh, you're not supposed to be like that. But yet the native world teaches us how to respond to that and we can. It's just that if you wanna to go to school, you wanna have a job, all that, you need to move into this kind because we're living in this way. My grandfather explained it as, um, riding horses. We had three horses. One of them was a black horse, a kind of a small horse. It used to run really fast. And the other one was a brown horse. And it was it was fast and it was strong. But it, you could climb the mountains and, you know, stuff which the other horses couldn't do. And then we had another big horse that was a gray horse. His name was Prince. He was a big, big horse. And that one, you had to pull the reins real hard. It wouldn't respond. If you want to go that way, you, you will go. And you had to pull it real hard in order for it to do what you wanted it to. So he was saying that, you know, when you get on the horses, when you get on this horse, you have to ride it like this. When you get on the big horse, you have to know you have to, you have to ride it like this. So like that, you're in the autumn world, you're gonna ride this horse when you're here. But when you go out there in the city, you're gonna have to ride this horse and you're gonna have to use it in a different way because it doesn't do what the other horses do. So that was his way of explaining it. The same person just riding different vehicles to do what I needed to do. So I think that's um, 
something that is like natural that people can look at and say, you know, that's the way it is. But again, using that uh, scientific method about studying and keep looking at it and seeing the, the, the way it's behaving and then predicting the behavior and then, you know, going ahead and then seeing what, what else uh, uh, you need to do. I, I shared the story from when my counseling days um, about um, the woman who came in and talked about her, her, um, her boyfriend. And they were having a lot of troubles. And, and then he, uh, she came in one day and she said, he left, you know, he really left. And I said, he'll come back. And she said, no, no, he really left. You don't understand. And she was crying. And I said, I think he'll come back. And she kept saying, no, 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 he really left. He was mad. He got all his clothes and he put them in a trash bag and he left. And I said, no, he'll come back. And she said, no, you don't understand. He grabbed his hat and he put it on. He grabbed his saddle and he left. And I said, oh, I think he'll come back. No, no, you don't understand. He went over there and he stood by the road and he had his bag and his hat and this car came by and he picked him up and he took off. He's not coming back. And I said, I think he'll come back. And I said, are you sure? Yeah. So she left and she came back the next week and she was happy. And I said, what happened? She said, he came back. And then she said, how did you know he was going to come back? And I said, well, because the first 12 times he left, he always came back. And also always coming back. That's the pattern. So you want to predict the future. Um, you just look at the patterns and you see what's going on and and you you kind of gauge yourself the classes that i teach uh, at tocc um i have my you know the stuff that i want to teach i have the list of what i need to do but i have to see the students first i have to know who's in my class i have to know what their goals are their ambitions i have to know what their hobbies are so i can know what words to use and which one of the subjects to put first or how to present a subject. So they're not all the same all the time. Uh, many times you'd have to wait and do the first two weeks of you know getting used to stuff and then you learn who, who your students are and then you start to teach and then it's a little bit easier then uh, because you know who you're teaching. So a lot of the stuff that you may have wanted to, those kids or the students won't respond to that. So. Like again, it's just, just in looking at human nature and how people behave. And uh, I think that it's e a little bit easier rather than having something and just teaching that and hoping that they catch. You need to see the students just like any um, native uh, elder would. You know your student, you know who they are, you know their family, you know who they, uh, who they behave like, you know what their behaviors are, and then you start the teaching which um, I think what uh, Greg has talked about or what he taught me last time, I understood that that way, you know, as far as epistemology. So um, thank you that's so it. much, Camillus. We always learn so much from you and we learn from each other. And uh, when you have a chance, check out Edison's uh, um, uh, uh uh, query, yep, uh, in the chat box, and uh, just respond to everyone. Uh, but we always learn so much, and thank you so much for for always giving us so much about the Tohono O'odham uh, peoples, and uh, for this wisdom that uh, is so important, traditional knowledge of the O'odham and how we can really 
um, understand, you know, those, those values. Him, Doug. We are now at 1232, and I believe from our agenda, we return uh, back at one with uh, Mr. Verlin Jose. So it's a short lunch break. So, um, uh, Teresa, or uh, did you want to say anything, or Greg, before we uh, take our break? Yes, I, I did want to uh, say that I do see Edison's question, and I couldn't figure out how to copy and paste it, but I wrote it all down. <laughs> so maybe at the end of the day or tomorrow, we can uh, circle back to that question. Uh, so I just, I've been working in the chat box. I let everybody know that I resent the readings and also uh, the graphic of the ZAPE model, if you're a visual person, so you can uh, kind of have visual representation of what Dr. Kehete was uh, covering this morning. So that's all I have to share besides have a great lunch and see you at once. And uh, I, I'll just, uh, the few words I would say, you know, uh, what Camillus uh, presented, uh, you know, is, is a sampling of, um, you know, that, that uh, epistemology, uh, that, that cultural epistemology that's unique to each tribe that is uh, really important to understand and, and to explore and to, and to just know about. So um, thank you, Camillus, for that, uh, that really good uh, synopsis of uh, some of the things that we covered uh, the first session. And uh, I think uh, uh, Verlin, Jose, and the panel will present some thoughts of uh, some of the contemporary issues that deal with the society and culture piece that we'll explore in the next couple of days. So again, have a good lunch and uh, we'll see you in half an hour. Okay, thanks. Spucky's like connecting to his audio, so he should be here momentarily. Okay, sounds good. Well, it looks like he's connected. <clears throat> Oh, Verlin, before you get started, I did send you an email about the YouTube clip and Josh practiced over lunch, so he is ready to go to share that for you when, when you're ready. Okay. Um, let me know when you're ready. Well, let me introduce uh, Verlin Jose. Many of you already know uh, Verlin, but for those of you who have not met Verlin Jose, he was the former vice chairman of the Tohono O'odham Nation. He is formally the one of the traditional, he is a traditional governor for the O'odham in Mexico. He has um, been also president of the public school board, governing board for Baba Kivri. Um, I have had the pleasure of getting to know Berlin um, the last um, couple of years, um, and most recently, um, he and I are part of a team with Healing uh, the Border Project, which is a project with uh, the nonprofit Alianza Indígena Sin Fronteras, uh, this alliance, Indigenous Alliance Without Borders, um, that's located here in, in Tucson. I also know that he uh, does a lot of volunteer work um, 
for many of the Atham communities, and he is uh, someone that um, I have learned tremendously from. So Verlin, uh, the Zoom floor is yours. And, and Verlin, um, if, um, you know, we, we're running on this uh, uh, technology that uh, sometimes is a little awkward, uh, and especially for, for uh, how to give a message to our speakers about their time and, and how to flow from, from one, uh, one person to another or to, to make sure that we provide the breaks. It's all this time management stuff that, so just know that I may send you a message on, on, on the, uh, via the chat box. You're, you're younger than me. You can probably see and talk at the same time. <laughs> so uh, just to let you know that this is uh, very cumbersome sometimes. So um, it's not to be disrespectful to you or to others. Um, but uh, just that uh, uh, it's just that I'm trying to, to keep this, uh, being mindful of our time. So thank you for joining us, Verlin. And so um, you're on. Okay, okay thank you. Uh, first and foremost, um, good day to each and every one of you out there. I hope you can hear me okay. Yes, you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, great. Um, so I'm gonna, I got 45 minutes or 40 minutes or so uh, to try to give you a perspective on modern education on the Donato Nation. And I'm gonna break it down into probably four different areas. And I have a lot I wanna share, but I'm gonna summarize a lot of it because um, there's so much when it comes to education. And I wanna uh, appreciate the, the previous speakers and presenters because I was like, wow, it just kind of built upon what I wanted to speak about. So without um, further ado, um, I'm gonna, so to understand the current, I think we need to understand the past because without that basis of the foundation of who we are as an individual, as a family, as a community, as a district, as a nation, as people, we really don't know who we are. And I like to share with a lot of people that, you know, I'm, I've given many presentations to schools and colleges and universities and what have you. Um, and one of the things I like to share is that we really need to know who we are before we aspire to be whatever it is that we want to be, a doctor, lawyers, you know, astronaut, whatever, um, whatever it is that we want to be. We got to be Verlin Jose. You have to be Verlin Jose first before you're anything else. And in my, in my walk in life, my short walk in life, that's one of the things that I had to do. Who is Verlin Jose? And I had to accept the good, the bad, and the ugly because that's who I am. And we build upon those things because as was mentioned in one of the previous presentations, it's forever changing. They tell you, this is the way you need to do it. And years later, they're telling you, no, 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 we have to do it this other way. So we got to adjust to the times. And when you talk about place-based learning, that is uh, uh, an awesome way of teaching as well too, because we were always taught to survive. We were taught survival skills. Okay, so those of you, and many of you maybe seen some of these pictures before, maybe you haven't, maybe they're new to you, but in order 
and I, I, I want to put a disclaimer out there. I mean no offense to anyone. I don't mean to offend anybody. Um, but I did say I was going to say, <laughs> and I say this a lot, you know, it's like, okay, if you really want to work at Donaldson Community College, I hope you really, really do. And I hope you're not just here for a paycheck. I hope you're not just here to use the college as a paycheck or a stepping stone to other things. Like that. And, and, and if that's, if that's what you do, and then, I mean, at least try to give your all into it because we've been used and abused so many times by a lot of people. Um, and if you're just here for a paycheck, then your, your, your heart is not really where it needs to be. And some of you I know are because you've come back time and time again. I've heard your introductions and your story and thank you for that. So I know that your heart's in the right place. That's why you're here. Uh, I think the creator brings us um, to this. So without further ado, my, my uh, presentation is uh, basically, um, I'm gonna try to give you a modern perspective on education on the Donald Nation, including uh, the importance of education sovereignty and culture preservation with a little bit of history of modern educational institutions and current critical educational needs for the nation um when i go to a powerpoint presentation and i'm going to kind of breeze through this but uh um i'm putting my timer on right now so let me see if i can share this with you here uh, uh Maybe a little younger than you, Octaviana, but I'm, I have the same challenges. So, uh, okay, let me see. Let me uh, give me one minute here. Okay, can you see it? Yes, we can see it. The Aga, our story. Pathways to Indigenous Education Down at the Community College 2020. As I mentioned, uh, a modern perspective on the education of the Toronto Nation. I think we need to really understand who, who is the Toronto Nation? Who are the Toronto? Well, if, we were, if I was to tell you that, we would be here four days and four nights, and we'd be in the winter time. But our roots are embedded in this area since time immemorial, and the evidence is there. From the beautiful San Pedro Valley, you know, to the Babakiri Mountains and, and abroad, this is where the Creator has placed us. In this beautiful country called the Tohono. Tohono, the desert. Uh, some people come and look for sand dunes and whatnot. This is not the Sahara Desert. This is the Sonoran Desert, what they call the Sonoran Desert. But to do it, our land, from the beautiful mountains, the beautiful saguaros, to the many sacred sites that we have here in the U.S. and in Mexico, to the Cach, to the Sea of Cortez, the mystical waters, the powerful waters that educate us, because as I was once told, underwater there is a world too and there are teachings and learnings there. So when we talk about the Tohonawatam, you gotta keep in mind is that we were always not 
corralled into this small place called the Thorn Autumn Reservation. Um, from, as I mentioned, the San Pedro River, you know, to the Hiller River and beyond, um, to the Salt Flats, the Sea of Cortez. This has all been Thorn Autumn. Our footprint is in, within this area. Archaeological evidence provides that. Um, and it's talked about, it's, and it's also passed down through oral traditions. So when we talk about that, it's the importance of education really starts with the family. Now I'm telling you my perspective and how I know it and how I was taught, others may tell you different. But generally, it's really with the family because we're all teachers at some point. Our children, our, our moms, our dads were very important. And our children, one of our most sacred resources, are very important to us. And the women are very industrious. Just like the men as well too. <laughs> but um, I believe, you know, God put the creator, put us here for a purpose. And like was said early on, you know, I don't know if anybody knows where this picture is, <laughs> but some people might look at the, the hut and say, oh, how poor, how sad that they live. You know what? It was not, it was just a shelter for a small time because we were always out working the fields or, or, or hunting or doing what we needed to do. Uh, we weren't to be in our homes uh, looking at TV screens and monitors and playing games and doing all this thing, we're always out to be working the field. But in any event, I think this this home right here, and we should have laid claim to it because I think this is downtown Tucson, Arizona, where the big building, the bank stands. Uh, if you look in the background, I think that's a mountain in the background. Anyways, we were social people. We sang our songs and danced our dance. That was who we are. We, we were potters, we were basket makers. We, uh, we adjusted to the times, you know. Um, before then, uh, you'd see probably kids running around with almost no clothes on, probably. We just, the men wore an atosha, uh, uh, I guess you call it like a big diaper. And, 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 and the women uh, wore a wrap around and, and with no top. Um, but we evolved with the times, with education. Um, I would say, if you look at this picture right here, uh, kids don't look very happy. Huh? They probably had to put clothes on to take this picture. You can see they have no shoes. But again, we look to the other side and our members evolve with the time, whether that's learning a trade, going to school to become doctors, nurses, medical technicians, and so forth. It's a continual involvement. I don't know if anybody knows this woman. She's an amazing woman. She just retired working the nation for many, many, many years, um, a former uh, legislative council person and, and so on, um, one of my mentors in life. But when we talk about place-based learning, that's really, I think in my eyes, is, is, is how we were as autumn. We were taught about survival and the things around us and how we, how we introduce those different things and who we are and how we're gonna walk our journey in life, we were always, always listening. And I share in this picture, um, as you see that 
there's an elder sitting there and, and, and looks to me like they're really listening. And I was sharing earlier that somebody said, and to, they say to our students, look at me when I'm talking to you. Well, to us, that was very disrespectful. <laughs> Anyways, um, that's a whole nother discussion. But again, when we talk about place-based learning, it was really about survival and what we could do, what we need to do to survive out there on the land. I come from a ranching family. I grew up on the ranch. Um, I don't know who this little kid is, but uh, I think uh, that he might be getting on the wrong horse, but uh, I do know who the kid is actually. <laughs> um, but that was what this kid was taught, how to work on a ranch, how to ride horses, how to saddle horses, how to work the cattle. But another important part of who we are is our foods that we talked about early on. It's really important to know that because as was mentioned early on, right now I think going down to the McDonald's or to the Bashes and to take a turn on the right and you see the donuts and the deli and all those different things, uh, those are important foods of today's staples. But in order to be who we are, we need to remember that in these terms of this pandemic, we should know these things. The Jordan, the Choya Buds that are there. Matter of fact, this young girl right here, I think is uh, just finished her first year at the University of Arizona. Um, the the Saguaro, which has a story to it as well, but provides many things to, to our, our people, such as food and building materials and uh, for ceremonial uh, and, and, and medicines and so forth. It, it, it is so rich that, you know, people that have never tasted before, when they taste it, they're like, wow, I never knew this, this was like this. Again, it's always about teaching the younger generations, always about family unit, teaching and sharing the first teachers, because all in all, you can get the highest degree that you wanna get, but when things start shutting down, how are you gonna survive? How are you gonna survive if you don't know how to harvest the wheat that we've harvested for hundreds of years? How are you gonna know how to survive if you don't know how to eat a, a, a caterpillar right here? Um, I joke and I would say the, the probably the, uh, the first hot Cheetos for, for the autumn or the jackrabbit, you know, the rabbits that, that are out there. How are you going to survive if you don't know how to, you know, be one and with the creator and, and, and the desert and the animals and the quail, you know, the deer um, that are out there. But we were also, we were very, uh, 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 we were competition with each other through our games. That was a part of our life. You know, the uh, women's game of Thoka. Um, yep, men, you don't want to get in their way. Like was said earlier on, you know, you dare get in their way. They don't care. They're going to run you over. You know, our women still play it today. You know, even to the streets of Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. Can you believe the women of the Thon Automation uh, played DACA down Massachusetts Street? I'm just kidding. I don't remember what the street was, but one of the streets. Um, on the mall of the in Washington D.C., they played that. Our, our our running games, our relay races, we played against villages. We we boasted about who had the fastest runners and the best runners. That is who we are. To our our, our spiritual runs, a 300 mile run done in seven days. Um, 
at first it was a very small start, which still continues today uh, to try to balance our spirituality. Today, autumn today, today's autumn. Um, a picture of the first papal council. I haven't got a picture of the recent council, but um, just to give you a shot of uh, an idea, our members are very proud. Our members are very proud that we, I, I believe there may be two, three hundred people that went to Washington, D.C. when they opened up the museum, uh, the National Museum there, Native American Indian, um, on our religious walks. Um, we still continue those things no matter what barriers come before us. As I mentioned, we are very social. We're social people. We like to sing our songs and dance our dances. Um, our young men and uh, still uh, carry those. Uh, our women still carry the art of basketry and are very proud uh, to display their basketry. Um, and our young children are learning our songs and our dances. Even our relatives in Mexico. Uh, this is a, a, a school for autumn uh, kids in, in, in Mexico. And they're learning some of the traditional songs and dances. Um, and it's all because of our children. Our children that once will be walking through the, the doors of Don Autumn Community College. Education kind of has a dark history with the Autumn from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where our members were dragged and forced to go to school, cut their hairs, and made them wear clothes to Phoenix Indian School, where members uh, and other boarding schools out there where members have graduated and families have trekked up no matter what it took, get all get in the back of the truck because it was a big celebration. Somebody was graduating from high school. But it all goes back to our, 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 our future generations, our, our, our leaders, not of tomorrow, but our leaders of today. Um, we do these things and we prepare these things, such as Stone Mountain Community College. We evolved to be the best institution as we know it as Stone Autumn Community College for these that are going to be walking in our doors because soon they'll be graduating from high school and soon they'll be walking through the doors at Stone Autumn Community College. A celebration that we all enjoy because they've reached their milestones. And then some go on, you know, to the military. Right here is a picture of our women that were honored uh, Grand Marshals one year in the parade here. Um, and who come back and then want to still go back to school. We got to prepare those doors for them as well too. But it all comes back to who we are as autumn. When we talk about modern uh, perspective of modern education, we got to understand that we are the desert people. We are the thorn autumn, that we are one with nature. Every stick and stone is sacred. Every animal out there, uh, they talk about, I think these were the original Sonoran dogs. I'm joking. Um, the prairie dog, um, from the tortoise who walks across the road, people today will stop, stop their vehicle and risk their lives to, to move them across the road so they don't get run over. That's how sacred, that's how important uh, wildlife is to us as often. And we continue to do our prayers, go to our sacred sites, and continue to do the things that make us who we are. 
because there are no boundaries. There are no boundaries because there's not even a word for wall in autumn. Not that I know. Today, in today's world, we, we are people that are descriptive, will describe something. But as far as I know, unless others know it, and I'm, I don't know, profess to know everything, there is no word for wall. We can maybe describe it, but the wall right now is a, is, is, is a big thing here on the nation, and maybe not to everybody, but because I, I talked about our, our Aboriginal lands, I talked about all those things, and over 160 some years ago, um, a line was cut through the heartland of the Thonot Hajuit, the lands of the desert people. So, with that being said, um, I just want to highlight how many people are talking about this right now on. on one of our sacred sites, uh, Quito Biquito, uh, is located uh, just a little bit uh, west of Lukeville. This pond that you see in the background, and I, I haven't um, got a, it's dry. It's almost dry right now. I think there were 11 natural springs there, and only two of them, I think, are, are, are producing water because of this wall that's been built built over graves, built over ceremonial grounds, and so forth. But as an elder once said, there ain't no type of barrier that will stop our prayer. Our elders have already foreseen these things and talked about these things. Our el as was said before, our elders knew these things. They knew these things and they talked about these things that they were coming. But as this child sits on a line, does he know that there is a barrier or that there will be barriers before him? It is our responsibility to care for the people and to care for the land. And thus we must do it for our future generations and give them the opportunity of no barriers on their educational endeavors. The summer rains are here. The summer rains will come and the summer rains will go. But we will continue to walk this journey here in the Thon Autumn. So I wanna kinda wrap it up with um, a few things. Education on the Thon Autumn Nation. Education on the Thon Autumn Nation, there's like, uh, we got the tribal schools, the Head Start, various districts have Head starts, there's some home based education. We got five state public schools uh, barbecue, on the Barbecue School District. Uh, I think there's probably like what, 1,200, 1,300 students total. And uh, the Bureau of Indian Education Schools, which I think uh, with the four schools, probably about 650, somewhere around there. And then we got, I think there's a faith based school. And then uh, a lot of our kids go to Hashan Charter School in Tucson. We got taught out to community college. We got members taking online courses through various universities and uh, other um, educational institutions, uh, trade and business schools online. The history of education institutions taught out to nation, we really need to take a look about where we come from when we want to talk about modern education. Because Don Autumn traditional oral education 
was from way back when it still is today. We've never lost that. This still happens today. From the mission school era, from the Catholic, uh, when Father Kino came and, and you know, forced, uh, I say forced education among us and changed our culture, changed our way of life by introducing us to a lot of different things. Um, that would take a whole, a whole different discussion topic to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Indian Education Schools in the 1800s. They talked about Carlisle, Pennsylvania and all these other schools where our children were dragged off and, and, and forced to go to school. And the funny thing is how things evolved because, uh, hey, I begged my, student, my, my, my parents to let me be a student at a, a BIA school. It was BIA back then. I went to Phoenix Indian, I went to Sherman, I went to Fort Wingate, Contigature, uh, the BIA schools at that time, to the state public schools, which here in Salas was in the 1920s or so, was actually built for Anglo kids that were here with their parents working with the, the uh, Pepco agency here. Um, and then later on, in, 1953, uh, so the records tell us that um, autumn kids were, they call that consolidated school. Pima Community College, you know, when we first entered into an intergovernmental agreement with Pima Community College, um, and then done out to Community College, you know, from this first, um, the legislative council in 96, you know, creating the Donaldson Community College. In 98, the charter, and in 2005, you know, the accreditation. Um, and all this you can look up, all this you can, it, it's there, documents are there, you can read this stuff. But on three critical education needs and done automation, I believe that we need to change the personal and the national view in education. Number one is because education, we talk about it, it's so important, but is it really that important? Because as we transition as a, as a child, as a, as a student, as a student gets older, they become more valuable to the family. We lose a lot of students in middle school. I mean, I've been on the school board and student of the month, I wanna be a doctor, I wanna be a policeman. I almost fell over backwards once when a kid said, I wanna be a border patrol. You know, nothing wrong with being a border patrol, but and we really need autumn border patrol. But nobody will, nobody meets the qualifications. Um, we need those, but we lose them along the way because our views start to change. They become more, more valuable to the family. They can drive grandma to the hospital. They can drive grandpa to town to take the cows. They can, you know, do all these different things. And the national view, and I'm talking national view, I'm talking about the Thon Autumn Nation, the view on how we view education. I won't go so much into that. I could go a little bit more, but, uh, and the second thing I think is important is proper infrastructure for, the, for an educational institution, such as Stone Alton Community College. When we talk about infrastructure, we're talking about the water, we're talking about the sewer, we're talking about the land, we're talking about uh, buildings, we're talking about homes for our instructors. You know, we're talking about all these different infrastructures that the nation, the districts, and the college, I think the college knows where it wants to go and what it wants to do. And the other part of it is, is what about the districts? What about the communities? And what about the nation? How do we really 
look at creating that proper infrastructure, not only for Don Austin Community College, but other educational um, institutions abroad, because some of them are about to fall over. Some of them could be condemned. And the third part of that on the critical um, educational needs, it needs to be an all hands on deck approach. I know some of us don't know, well, maybe I'm speaking for myself, don't know what a deck is, but it's the same, right? All hands on deck. Shoot, some of us all have never even seen a deck. <laughs> so I say all hands to build the Watto. It really makes a collective of all of us, no matter, not only the Thon Autumn, uh, our partners, our, 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 everybody that's involved in Thon Autumn Community College, everybody, that all hands approach to build this Watto, to build Thon Autumn Community College, to build Thon Autumn education to what it needs to be um, and, and where it's going. Financial support very important financial support for quality education. We need to invest more money in, in education. You know, third world countries are surpassing us. I talk about, I mentioned about, where do we stand in the United States when it comes to world education? We are not even up there. Where does Arizona stand when it comes to education in the United States of America? Well, and I won't even, you know, so we need to think about the financial support. And I know Don Autumn College does a great job of seeking grants and so forth. But again, when the nation had this dream and had this desire, we knew that we would have to fund this. And how do we build those funding mechanisms that we can continue to provide quality education? Well, where do we go from here? And I, and I know my time's coming up. Where do we go from here on this educational journey? We have to have a vision. We have to have a mission. We have to have goals and objectives. We have to have assessment and reviews. Those aren't bad words. Sometimes people think, oh, we got to do an assessment. Oh, we got to do a review. Those are tools. And then, and then maybe we'll see our successes. And then our dream will be fulfilled. But people, we cannot do this if we don't have respect and trust for one another. For the students to have respect for the instructor. For the students to trust the instructor that they're going to deliver quality education and for you as instructors and faculty to have the respect that the students are going to come prepare 100% to devote their attention to it and the trust that they're there to learn. We need to have that dedication, that commitment, that communication and that cooperation. If we can incorporate all these things, I think we're on the right road. And I know that we're on the right road. Some of the things that are, are when we're going in challenging times, uh, I just talked to Dr. Morris, and I'm not gonna go over this because I'm kind of running out of time, but part of their teacher's contract, it requires them to have knowledge in Google platform to include in classroom forms, docs, sheets, slides, et cetera. In addition, they need to be competent in navigating through the internet for research, which some of you are probably all very good at that, but I can tell you, I do know that some of us have challenges. Um, you know, we, and I was part of the school board, we were preparing, and I said to Dr. Morris, were we really preparing for this pandemic when we were, we had dreams and, and goals and objectives to become a 100% uh, technology school? Anyways, in any event, um, 
couple things to, to think about and to look about is the Pepco Tribal Council Resolution. Pepco Tribal Council Resolution 4878. Um, uh, again, creating the uh, education committee and the company's education plan for the Autumn Tribe 82, the Autumn Educational Standards 87, company's education study of 2004, which you probably are all aware of, or if not, um, should take a look at that at some point in some time, which goes back to the visions and missions of the college. I'm not gonna go over them. The core values, very important to have those core values. Um, there are some goals to the college, and there's one that I do wanna highlight, I believe is very important, it, it, and it's a must to recruit highly qualified faculty and staff, highly qualified, who are dedicated to the art of teaching, advising, and service specifically to the Tonawatam awesome community. This is Tonawatam awesome community. So, yeah. See our dream fulfilled. He says, this is the school uh, model. If we can do all those, I think we will see our dream fulfilled. And we have been seeing our dreams fulfilled because of our graduates walking through Don Autumn Community College, because of everything that you contribute to the education of our people. And it is a must to do this because our elders have taught us this. Our elders have paved the road for us to do this. Please wear your mask. And in clothing, um, this had popped up on my newsfeed, and I think it's very important. Some of you may have heard it, some of you may have not. But when it talks about why it's an Indian, I, I, it reminded me because I remember listening to this long, long time ago. But I'd like to share it with you for all your thoughts. Because to me, it says a message and kind of sums up really what I was trying to say or what I would like to say. So we can play that. I had a problem trying to play that. Let me see if I can do this. Well, actually, um, Berlin, over, over lunch, we practiced and Josh is ready to go uh, to play it. If you'd like him to do that. Yes. Perfect. Okay. And, and did you want me to play the entire video, Berlin? Pretty much, yes. It 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 really has a message. Yes, we got time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you'll just need to stop sharing your screen and. Okay. Uh, All right. What is an Indian? During a normal working day, I answered many questions from non-Indians concerning Indians. The questions vary and in some cases poorly stated, but usually add up to one question. What is an Indian? They say he is a person who doesn't work, but gets a monthly check from the government. Others say that he is lazy. Still others say he is a man 
who got a raw deal from the government. Therefore, he deserves what he can get from the government. Also others say that he is a drunkard, will never amount to anything. So therefore, the government should terminate him and let him make his own way in the white man's society. Myself, I do not see an Indian in the same light as any of these people. I see the Indian as a group of people, all different in their ways, but held together by a common bond called culture. I see the Indian as a group who fought for what was rightfully theirs and branded as savages. I see the Indians as a group who fought courageously against overwhelming odds and after giving in and signing a peace treaty, lived to see the treaties broken one by one. I see the Indians as a individual who, when their country was in danger, went to the front voluntarily and gave their last full measure of devotion, not only in the Civil War, but World War One, World War Two, the Korean conflict, and Vietnam. I see the Indian as a group of people who are proud and rightfully so, because they possess the secrets of life the white man has never discovered. I see the Indians as a group of people because even in their broken English they will tell you how important it is to gain an education in this modern world. I see the Indians as people who when they cross the culture barrier into the dominant society become the best in their chosen profession whether it be law, medicine, politics, trader, athletes, or fighting for freedom. And when I think of the Indian in this light, I think of the question, what is an Indian? My chest suddenly expands and I think I am an Indian. And so I say, I, I say, what is an autumn? What is a thon autumn? I am a thon autumn. And I appreciate and thank you for helping mold the students of thon autumn community college into what they will be. Whether you're faculty, whether you're staff, everyone, thank you for your commitment to Don Alton Community College. This is still the beginning and we have much to do, but if we only can do it, if we work together. Joshua Simhoigut, thank you for allowing me to share a perspective on education on the Don Alton Nation. Double. Wilson Chocotesia, Honorable Berlin Jose, um, as always, you've given us uh, lots of information.
lots to think about, and uh, we have more knowledge of the Tohono O'odham Nation um, because of the information you bring to us and uh, your your dedication to the peoples of the Otham uh, Nation. We have about a minute or two. If there's anyone that would uh, like to pose a question or a comment to um, Verlin. Um, this is Deanna Williams. I'll turn on my camera so I don't look like an empty space. But I'm really fascinated with learning more about early childhood. I'm the early childhood faculty for the college. And so I feel like I've been trying to understand what is the history of early childhood on the nation, especially um, that's just something that's come up consistently in the last year in my classes, but I didn't know where I could find out how the Head Starts came to the nation and what was happening prior to the Head Starts being there. I think I have an idea of like, parents were teachers, but I still want to be able to give more and reflect that in my curriculum. Reach out to the Donald Nation Education Department. Uh, they're the ones who oversee the Head Start um, on the nation, the main Head Start here and in various uh, districts and also the home base uh, programs that they have there. Um, you'll find some of that information, but you're right. Uh, and one of the things about Head Start too, uh, is that, you know, sometimes we think that it's wrong for our child to grow up with his grandparents. That was normal. That was normal for a grandparent to raise. Now with this change in society, it kind of became a negative because sometimes mom and dad or mom would go live the uh, kids with the grandparents and not come home for weeks because they were out drinking or drugging or whatever. But in the old days, because once they, from what I understand, once, um, they had a child and they were able to go back and work the field or do whatever else. Grandma and grandpa took care of the, the children. So it's really a holistic approach into caring for the child. And it's really about those things that we need in today's society about wraparound services for a child. When a child is born, we all need to be all hands on deck to provide everything and anything that child's going to need in this journey. Hope that helps. It does. I, I probably am going to want your contact information. Your presentation was really good. Thank you. Thank you for, um, for the presentation, Verlin and uh, Diana. You're going to be in contact, I'm sure, with uh, Verlin on, on those follow-up questions. Well, now we have uh, 15 minutes uh, for uh, a little break. Uh, the next uh, panel will be focusing around, they will be focusing, of course, on environmental and health is issues on the nation. And it's part of the, uh, the whole focus around societal and cultural context at Tohono Autumn Community College. So um, come back at uh, two o'clock. See you then. Oh, I just wanted to thank Verlin as well, uh, if he's listening, uh, for a great presentation. To introduce uh, the members of the panel for the environmental and health issues um, on the nation. I'm going to introduce all of them first, 
and then um, they will be um, they will be uh, doing their presentation uh, between now and three o'clock. And so, uh, hopefully, hopefully everyone will have uh, will be able to um, hear from all of them. And then maybe at the very end, we'll open it up for questions. Maybe the last five minutes or so. Uh, but please uh, pose your your questions also in the chat box, and that way. Uh, Teresa and, and Josh will be monitoring those and, and maybe some of them can be collapsed if we have uh, many of those uh, queries or, or comments for the panelists. So let me see if I can um, get to uh, the introduction here. Uh, the uh, first presenter is going to be Cynthia uh, Manuel. Cynthia Manuel is an enrolled member of the Tohono O'odham Nation. She's a registered registered nurse and the director of the public health public health nursing uh, for the Tohono O'odham Health Nation Care Center. Um, she obtained her bachelor's of science in nursing and also has a master's in public health with an emphasis in health science administration uh, from the University uh, of Arizona. And her background does include pediatrics, home health, and public health. And she does uh, has had experience working both on uh, the nation as well as uh, in uh, off the nation and, and communities outside Tohono O'odham Nation. Next, we have uh, Mike Hendry. Mike Hendry is also a citizen of the Tohono O'odham Nation. He has uh, worked and has worked and is working with the nation's Brownfield Tribal Response, uh, and that is conducting uh, numerous site assessments for hazardous contaminants and has assisted uh, tribal communities, districts, and organizations with remediation of hazardous contaminations. And he uh, is going to uh, also be, uh, be joining uh, the panel, um, as well as Gilbert Tutu. Both of them are um, district um, um, uh, conservationists, and they uh, work for the US Department of Agriculture Natural Resource Conservation Service and uh, at the CELS field office. We also have um, Doug Saunders, I'm sorry, Gilbert Tutu and Doug Saunders both work for the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture Natural Resources and Doug, uh, uh, Doug Saunders uh, or is it Fred Stevens who's going to be I'm, I'm a little confused here. Let me read about Steve. Fred, uh, can I just, uh, Gilbert sent his uh, bio and it was just this morning. I can read it. Sure. And I don't, I'm not sure if Doug is joining us. So <clears throat> had it available. <laughs> it says Gilbert Tutu is a 32 year employee with the Natural Resources Conservation Service in Arizona. Gilbert has worked his whole career in the cell field office located on the Tonopson Nation. Gilbert started his career as a soil, soil conservation te technician and taking advantage of a career enhancement opportunity which allowed him to attend U of A and work at the same time. 
He moved into a soil conservationist position and is presently the district conservationist. Dilbert is married with three children and two grandchildren, which he loves spending time with and being a part of their lives as they are growing up. And we can move to with uh, Fred's introduction. Um, Fred, are you talking about Fred Stevens? Yes. Okay. Because, you know, I know there, there were last minute changes on, on the panelists. Okay. Fred Stevens is a natural resources technician. He has an associate of arts degree in agriculture and natural resource, resources from Tohono O'odham Community College and has worked in the planning field as a GIS specialist and transportation planner. So uh, welcome to all the panelists and uh, we will begin uh, with Cynthia Manuel. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you for inviting me to join this panel and give a little bit of information and overview on um, health issues that um, are on the Thanatham Nation. So again, thank you for the introduction. My name is Cynthia Manuel. I am the Director of Public Health Nursing with the Thanatham Nation Healthcare or TONHC. Um, TONHC provides health services for tribal members living on and off the nation. Um, we have four clinic sites throughout the nation. The main clinic site is located in Sales, Arizona, and there are three other clinics located throughout the nation. Um, and they include San Simone Health Center located on the west side, Santa Rosa Health Center located more on the north side, and then um, Santa Vera Health Center located on the, um, <clears throat> on the east um, east side of the nation. And what we do is TONHC provides um, different types of health services, um, but for any kind of specialty services, some are contracted and then some are also provided on the nation and some are off the nation, primarily in Tucson or Casa Grande. <clears throat> so today I'll be providing an overview of major health issues facing community members on the nation. Um, and just to give you a little bit of um, statistics and some information, about 75% of the population is less than 45 years of age. Um, for the Thanatham Nation, when it comes to health issues, we have a high-risk population that have a lot of health um, comorbidities. Um, prior to COVID, the average age of death is about 55 to 56 years of age. Um, and today I'll briefly review um, public health concerns, diabetes and hypertension and dialysis on the nation. So of course the hot topic today that the Thanatham is facing is the coronavirus disease um, 2019 or COVID-19. Um, just like everywhere else in the world, you know, everyone's dealing with this COVID pandemic. And right now, to give you a little bit of background of how COVID is impacting the Thanatham Nation is that what we do is that we are monitoring, TONHC is responsible for monitoring the situation. We are um, 
testing, um, seeing patients and doing follow-up and we're doing contact tracing of patients who test positive for COVID-19. Currently, there are a total of 456 tribal members who have tested positive for COVID-19. 56% or 256 members live on the nation and then 44% or 200 members live off the nation. And that can be Tucson, Casa Grande, um, Florence, Phoenix. So we track a lot of the members that we are aware of, although I don't believe we have the entire picture of everyone that we are monitoring, but those are some general information. Unfortunately, about 18 members have passed from COVID-19, and that is about 4%. Um, two of those uh, members are, are non-tribal members who are living on the nation. And a lot of the members who did pass had other health conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and renal disease. Um, if a person has other health conditions when diagnosed with COVID-19, this increases their risk for having severe illness, including hospitalization and death, unfortunately. Um, what we're seeing right now is that the age group that has been impacted the most is the group that's between 20 years old to 44 years old, which is about 45% of those who have tested positive. Again, this would be our college students, our young adults. And so usually what we're seeing is that Either they're working off the nation, they're traveling to Tucson or any of the cities and either getting it there. Um, a lot of the families have multiple people living in, you know, multiple homes, multi-generational homes, and it quickly spreads throughout the household. Um, so what we have been trying to do, one, you know, right now, just like the Zoom meeting, we don't want to have in-person meetings. And a lot of districts, they do have, you know, district meetings, community meetings. And unfortunately, we cannot be there to, you know, be face-to-face -face with those people. So what TLNHC has done um, is, one, we're trying to work with our partners to help educate communities on what COVID-19 is how we want to prevent it, and what to do if you have COVID-19. Currently, our public health team does attend the weekly di district leadership briefing to provide updates on what is going on in the Fauna Otham Nation. Um, we also <clears throat> provide a weekly medical update to Thon Otham Legislative Council, and we also provide a weekly situational report, and that's shared with our leadership with executive, legislative, and our local leadership with the districts. Um, so, with regards to COVID-19, um, when TOCC does begin to decide, you know, have in-class learning, there'll be a, a, a phase where you need to have preparedness on what you do to prepare your classrooms, to prepare your buildings, and to pre prepare your students and faculty. And one aspect you consider is learning um, learning from our environmental health team to either teach the students or staff on preparing a safe environment for everyone there, you know, based on CDC standards. And we do have an environmental health team that can assist the college with this if the college is interested. And then again, for some of the goals would be to focus on health education. I mean, the students you're working with are, are, are the ones who are, are testing positive. Well, at least that age group is the one who's testing positive. So we want to focus on health education, reinforcing the information that's already out there, focusing on 
prevention, you know, wearing a mask, you know, Mr. Berlin Jose did indicate we need to wear masks. Uh, once we had the nation had implemented mandatory masks for the nation, we did see a decrease or a decline in cases. And then also this goes on with a, a lot of the other health issues is behavior change. I mean, we can educate it, but people need to focus on how they're changing their behaviors. I mean, it, it's not normal for us to wear masks every day. It's not normal for us not to you know, go to our family gatherings or sitting right close to our best friends or hugging our you know, family. This isn't normal. So we have to work on behavior changes in order to make an impact. And this also relates to diabetes and hypertension. And again, giving a little bit of information is that diabetes and hypertension are probably one of the most um, illnesses or um, diseases that impact our tribal members living on and off the nation. Prior to COVID, about 50 to 60% of our Thanatham population is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Um, and in regards to our, you know, highest or our top diagnosed related death is related to bacterial sepsis. So mostly with wound cares that people have and wounds are related to diabetes. And when we have, we do have a large amount of people who have had amputations or require wound care because um, those who have uncontrolled diabetes will have longer healing times or their wounds won't even heal. I mean, I did work in home health on the Thanatham Nation and we would have patients with wounds for a year or more. So those are just some of the challenges that our people face and you know, that can be related to what types of food are available, looking at grocery stores, access to healthy foods. And so you can really branch out and really explore you know, what can contribute to maybe the lack of health um, on the nation. And then also for diabetes, and in addition to that, um, we have a, a portion of people who require dialysis on the Thanatham Nation, and that's related to kidney, kidney disease. Um, we do have one DaVita Dialysis Center that's located in Sales. And so for people who live close to the city borders, they travel to Tucson or Casa Grande to receive their dialysis treatments as well. Um, about two months ago, we've had about 125 patients who received dialysis, and usually it's about three times a week, and I believe there were three shifts at the time. I'm not really sure how that's changed since COVID. But for any of our Thanatham members who do test positive or exposed to COVID-19, they have to drive to Oro Valley, and that can be anywhere from one to maybe three hours for some people to go there three times a week for their treatment. So it, it is a large burden on our tribal members who unfortunately get COVID-19 and then they have to test negative twice before they return um, back to um, the DaVita dialysis in, in cells. And then just to quickly touch on a couple of other public health concerns are influenza season. So right now, um, influenza season this year is going to be important because now we have COVID. They do have a lot of the similar symptoms. And so we want to be able to um, screen everyone and provide influenza vaccines. Um, and we actually already have had at least one person who did test positive for both COVID-19 and influenza. So that just goes to show that this can happen. And we want to make sure we try to minimize um, how sick people are getting this winter.
And so usually um, TONHC, we start providing the flu vaccines in October. However, with COVID-19, we want to try to be able to start providing influenza vaccines in mid-September or whenever we received our, our um our vaccine. So flu, flu usually starts circulating on the nation in mid-December through February. And so when, when people do receive the influenza vaccination, it takes a good two weeks for antibodies to develop in your body for immunity. Usually the flu vaccine is made up of four four different types of influenza virus. So I'm not sure um, at this time what exactly this flu season will be made up for this flu, flu year. And then for anyone who is working or going to school this semester at TLCC, um, the public health nursing department will like to work with TLCC to provide flu vaccinations. And um, we, our department is responsible. We're a really small department. We have a, only like two and a half nurses plus myself, but we vaccinate 20% of our population on the Thanatham Nation. So I would say we work pretty hard to ensure that people have access to influenza vaccines, whether we go door to door or hold a drive through clinic, we are out there ensuring that our community members have that access. Um, and then one last item was to touch on sexually transmitted diseases or STDs. Again, um, the public health nursing department, our goal each year is to offer at least one STD screening for all students interested, especially those who live in the dorms. Um, prior to COVID, our department um, was screening, was doing STD screenings for students, inmates, young adults, people who were going to the hospital or getting, you know, the testing for their annual exams or anybody who had any kind of symptoms. And right now, TONHC, we screen for chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, HIV, and hepatitis C. And the, um, the top STD for Thanatham Nation is chlamydia and gonorrhea. Fortunately, both are treatable with antibiotics. And so if TLCC does decide to do an in-person class in spring semester, um, our department will like to collaborate with the college to offer STD screenings for students and staff if they're interested. And I know one of the questions that I had was, what are potential training needs on the nation? And so overall, um, because I'm a nurse and I'm coming from Thanatham Nation Healthcare, is that it will be great for TLCC to focus on encouraging more students to enter into the health field, um, inviting different types of health professionals to participate either in career days or speaking to classes about what opportunities are available in healthcare in general. I know right now with um, TONHC, we have four facilities, we offer a variety of services. So finding ways to encourage to enter the health field is extremely important, not just at TLCC, but starting with our, you know, our elementary and all the way through high school. <clears throat> Again, I had mentioned that TONHC environmental health team can work with TOCC students or staff to prepare classrooms and buildings to minimize exposure to COVID-19. Our team, would, um, the team would be able to help identify safe spacing, you know, ensuring safe number of people in a classroom, equipment to use, equipment that's needed, hand washing stations, screening tools. 
Um, so those are just different types of things that could do. And then if there's any interns, um, possibly looking at intern options with TONHC. So I believe my time is up. So I, that was a quick overview, but I do thank you all for inviting me and providing an overview on health issues for thought automation. So thank you. Cynthia. Thank you so much. I know the time is very, very short and you have such important information to to share with all of us. So if you have any any particular questions for Cynthia, please send them to her directly or to all of us. So uh, thank you again. We're gonna have now Mike Henry uh, uh, talk about the work, uh, environmental issues on the nation. Mike, you're not, your mic's not turned up. I think it's on now, your, Mike. Is your phone muted? Oh, it doesn't look like you're joined in audio. Hmm. Check your, see if you're on and on the phone number and then um, <clears throat> unmute your phone number. Technology is good, but technology also has its uh, little hiccups. So um, if you could uh, let us know, Mike, if we should uh, uh, come back to you, um, you can send us a, a chat message. Um, Mike, let's keep working over the, uh, send me an email, because I see what's happening is you're not, I think you thought you were connected with your phone, but you have no audio at all. So. Uh, you could just try to call in on one of those numbers, too. And then maybe, we'll, you know, I think Octaviana, maybe, yeah, we'll just move ahead with yeah, the next okay. speaker and then, okay. and then circle back. Okay, we'll circle back. <laughs> so, we yep. see you, though. <laughs> okay, we we're going to have uh, Gilbert Tutu and, I, and Doug Saunders. I think they're a team in this next presentation. Gilbert Tutu or um, Doug Saunders? Oh, Gilbert is here. Oh, there. Are, we don't, we're not hearing you either, Gilbert, nor do we see you. We have your PowerPoint. Josh is ready to go with it. So. <laughs> I love technology. <clears throat> I, th um, I think Mike, um, I see you yeah, did. Don't think, um, don't think Doug is joining us. Um, Gilbert, if you can hear me, 
uh, why don't you also email me and we can figure this out and we could move on and, and see if Mike rejoined us yet. He's Mike? there. Doesn't Excuse look me, like there's any audio. Yeah. Um, Mike can join us audio with his cell phone and he can also join us through his laptop so that he can see along with right us. yeah that's what we were working on earlier so oh i see i okay. thought yeah i sent him a long email on that so he could be joining us via phone anytime so uh, let me check if i have an email too but we could in the meantime um move to fred and um see if uh, and then I'll be the technological wizard in the background, I guess, or Tim here. No. <laughs> I think we could work it out. Um, there's Fred. Oh, great. Okay. Awesome. I, uh, I don't know if you were able to get my uh, PDF. Yes, Josh has it, and he can share his screen and, and show it. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, Again, my, my name is Fred Stevens. I'm a natural resource technician. Uh, Dr. Newberry just contacted me. She was my instructor a few years ago. So, and uh, I, like I said, I was in the past, I was a transportation planner. I dealt with a lot of uh, mapping and uh, just planning out roads and all, all here on the nation. Then I moved, I went back to school and got into uh, environmental as uh, natural resources so that's what I got here and uh, I'm just here to got invited to uh, go over some environmental issues with the natural resources department uh, has a few well from our from the again uh, I forgot the name of the program I work with is the wildlife and vegetation management program and we deal with wildlife uh, uh, just trying to get them how uh, their habitats uh, just doing studies why animals are here. Uh, the program's kind of 20 years old right now. Uh, the staff was always just limited to uh, the largest amount was probably five at one time. Uh, we do a lot of, right now we have, uh, we just got an ecologist at Ward. So he's fairly new. Um, and before it was just myself for about two years and uh, we were doing a lot of stuff. But that, the issues that we run into for the wildlife and vegetation management program is manpower, like I just mentioned. Uh, there's not enough people that are interested in uh, natural resources or wildlife out here. So it's a hard time trying to do studies for endangered, endangered uh, wildlife out here, like a Mexican squatted owl, um, just getting a training to be certified and getting the collecting of data of different species out here. And that's also, it goes the same for endangered plants that are out here also. Uh, we work with the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. Uh, with the last, we do, we work with them, but again, it's because of, I guess, politics get involved and uh, the sharing of data is kind of hard to do. So we're limited of sharing what we have on the nation to outside. There's stuff like that back and forth. So we're working on trying to get that, you know, make an agreement so we can uh, do a little 
better at shared, sharing data. Uh, there's also uh, an environmental law. Well, right now, it's a lot of environmental laws being waived, like the uh, I mentioned before. Uh, the those springs that are the west west side of the Arizona being dried out. Uh, stuff like that out here is the wall is uh, just getting plowed through, and it's just waving all kinds of environmental laws. And it's kind of it's being the same on here on the nation. We're kind of uh, kind of safe a little bit, but at the same time, it's it's, it's getting close to us. Um, there's uh, oh, money gets involved. There's a lot of stuff that's being waived, or uh, law enforcement out here gets uh, waived too for like putting a towers out here, but at the same time, they're, they're not, it's kind of, we, we try to teach these guys how to look out for endangered plants and all that stuff, not to do this, not, not to do that, but uh, some are not, are just ignoring those rules out here. Um, also, what else was out here? Oh, and again, as uh, staff completing projects out here, uh, we're, we're short staff, so there's a lot of uh, studies out here that we're trying to complete, but we're limited. So we're jumping from uh, wildlife costs. Sometimes we get uh, injured birds, hawks, stuff like that, and we, we get them. We don't have no facility to do, uh, this a veterinary's hospital, but they only do domestic animals, so we have to submit them to uh, the wildlife center in Tucson. So that stuff, I mean, we work with them to hopefully rehabilitate them and then bring them back on the nation and release them. There's stuff like that out here. There's a lot of, because of a uh, limited um, staff here. So we have projects that are going on. And uh, I believe uh, my supervisor, he's the ecologist and uh, I spoke to someone at TLCC, but it, we wanted to work with TLCC to see if we can get some of the students to do maybe some of the studies out here because we do have, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I forgot about the PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm just going over. Uh, I can't remember what slide it was. Who's controlling the, the power? That would be me, Josh. Uh, the same person that the ecologist talked to not too long ago. Okay. Um, so yeah, you, you talk to me. Just just let me know which slide and I'll uh, move it along. Okay, this the very end of it. I'm just gonna jump around. There's, oh, you want uh, me to go to the end? Yeah, to the very end. It's slide 48, oh, 44. Oh, 44, okay. 44. Yeah, this is some of the, the wildlife cameras out we have out here. Uh, we collect data for uh, wildlife linkages. Um, the past ecologists before Eric, uh, they got funding through the Pima Association of Governments to do uh, wildlife linkages. They make the tunnels underpass because those tons of uh, roadkill that was like a right there on Key Peak. So as a wildlife linkage between TOCC and the San Pedro area, a lot of different uh, animals go through there because of key peaks, you know, the mountain range and it's a sky island and it's a lot of different 
variety of plants or the animals look for. And then, so we have like, it was a lot of roadkill. So we have these wildlife cameras set up to record what uh, animals are actually using the crossings. So also maybe that's another thing that we can work with TOCC so maybe they can uh, possibly possible to take over those cameras. I mean, and still give us the data, but at the same time, we like training how to, to collect data for wildlife cameras, downloading and see what species. Because so, we were collecting scat, uh, tracking animals, stuff like that, uh, the, the seasons, whatever other animals were coming through there. But this is also data for a future project is to do possible for a, a land bridge or overpass. That's one in Oro Valley that's been really constructed and that's been working out there. Because uh, we found that the cameras that we've been looking through, that the deer go on one side and they will, they will not go through it sometimes. Uh, they most of the time they'll jump over the fences, but uh, they're rarely being used. So the deer will stay on one side and the same with the, the big sh uh, bighorn sheep. They've been found in the mountains, but they will not use these linkages. So we're still working on that. Uh, there's also uh, it's a lot of uh, out here for the, the nation. There's a lot of habitat loss through construction. So we're trying to find out more safe harbor areas. There's uh, also outside entities that are coming into play for the Border Patrol. They're putting IoT towers, so there's, there's a lot of more stuff coming in. And we have to find out designated areas and make sure they're not going through paths where migration of animals, birds, and the effect of, if any effects after animals like flying birds or bats and all that. Uh, also, there's uh, ADOT or transportation. They are planning on a, a new roadway through the eastern part of the reservation. And so we're trying to, trying to work with them with, for a safe harbor agreement. So to leave this, some parts of the land untouched. And uh, so they won't be planning other stuff on there. So animals can still cross like an, another wildlife kind of linkage area, but it's for animals, specifically for wildlife habitat. Uh, I think that's pretty much what I had, but uh, oh, sorry, but let me go through the part. I keep forgetting about that PowerPoint. Uh, let's see. Fred, that would be wonderful. I thought you, some of your photographs were, were just very, um, very beautiful. If you could go through that uh, in the next uh, minute or two, then, then it'll be time for us to, to bring back uh, Mike Henry. Okay. All right, real quick. Just, okay. Uh, side uh, 41. Okay. Yeah, it's just uh, one more up. Yeah, it's just animals that are coming that read, were unexpected, and it's due to uh, fire. They're coming out to the nation, so we're finding out new animals. And we're not really uh, equipped to, sometimes we have to try to remove them, but we're not, 
or you say, uh, train to move these animals or have the equipment. So we try to work with outside uh, U.S. Fishing Gaming, U.S. Fishing and um, Game. But uh, again, it's kind of politics that come into play, so we're unable to share stuff, I mean, uh, equipment. Uh, oh, federal regulations. So it's a slide 34. It's just some of the federal regulations, and then one slide up is, uh, or two slides up, is what we have for the nation. We try to use these laws to uh, anybody that comes on the land for construction companies and all that. But uh, it's a lot of it's been waived, so, and uh, I had to learn most of this, but I know that the TLCC has the US government, I don't know if I think it was US government. It's be interesting, I mean, uh, if students knew how to use these laws on the nation, so when I came into play, I didn't really know about these laws either. Why did I take that class? But a lot of it comes to play. You have to know all the federal regulations and all the bylaws and ordinance for the nation here to follow and try to uh, regulate. We're not law enforcement, but uh, we're the only ones here that are trying to do this job. Uh, oh. Slide 30, Real, this will be the last one, I think. Yeah, and, and again, uh, it's an also invasive species. Uh, the main one we have out here is buffalo grass. Uh, there's a few other ones that are coming into play. Uh, they're starting to grow out here. Uh, what was it? Um, climate, due to climate change, a lot of these uh, plants are more adaptive to more the hot. I mean, hot temperatures out here. Uh, there's some, uh, I forgot the name of the other one, but it came from uh, up north, but it's coming down here. It's spreading quickly. I can't remember offhand, but there's a lot of different species coming on that are uh, taking over because the natural, natural plants can't handle what's going on here or taking over by these invasive plants. So we're losing a lot of natural plant habitat and stuff out here. I just, uh, again, it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting if TUCC had classes like that. Uh, I know there were some here and there. I got, I remember going to all these different classes for from Dr. Newberry to, uh, I forgot that. But anyways, it was really interesting and it really helped me out with this job. Fred, thank you so much. I mean, you have a couple of questions um, so okay. look at those questions and then just respond to everyone. And if we have time at the end, we'll, we'll engage uh, the uh, entire group. Now, can we um, um, see if Mike Henry can, can join us? Mike Henry, uh, join us or is are you still having trouble, uh, Mike? Mike, I think I just unmuted you. Uh, so let me know that was you. Was a okay, I'm going to. Okay, excellent. We can hear you. 
Oh, okay, great. I do apologize, um, but this is great for me. I was supposed to have a Zoom meeting tomorrow, so at least I know that this platform might have some, I might have some trouble with it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm hoping everybody can hear me. I uh, want to thank everybody for uh, inviting me, TOCC. Thank you so much for inviting uh, the Nation's Environmental Office to be part of your discussion and to kind of share some information and also uh, kind of share some needs that our office sees and how we're kind of uh, trying to educate uh, some of the workers that we have on the nation. So again, my name is Mike Henry, and I really hope that everybody can hear me. Um, I work for the nation's uh, Brownfields, which is their tribal response program. And of course, if you guys work with any type of government, they love to throw around giant acronyms and a lot of numbers that I really don't know um, what they are. Like we're under this thing called the 128A grant, which is probably just to say that that's what we're under. So that's where a lot of a lot of our funding or my funding comes from. So essentially what I do is that for my program, I do a lot of um, asbestos lead um, awareness. Since the buildings on the nation, we have a lot of historical buildings. We have a lot of buildings that um, do go through some renovation, but not much. So there comes a time when a new administration might come in and say, okay, we want to change this to this. So my efforts in my office is really to kind of heighten the awareness of the worker that's going to actually be breaking down a wall, if you will, and disturbing an area that they don't know what, what's behind it or how it was actually put together. Um, in my job, I'm able to, kind of say, okay, if you look at that wall, um, it's not just paint and drywall, if there's actually masking, there might be um, heating behind there that was used industrially, and it might have a contaminant that was supported at that time, uh, because it was highly, uh, highly effective for, for the use of maybe their ventilation system or to prevent a fire. So uh, we do a lot of baseline data, we try to get as much history on buildings as we can. So when we're called or when we're doing outreach, I'm able to say, okay, there, that building that you're describing um, is actually going to fall under this threshold and you'll definitely need to seek um, an environmental contractor to come out and test your building, make sure it's safe uh, for, again, the worker that's going to be performing the task of, uh, maybe knocking it down or removing something from it. So um, when it comes to hazardous material, um, a lot of people think, okay, what is it? Or what are you really talking about? For, for me, again, specifically, it'd be for abandoned structures, homes, um, underground storage tanks, old uh, gas stations, whether they have above ground storage tanks or underground storage tanks. Um, it's really to, again, kind of categorize them and let the folks know within the community, the district and the nation to say, this is what we have going on um, in these areas. And what's very unique is that on the Thonautham Nation, we have thousands of thousands of exploratory mine sites. 
So those also fund, uh, fall under the Brownfields program as under uh, MindScarred lands. So another task that I have is working closely with natural resources, um, specific, specifically the uh, mining administrator, where I kind of go and we bounce information off each other saying, okay, uh, what do you think the nation is looking at? Um, getting in return, if somebody says, you know what, I'm, that parcel of land we're looking at um, redeveloping, maybe uh, Key Association, which is our housing authority, might be looking at areas to uh, build new homes. Well, again, because of exploratory mine shafts, you want to be able to say, okay, what's out there uh, near the community? So this is where we work hand in hand with natural resources, uh, just to kind of see and take a look at how our, um, I guess our environment away from um, already populated communities where they'd like to maybe move the community to uh, newer homes or build some infrastructure. So uh, that's pretty much in a nutshell what, what I do um, as far as the Brownfields program. Now, when it comes to education, uh, this is another uh, part of my program where I consult with EPA and say, can I go ahead and put this within my work plan to train uh, members of the Thon Otham Nation in certain departments, much like our solid waste management. Um, they're, they have a great system on how they collect uh, the garbage, the waste, anything that has to do with going to a landfill or um, if something has a contaminant that needs to be shipped off, those, again, those, that's our point of contact. So we did, a, again, baseline data to kind of find out if they had certain type of credentials that they carry um, that would allow them to understand and to kind of say, okay, if I'm going to put this battery right here, I got to make sure that it's not near this type of fluid or vice versa. Um, again, housing certain types of drums, make sure they were labeled. So we, we kind of found out that a lot of them did not have that type of training. So we did an on-site assessment of their facility. And of course, it, it, was, that, it was that learning curve where we said, okay, um, so some of these uh, drums need to be labeled. We're not sure what's in them. Um, they can only be on your site for so many months and then they have to be transported off. So what we decided to do is collaborate with um, outside agencies, meaning um, ITCA, which is our Inter-Tribal Council, um, to bring some training to the nation uh, facilitated by my program. We kind of collaborated with dollars to say, okay, I'll pay for this if you pay for this part, which was great for EPA because they were like, they, they love when you do joint task force on, on any kind of type, uh, type of operation. So thus far, um, for two fiscal years we've trained on the nation, we've, we've given a HAZWOPER course, which is a 40-hour course. It's, um, it stands for Hazardous Waste Operations and Emergency Response. And really that just kind of covers everything when you're uh, working with chemicals, when you're working in confined spaces, you're working with ladders, you're working with harnesses, um, anything that might bring uh, maybe some type of vapor. Um, we, we wanted to make sure that those folks um, that work like in your custodial 
um, cleaning products, how they're being stored. Again, great information, a 40-hour course, and at the end of that course, they're tested and, and ultimately given a certificate, uh, certification for it. Now with that, um, per EPA and OSHA, once you get that 40-hour HAZWOPER, um, it's not mandated, but it's, um, it's encouraged that you at least go for another eight-hour um, refresher the following year and the year after that, or if you need to, you can do it every other year um, for the HAZWOPER. We also, for those same um, organizations, which is solid waste primarily, and we've had some districts sit on, on this training, which is uh, RECRA, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. Now with RECRA, we, we brought in, of course, expertise, people that um, have dealt with RECRA um, and teaching it through EPA, um, and we brought them here uh, to the Thon Autumn Nation, hosted it on the Thon Autumn Nation where they could see firsthand how the worker actually works. And then ultimately they're able to say, okay, during your program, we know kind of how to tailor it, um, not to a full blown, um, um, something you might see in the city, city of Phoenix, Tucson, uh, where the municipality is great, where you have a lot of moving parts so it was it was great to do that for those departments. They got they got a lot out of it um, when it came to education. So really, um, that's that's kind of the focus right now is making sure that the worker um, really has the knowledge when they're um, whenever they're going to go to work, if you will, and say, okay, I'm going to be moving chemicals, or I'm actually going to be moving some. Um, car batteries, or I'm actually going to be storing liquids right here. How are they supposed to be labeled? Um, what's mandated by federal law under EPA that their storage life should be um, at their facility? So it was great. It was great for us. It was great for them uh, that they were able to kind of um, know really specifically the roles and tasks of when they when they deal with hazardous chemicals. So. Uh, most of us in the environmental office carry the certificates for RECRA uh, HAZWOPER. Um, I also carry um, a certificate for um, asbestos and able to identify and make sure that um, when people come onto the nation to provide service of abatement or remediation, that they're following the same guidelines as whether EPA or the state, whichever is a little bit more stringent, um, most times it's going to be the state uh, that has very, very strict um, protocols when dealing with any type of um, contaminant. So I believe that with TOCC, I know that at some point when I first joined the team with, e, um, excuse me, with EPO, the Environment Protection Office, um, during my trainings, I found that there is um, a way that you can kind of collaborate with other agencies to do exactly what we're doing now, which is kind of finding out if we can go ahead and have maybe some type of curriculum develop where um, the person might be able to gain some of this knowledge um, without working in the field. It's, it's easier said than done um, only because if you work in the city of Tucson or the city of Phoenix, it's, you're, there, there, there's a greater chance that if you go and be part of that um, type of setup, 
then you're able to go ahead and land a job right there in Phoenix doing env environmental work, some type of environmental work. Whereas on the nation, there's, there's nothing. Everything is contracted off the nation. There's no um, mechanism there that'll say, yes, uh, we have our own environmental or our own asbestos or our own lead testing. We don't have any of that. So everything is um, basically looked at as a professional service and brought onto the nation um, for that type of service. So I'm not sure how that would, again, work with TOCC um, other than what I've always seen on your website, because I frequent it all the time looking at what kind of courses you guys have, um, is that you do, you, yeah, you do have some type of environmental uh, course, whether dealing with water or soil, which is, um, I think, very good. So um, other than that, that's what I got for my time. Well, thank you Mike, so much. And I, I, I know that um, the core team will be uh, uh, reflecting on um, all the presentations and trying to provide some, um, some, some more discussion on all the presentations. But thank you. And I'm so glad you were able to, to call in. And we could hear you loud and clear. So we will be uh, uh, reaching out to you again. Thank you, Mike. Great, thank you, Teresa. And another thing is please, please share my email with everyone if they got any questions. Um, I'd be happy to respond via email. Again, I apologize that I wasn't able to uh, get my system to be working properly. But um, again, I thank you very much for having me part of the discussion. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, I will. Sh I will share your contact information. That was an excellent presentation. So, okay. So we have, I believe, Gilbert Tutu and uh, Doug. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether Doug is able to to join or not, or whether it's going to be just Gilbert. So if you can come on and uh, let us know you're able to connect. Good afternoon, everybody. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Oh, all right. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doug, Doug won't be able to make this uh, session here, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. If you okay. uh, go Super. to the first slide, please. Okay. So, Josh, you're on. You're on. Thank. I'm a little slow on the draw, but I'm almost there. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Just let me know when to go to the next slide. Okay, I think this is Fred's slide here. Oh, there we go. Okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and start off with the map. Uh, uh, we did introductions already. Uh, our agency basically uh, we're uh, we're a federal agency that our our main role is to uh, is to go and uh, promote the farm bill programs. Uh, Congress, uh, you know, allocates every six years uh, funding, and so we try to uh, provide technical assistance to the nation and uh, through these farm bill programs. And there's quite a few. Uh, we we do a lot of uh, work with individuals, uh, grazing associations, and our our main workload is rangeland. And what we do work with the farming authority, the the uh, co-op farms, and the individual traditional farmers. We do uh, wildlife, we do a lot of uh, conservation education, 
the way we're, we're set up to provide technical assistance to the tribe is through a conservation district passed by council and funded by, by, the, by the tribe. And they basically put a, a long range plan together. So each year we, we address that in the annual plan and try to meet those long range goals. On rangeland, one of the main long range goals is, uh, is to restore some of the rangeland that's been uh, just through drought and uh, year round grazing has been, uh, <clears throat> has been overgrazed and then you see other problems uh, caused by overgrazing. But uh, here going to the map, uh, we got this map from the range program, the nation's range program. And basically it's a soils map and with the plant communities laid over it and the conditions of each plant community on the nation as you can see, the poor, fair, and good conditions. And, and this is kind of our, our baseline where we'd like to start our planning, but more of an individual areas on the nation. Uh, one of our main resource concerns, and, and they're prioritized by our board, and uh, the main one on rangeland is uh, water, uh, inadequate livestock water. And the, the second one is just inadequate feed and forage, and those two are our main uh, resource concerns that we address on rangeland. And looking at the pictures uh, here, uh, our main goal with our range program is to try to get them to uh, do some prescribed grazing without resting these plant communities during their growing season. You know, nothing we do on that rangeland is going to work. So basically, if they uh, agree to uh, periodically rest their, their pastures, even though they're not created yet, you know, if they're, if they're willing to do that, you know, then we can start working with them. Uh, uh, one of our main practices, uh, because of the, uh, because of the uh, uh, overgrazing and drought and other, other, you know, just lack of rain uh, or lack of rain, time, the timing of the rainfall, you know, uh, one of our main problems is just the invasive. And, and we're talking not uh, introduce invasive plants, but just invasive when the grasses, uh, when the perennial grasses leave an area, and that's the first thing that leaves the plant communities, you know, they, something goes, follows in, and it's usually shrubs and woody, more woody species like mesquite, all of our desert trees, and, and then the, also the cactuses that come in there, the prickly pear, the choya, they all come in. And they're in these areas at a bigger concentration than, in, than they should be in their normal, in their uh, normal conditions of, of the nation here. So uh, one of the main, the main, the main um, practices we do is is deferment, which means that we we go in there and we do a brushwork. We put these, we put everything back in its in what composition it should be in its natural state. Like for instance, if the shrubs are there. 30% now we want to put them back where they should be, maybe 10 to 15% of that composition. And the same with the woody, the, the trees. And you know, we want we want to keep that diversity there. We don't want to take them all off, but mainly the perennial grasses are missing in these plant communities. So we do a lot of rain seeding. And then once the seeding's done, then we're able to rest these plant communities every three uh, three summers. And you know, it, it takes a lot of um, you know, it takes a lot of resources just to rest pastures because you can't graze them for four months. And our growing season for the perennial grasses we have out, out here on the nation 
is basically from June through end of September, which we're coming closing into that September range right now. And uh, so all of, the, all of the management is based off periodically grazing these pastures. And, and uh, so that's kind of uh, our baseline uh, is really uh, everything basically in poor and fair condition. Uh, next slide. A uh, little more information on this poor and fair, uh, fair condition. Basically, 50% um, of the vegetation in, in, in fair condition, 50% of the vegetation by weight, uh, then, then that's what's missing historically on, on, the, on the fair conditions out there. So by weight, historically, 50% of the vegetation is missing. And then when you look at the poor condition, historically, there's only 25% of historically what should be there. So those are kind of the baselines when we start working with individuals or associations or even family partnerships uh, on, on the, on the rangeland. And a lot of this mean, again, is when we look at these areas and we do a, a, a kind of a baseline, it's the, the perennial grasses are always uh, in kind of just out there in trace, uh, just a trace of the, the seed sources out there. And then also an increase in shrubs and forbs and a lot of the woody stuff that's, that's really increasing there. And our, our main most productive soils are in our bottoms. And then you see those bottoms, almost nearly 80% vegetation of some type of uh, desert tree like mesquite. So uh, a lot of the, a lot of, uh, of type, different types of brush management uh, we use to uh, try to correct that and to replace the vegetation through rain seeding. Uh, next slide. Uh, th this is kind of what we're going to talk, what I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, as far as the uh, environmental issues. Uh, this is just uh, a depiction of photosynthesis, one phase of it anyway. And I, uh, it didn't come out as clear as I thought, but basically this is during transpiration. The, the plant opens up the, the plant, the leaves open up the small pores. This allows oxygen, water to, to come out, transpire to, in the, and also it also allows carbon dioxide to go into the plant. So kind of keep this in mind because this is going to be kind of the key to, uh, to what, our, what my uh, resource concerns are. Uh, next slide. Now, a lot of these studies that are being done on higher concentrations of oxygen, I mean, of CO2 in the air, uh, are just, you know, uh, studies that are done on small scale, small plots, you know, greenhouses. So there, there really hasn't been anything done on a large scale on the environmental uh, 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 level. So uh, one, one concern that, uh, that you see from these studies is that higher concentrations of uh, carbon, di carbon dioxide, CO2, you know, they can reduce the opening of these pores when, it, when the plant transpires and releases air and oxygen. With, with increases of carbon dioxide, these studies show that it, it tends to close the pores, which basically it doesn't happen as often and the plant really becomes more efficient in water savings. So, uh, you know, how does, how does this affect the, hydro, the hyd hydrology 
of the soil, of the denser soils on, in those, on those plant communities? And, and is it increasing the soil moisture and increasing runoff on those? Now, a, a lot of the areas we do uh, work on are getting larger and we're doing some large, larger landscape uh, watershed studies. So we're wondering, you know, is, you know, could this be happening? Why, why isn't the water uh, staying up on these watersheds and, and, they're, and they're moving through these areas in, in great velocities? So that's, you know, that's, you know, that's, are we seeing the effects of this? You know, it could be other reasons, but you know, that's just something to think about. You know, uh, how it affects the hydrological cycle. Uh, another thing, uh, you know, by being better using uh, the water, uh, the, the, does the plants have a larger, I mean, a longer growing season or does it affect it, uh, meaning it doesn't have an earlier growing season or do they have to get the water early in the, early in the, 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 uh, the, the life cycle of the plant in order to store it, to increase the, the length of the water. And we, you know, looking at some of this stuff, you know, we see uh, plants uh, like, for instance, the uh, blooms on the saguaro, are they coming earlier or are they coming later? Uh, you know, talking with people, they say they're coming earlier and then the window or between pollination and fruit you know, that seems to be closing a lot shorter and a lot narrower. So even, um, I would say even like on the prickly pear too, is that coming earlier? Is that staying? So, so is, you know, increased uh, CO2 in the air, is that affecting the, uh, the growing seasons of some of our plants out here? We know on, on grasses, you know, is that affecting our range? You know, our range grasses up there or our range plants? And then, the other thing is, do uh, you know if this if this uh, shift in uh, uh, growing season that can pollinators, you know, adapt to the changing in, in the you know in the growing season? That's another question. You know, if they don't, then you don't get reproduction in any of these plant communities or low or less reproduction. So that, you know, those are just some of the questions that we uh, that we want to try to answer in the long run, in really in the long run. And uh, another thing is that, um, you know, does, does increased CO2 level, will they uh, facilitate the spread of invasive? I know Fred kind of touched on this. Um, and uh, so some of the studies say, yes, they do. Some of the studies say it just depends on what type of grass, uh, you know, and how uh, photosynthesis affects it. So, uh, so the, and so that could be a concern, you know, just with uh, growing elevated, uh, CO2 levels, uh, does it affect the quality and quantity of forage? You know, so that, that's another thing. You know, are we gonna see our grasslands moving to higher elevations? You know, we, when we do our uh, seeding mixes for these, uh, for these different uh, 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 pastures or plant communities, you know, some of the ranchers are, are saying, you know, why, why don't you include some of the more woody species that are browse species for our livestock? something like salt, the different types of salt bushes we have out here, or even uh, some of the white bursae, some of the, the browse shrubs, uh, rat knees. And, and so, uh, so, you know, that they're, they're kind of thinking ahead and wondering, you know, what's going on. Even, you know, we, 
even the salt bushes that we put out here and not on our lower elevations uh, desert, you know, it doesn't taste like salt as you go down to the salt bushes. So, you know, animals don't use them as much, but they're here and they will use them if that's the only thing that's left. So those are just some of the some of the questions as far as environmental issues we have with increased uh, CO2 levels. Uh, next slide. Now in the, you know, in the meantime, once the, once the ranchers have really uh, uh, decided that they want to try to uh, move from a year round grazing system to a more of a controlled grazing system, you know, one of the, one of the things that we can do is that we can, we can help accelerate that, that whole process of, of getting ground, getting plant cover on the ground. And so we, 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 you know, a part of the inventory, we look at the different types of erosion on, on these on rangeland. And usually in the upper watersheds, we see uh, this sheet flow up in the upper uh, left-hand corner, we see these sheet flows starting. And that's usually the start. It's kind of a signal that there is something wrong with the, uh, you know, with the, either the, one of the cycles out there, whether it's the water cycle whether it's the nitrogen cycle, what there's something going on out here. So basically what we try to do is we try to catch it early. So we go up in the upper upper watersheds and, and we try to use just natural materials if we can. A lot of these are kind of based on Anasazi uh, check dam design. But when there's no natural material, you know, we can go to these net wired uh, diversions, we call them, which really just catch the litter. And we want to keep the litter on these on these uh, plant communities because it, it it you know it decays and it you know it's part of the nitrogen cycle so we want that and then also it intercepts the raindrops we don't want to see a lot of bare ground we want to start closing in those gaps in there once the once the soil is stable then we can start seeing plants actually start growing in there and then the roots will keep the plants there but we try to catch it at the early stage uh, next. Hello. Uh, next time. There we go. Now as that water starts moving down the watershed, you know, it starts, the rills start becoming gullies, then gullies start, you know, start uh, getting deeper where the water doesn't overflow over the land anymore. So that's when we can come in and start doing some more of these uh, grade stabilization. All we're trying to do is just keep that grade there. Uh, so we do, again, we try to use natural material out there. We, these are alternate layers of brush and rock. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they, we treat one stream at a time. So based on the slope, you know, these are probably about 50 feet apart. You know, we, so we treat, you know, each of these uh, gully, stream gullies and, and, uh, then along with the reseeding, the brushing, the deferment, all this will really work together and help accelerate the, the ground cover. So a lot of things we can do, uh, even on the, our low desert where we get 70, 10 inch precip and we get a lot of uh, uh, like a shuggy uh, flats or just, uh, we call them limey areas or limey slope, limey uplands, limey deep soils, which just have uh, one, basically one, uh, plant on there, which is the creosote, which which is uh, 
which is really adapted to those soils because they're they don't get leached they're in the low uh, low rainfall area and they're they're able to pull the moisture from the soil and so nothing else will really grow there you don't see the perennial grasses or any of the shrubs uh, it's and then those areas are in good condition I mean that that's what that's what naturally occurs on those areas. The only way we can use it in forest rangeland is, is that if we treat the, all, the, all the little um, uh, channels of water that flow through these areas, but that, that water actually leaches down some of that lime and the free salts and it, it, um, you know, it allows for perennial grasses. So this is the only place we're gonna see perennial grasses. So once the once these areas are stabilized, we can actually reseed it to perennial grasses. So, and our goal with that is to do enough of these that we treat the area more of a perennial grass management than just a uh, annual uh, production on these lands. Because when we get a good spring rain or good winter rains, these areas will just be covered with uh, uh, annual forbs and annual grasses. Because those roots are real shallow and you know that the the conditions in the soil that do not affect them, but you know they only they live around six weeks. They'll seed out, and you really can't overgraze those. But they're but those are the opportunities that they can graze these areas, and it just kind of depends on the the rainfall. Uh, next, Gilbert, uh, we're running yes. out of time. You have such wonderful information as well as uh, slides. Uh, our session uh, is to end at 3.30, um, and we still have Greg to help us summarize okay. and connect. So um, I would suggest that perhaps you can send um, your PowerPoint to Teresa. Well, she has it already, and then she can share it with the rest of the faculty. And I'm sure we will be reaching out to you once again. Excellent presentation. Okay, that'll be fine. Yeah, okay. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. Super, thank, thank you. Thank you, Gilbert. We'll be in touch. Lots of great ideas. You know, water use efficiency, that's my area <laughs> of expertise. Okay, I know we're running a little, uh, due to uh, technical difficulties, a little behind, but we wanted to have a few minutes with Craig uh, to help us translate uh, these social needs into curriculums. So, Greg, uh, I know. You've been taking notes uh, from these wonderful presentations and, and discussion and queries from uh, uh, and comments from uh, all the participants. So I open it up to you. I hope you're still with us. Oh, I, I'm still with you. Absolutely. Uh, uh, well, I think this segment was very important, uh, you know, to really hear from uh, professionals, you know, uh, on the nation involved with the various uh, programs and departments, because this really uh, roots uh, the kinds of content and the kinds of, of aspects of each of the disciplines and, and, and really brings in, you know, the science and technology piece in ways that are very practical and very, uh, actually very relevant, you know, for the needs of the nation, some of the issues therein. Um, I think in a lot of ways, uh, each of the presentations spoke for themselves, you know, because they presented a context and also a, a some detail, you know, with regard to uh, the kinds of things they do uh, in their programs that are directly related to the nation and, uh, and also upon which the nation is dependent, you know, in terms of 
uh, just the services that are provided. Uh, and that's kind of a hallmark of uh, relevancy in any curriculum is that, um, and one of the things that's most complained about by indigenous students is that uh, they look for the relevancy of whatever is being taught in a science course uh, to their world, uh, to their land, to their place. And, and most of the time it's missing, truthfully, even in tribal colleges. So uh, really tribal colleges have made uh, every effort that they can that is at their disposal to uh, try to make uh, science instruction more relevant to the issues and to the challenges that each of the nations face. I know that a lot of the tribal colleges actually do do this. And I think tribal colleges are well situated to do this and do this well, you know, as it re relates to their own nation, uh, their own communities. So I just want to commend all of the presenters for their great and very informational um, uh, presentations because that gives us a lot of um, food for content, as I say, food for our, our uh, perspectives that, uh, and themes and topics uh, that can be utilized, you know, within this context of society and culture and the Zayas model. So I'm going to quickly go over what I heard, you know, um, from each of the presenters, uh, from Fred Stevens, uh, Natural Resources. Um, you know, I, I, there, there's just a gamut of things he covered, actually, that included, uh, you know, essentially the issues of wildlife and vegetation management on the nation. Uh, the, the proverbial not enough money and not enough manpower, you know, to do the work that's needed. Um, uh, the concern, and this is environmental justice, uh, that many of the environmental laws uh, are being uh, pushed back, they're being waived, uh, so that actually uh, a lot of these issues are becoming more pronounced uh, in terms of wildlife and land management. Um, uh, you know, the border wall definitely is contributing to many new issues uh, and uh, really um, causing uh, many kinds of things to happen in terms of uh, particular mi migration of wild animals across uh, border, border walls because they're not making really any big provisions for, for animal um, migrations. And, um, uh, and certainly also just the trafficking, you know, the, the construction the impact of construction, uh, you know, is significant, you know, in, in, in any uh, kind of uh, construction process like this. Um, again, law enforcement and, and, and land use laws are there, but they're not being really enforced. Um, uh, you know, building capacity to do and complete research that has already been started, room for students to help with uh, a lot of the studies, a lot of the issues that, that are there. Um, uh, really taking inventories of plants and animals. We know uh, in climate change research that animals and plants are being pronounced, uh, are, there's a pronounced impact on plants and animals in a negative way across the board, uh, around the world. And so we know that these issues are happening. We just don't know to what extent. And, but it's in some cases, it's really obvious even just to the naked eye uh, to actually see those changes. Uh, habitat loss, of course, is involved with that. Uh, the whole notion of kinds of regulations. Um, you know, we haven't really updated our regulations to, to include, um, you know, the issues of climate change. And uh, that has to happen, essentially, in terms of all range management uh, lands. Um, 
cooperative relationships um, uh, and, and really understanding how climate change is impacting uh, specific areas uh, is something that we don't know about. And again, we, we see that the land, uh, the plants, the animals, the soils, the land is changing, and, uh, but we don't see you know, to what extent. And um, we have to have that baseline data to be able to, uh, to mitigate some of these issues, some of these situations. Uh, and that requires manpower. Uh, in many cases, uh, it's just learning how to do soil tests. It's just doing how to do plant inventories, um, animal inventories, all those kinds of things that add up and give you a picture of a pattern that's forming you know, within a landscape. And so uh, those are very, very important issues. Um, in terms of um, in terms of some of the kinds of things that uh, involved connected this, the Environmental Protection Office. We also know that uh, because of changes in 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 the climate, uh, and also changes in in our own human habitation of the land, that um, that we're running across a lot of a lot more issues of of old uh, mine sites, uh, old sites of pollution. Uh, old uh, buildings that haven't been torn down, uh, issues that are um, issues that relate to environmental protection uh, and, and also are connected to health issues, you know, within a reservation. And so, um, uh, so uh, you know, what uh, Mike Henry brought up also is that for most nations, uh, many of these kinds of services are provided by uh, uh, contracted off-nation uh, service providers. Uh, there's not really expertise within uh, many of the nations to do these kinds of specialized tests and specialized inventories. And so uh, that immediately is a great need for that kind of training. Um, uh, so so that's, that's an important takeaway from that. Um, in terms of uh, Cynthia, you know, coming back to health issues, um, you know, the, the impact uh, of, of COVID-19, uh, particularly on uh, the age group of 20 to 44, you know, with regard to uh, autumn people uh, is very important, uh, you know, as a statistic and really very telling in the sense that um, a, lot of, a lot of that, that uh, kind of spread is being generated by, um, you know, some of the tribal members who have to work off nation and have to work in, uh, you know, service providing professions, et cetera, et cetera, that then uh, bring back uh, and compromise, you know, some of the conditions regarding COVID on the reservation itself. So, so that's, a, that's an issue, you know, that, that needs to be studied. Um, learning about, you know, uh, just basic health issues, learning about uh, preparing a, self, a safe environment focus on health education and prevention. Um, the uh, diabetes and hypertension uh, crisis, you know, is, is prevalent among all Indian nations at this point because of our diets or change in diets. Um, you know, the issues related to kidney disease and dialysis, um, the flu season that's coming up. Um, uh, and, and really this whole notion of encouraging uh, students to go into the health-related field, science-related, which requires science in some shape or form, you know, uh, to be understood and, and to be translated into practice becomes in a very important piece of the, the takeaway from, uh, you know, her health issues presentation. Um, uh, 
uh, you know, I, I would say also in terms of um, of uh, what I think uh, Gilbert just finished um, uh, talking about. Um, uh, you know, as he was uh, you know doing his presentation, I was reminded of um, the way that uh, we know. Um, you know, the ancestors of the Pueblos here in New Mexico and the ancestors of the Atom there in Arizona actually used to uh, do a form of um, terraforming, you know, that uh, where, where they were actually managing the landscape in broad ways. And this was actually practiced throughout uh, the Americas by Native peoples in, 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 in tandem with working with the natural environment, the rangelands, the plants, the animals, the natural topography of the land to enhance uh, the life, the life production, you know, and, and thereby also enhance uh, human, human life, you know, through uh, working with those environments. So that's an ideal opportunity to bring back uh, some of these ancient practices that uh, we once held and we once did. Uh, today, of course, that's done in a modern way. Uh, Gilbert uh, presented that in terms of, of um, you know, water, feed, forage, uh, land restoration, uh, some essential uh, uh, strategies for climate change and mitigation, uh, particularly for Native uh, communities and for uh, Native nations. Uh, this is going to be major, uh, you know, because uh, Native nations have already been impacted significantly by climate change. And that, that trend will continue and actually will increase uh, yearly. And so uh, the, the need to know our lands, the need to know how our lands are changing, the need to do uh, mitigations, you know, with regard to our tribal lands uh, is, going to, to, is going to increase. And so we're going to have an increased need for um, uh, tribal members, you know, to be able to do these kinds of, of uh, this kind of work. And so uh, we know the land is changing. And uh, again, I'm looking out the door as I'm speaking and I'm seeing how this uh, land has changed, you know, significantly just within the past five years that I've been here, uh, how, how, how uh, seasons are not quite what they used to be. Um, the rains don't come when they're supposed to, pollinators don't come when they, when they need to, or they're, they're, they're not coming at all, which means that, that they're dying off and, especially in terms of certain kinds of bees and certain kinds of insects. So you can see this happening. And this was the basis of traditional ecological knowledge way back when. And uh, I see the need for this, especially coming back right now and into the future. So it's, it's definitely an area that can, be, that can be enhanced and looked at in some very, uh, I think very creative and very uh, unique ways. Um, in terms of uh, Verlin's presentation, uh, those four, four areas, understand the past, understand the present, be, be, uh, be yourself first, accept the good, bad and the different, be committed. Um, and uh, really looking at the family uh, history and also the critical need for change um, in terms of uh, the personal and national view of education, that is happening as we speak. Right, because uh, uh, huge challenges to uh, you know public schools, private schools, uh, colleges, you know, uh, in terms of how to deliver service, you know, in uh, this COVID time, uh, and that trend actually will continue as well. 
um, building the proper infrastructure for an educational institution uh, has come into question, uh, serious question. Uh, as I probably said for 20 years at the University of New Mexico, uh, higher education institutions uh, uh, are not sustainable. They weren't sustainable 20 years ago and they're even less sustainable now. Which, uh, and the pressure of COVID and the economics that uh, the economic play that, that has set into play has made it major, a major issue. So this is something that tribal colleges also, you know, must deal with, uh, particularly um, as, as they, they look at how they provide a particular educational service uh, to their tribal communities. So that proper infrastructure definitely is being challenged and reviewed. Um, this kind of effort requires everyone's work and everyone uh, is valuable, you know, in this process. So I think that's what all hands in an uh, on deck approach, which is really a, very much an indigenous communal approach and has been all along, has to be reestablished in a, a new context. Uh, and this is, a, you know, how you build community around challenges. You know, indigenous communities have been uh, sustainable because they have been able to build community uh, and bring forward that uh, force of community uh, for the good of all uh, into play. Something that because of a lot of social issues has been lost in many reservations. But I think uh, tribal uh, communities are realizing the need and the importance of bringing that back, reinforcing it in so many different kinds of ways. And that certainly is an issue of society and culture building community. Uh, and certainly, you know, those financial issues will continue uh, in terms of how do you do more with less? Uh, how do you use your funds creatively, uh, which brings in economics, which brings in uh, smart business, green business, you know, all of those kinds of uh, new sustainably oriented uh, enterprises, uh, entrepreneurship around uh, sustainable business and sustainability. Uh, is 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 the new trend, and it will continue to be the new trend. Uh, uh, restoration of uh, lands, uh, mitigation of uh, of uh, uh, climate change, um, preparedness for uh, major changes uh, in um, health due to new viruses, which we are seeing now in COVID. But COVID is only, I think, the beginning of many new kinds of viruses that are being unleashed you know, in the context of uh, the uh, dwindling diversity within our environments. And so, um, uh, so there is a direct connection of COVID to uh, the loss of diversity and also uh, the infringement of human populations into what used to be natural, uh, natural habitats of, of animals. And so um, there's a need really in all of these areas for, um, a kind of, uh, uh, I, I'm not going to call it a new science, but I would call it an integrated culturally responsive science that, um, that really takes into consideration the society and culture piece along with the, the worldview piece, along with uh, the practicality and technology piece and find ways, you know, through the curriculum process to integrate them in ways that make sense, that are appropriate, and also that uh, have impact, you know, with regard to engaging students 
in uh, what I call real life science or, or science of the, the everyday, uh, because climate change and uh, unfortunately, you know, issues like uh, COVID, you know, may become our new normal, actually will, will become our new normal. So, uh, you know, education, particularly for tribal colleges, as, as it addresses the needs of Native nations of which those colleges are a part, really has to be about um, how do you creatively address these challenges as they're, as they're coming forward. So I think, uh, you know, in terms of uh, content uh, for uh, themes that are relevant, uh, that are culturally appropriate, that have uh, direct impact and have possibility for really engaging students in uh, learning real science is, is really apparent, you know, um, and the translation uh, of these uh, themes, these issues uh, that have been presented by our presenters, you know, uh, is really the challenge uh, that uh, befalls us in terms of uh, creating curriculum that, that can address some of these issues in, in very direct and practical ways. So I think just in closing um, that, uh, you know, the, the tomorrow uh, uh, I'll go into this deeper in terms of how you begin to take some of the ideas and perspectives that we've heard today. Uh, I would say sort of think about what has, said, what, what has been said. Uh, I think um, the presenters had something uh, to say for everyone, but also something to say that was specific to the need of, of one of you as, as faculty members. So, so everything begins with the first insight, a, a basic idea of what you want to, uh, an issue or challenge that you want to address, you know, using, uh, using science. And, um, and I think those, those themes have already been sort of outlined in general. And it's now up to you to sort of really uh, process them, maybe tonight, think about what kind of theme for a unit that you can start with, you know, in terms of developing uh, a very specific unit that addresses one of these issues, these challenges, or, or these bequests, you know, that were made by the presenters to begin to think about uh, how you incorporate them into uh, a, a, a curriculum process for yourself and for what you'll be teaching at TOCC. So I encourage you to, um, to think about them. Uh, I, I would hope that uh, you would take some time and just dot, jot down a few themes that come to you that can be used as um, topics for a uh, unit. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the um, Zayas model tomorrow. I'll also uh, have the presentation on science in Native America, uh, which kind of is kind of the bigger picture of uh, what your presenters just, uh, uh, what you heard from the presenters. You know, um, there's a bigger picture to it, you know, in terms of Native Americans as a whole uh, with regard to the need for an importance of science education. So that, um, so that uh, you know, think about that. Uh, I hope you will read, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, MS Word document that uh, was written by Linda Tello because that'll give you some background information in terms of uh, some of the issues that Native students face in higher education science and uh, also uh, my article on um, uh, American Indian uh, epistemologies 
which talks about uh, some of the things that Camillus uh, mentioned, uh, but sort of broads it, you know, to 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 be uh, uh, to be uh, inclusive of some of the basic principles that are in operation. And um, I think that will that will suffice. You know, uh, read some of the articles if you can, if you have time. But uh, I think that's all for me right now, Octaviana. I, I think we can. Thank you, Greg. Um, thank, and thank every um, presentation presenters that uh, contributed to uh, to expanding our knowledge and to uh, uh, interfacing with our um, uh, interest in in developing this. Uh, unique space for the curriculum project. Well, I will just take it just a few minutes before uh, we call it a day. Um, and it was uh, great that Greg asked us to, to, to think about uh, um, the unit uh, based on um, an issue and really looking at some ideas uh, for your own classroom needs and for the needs that are very uh, important in, in when we look at societal needs uh, for Tohono O'odham, cultural and societal needs. Um, and uh, wanted to, to invite all of you to be part of the acting active learning core group. You know, we had one last year and I know that some of you um, are part of our active learning core group already and will continue. Others may want to join. And so if you look at tomorrow's agenda, there will be time for all of you to participate in the development of a place-based uh, curriculum project uh, in, with the theme of society and culture. And so as we think about Friday and those presentations and to see how much time we're going to allocate uh, to individuals, um, or a small group, we, we need to do some planning for that. So if you could just let uh, Teresa know via the chat box, if you want to uh, and plan to develop and present on Friday um, a unit uh, based on uh, tomorrow's session, uh, please let her know so that we can plan accordingly. And I'm gonna give Teresa um, time to uh, follow up uh, with any last minute things that we need to share. Okay, great. Thank you. What a, what a wonderful session and uh, everyone's contributions were just amazing. And um, it's all building to a great uh, uh, confluence of uh, things, positive things that will come forward, I think, in terms of uh, the direction for the college and also future curriculum. So I just wanted to uh, reiterate Octaviana's uh, invitation to become part of the, what we call the active learning group. And really as part of that group, the idea is that in this three-day workshop, you will come up with a, like a seed of an idea for a curriculum that you would then um, develop over the course of the next academic year and we will have ongoing support from Octaviana and also uh, Camillus and also each other in terms of developing this unit. And we did want to encourage people to work together uh, in pairs. Uh, we were going to put you in groups, to be honest. <laughs> and then we thought, no, we'll just let um, faculty self-select. So you can do this 
you know, on your own. We'll have time tomorrow afternoon. Uh, we will all be available, Greg, um, Octaviana, Camillus, and myself. If you have questions, tomorrow morning there will be a little more uh, background information given for that. And then you can either work as an individual or in a, with a partner or with a small group. And then our presentation will be on, um, on Friday. And so really there's two things that we're asking. We, you know, since this is an invitation, uh, if, you, if, you don't, if, if you can answer me by email if you'd like, if you even want to be part of this active learning group, and if you are, just let me know if you're going to work uh, with a partner or a group. And we'll be really wanting that second part of that information by the end of the day tomorrow because we'll just need to know how long you'll have to present on Friday. So with that, it's 3.42, so I think I'll, uh, and I can stay for questions uh, if anyone has questions. If not, you know, feel free to go. And I, I think uh, also with the organizing team, if we could stay too just to kind of, you know, recap and talk about tomorrow. So, so have a good evening, everyone. And um, this was really wonderful uh, to have all of you share and present. Thank you.